7. The supply of labor as affected by the disutility of labor. The fundamental facts affecting the supply of labor are 1. Every individual can expend only a limited quantity of labor. 2. This definite quantity cannot be performed at any time desired. The interpolation of periods of rest and recreation is indispensable. 3. Not every individual is able to perform any kind of labor. There are innate as well as acquired diversities in the abilities to perform certain types of work. The innate faculties required for certain types of work cannot be acquired by any training and schooling. 4. The capacity to work must be dealt with appropriately if it is not to deteriorate or to vanish altogether. Special care is needed to preserve a man's abilities, both the innate and the acquired, for such a period as the unavoidable decline of his vital forces may permit. 5. As work approaches the point at which the total amount of work a man can perform at the time is exhausted, and the interpolation of a period of recreation is indispensable, fatigue impairs the quantity and the quality of the performance. Other fluctuations in the quantity and quality of the performance per unit of time, for example, the lower efficiency in the period immediately following the resumption of work interrupted by recreation, are hardly of any importance for the supply of labor on the market. 6. Men prefer the absence of labor, that is, leisure, to labor, or, as the economists put it, they attach disutility to labor. The self-sufficient man who works in economic isolation for the direct satisfaction of his own needs only, stops working at the point at which he begins to value leisure, the absence of labor's disutility, more highly than the increment in satisfaction expected from working more. Having satisfied his most urgent needs, he considers the satisfaction of the still unsatisfied needs less desirable than the satisfaction of his striving after leisure. The same is true for wage earners, no less than for an isolated autarkic worker. They, too, are not prepared to work until they have expended the total capacity of work they are capable of expending. They, too, are eager to stop working at the point at which the immediate gratification expected no longer outweighs the disutility involved in the performance of additional work. Popular opinion, laboring under atavistic representations and blinded by Marxian slogans, was slow in grasping this fact. It clung, and even today clings, to the habit of looking at the wage-earner as a bondsman, and at wages as the capitalist equivalent of the bare subsistence which the slave-owner and the cattle-owner must provide for their slaves and animals. In the eyes of this doctrine, the wage-earner is a man whom poverty has forced to submit to bondage. The vain formalism of the bourgeois lawyers, we are told, calls this subjection voluntary and interprets the relation between employer and employee as a contract between two equal parties. In truth, however, the worker is not free. He acts under duress. 
he must submit to the yoke of virtual serfdom, because, as society's disinherited outcast, no other choice is left to him. Even his apparent right to choose his master is spurious. The open or silent combination of the employers fixing the conditions of employment in a uniform way, by and large, makes this freedom illusory. If one assumes that wages are merely the reimbursement of the expenses incurred by the worker in the preservation and reproduction of labor power, or that their height is determined by tradition, it is quite consistent to consider every reduction in the obligations which the labor contract imposes on the worker as a unilateral gain for the worker. If the height of wage rates does not depend on the quantity and quality of the performance, if the employer does not pay to the worker the price the market assigns to his achievement, if the employer does not buy a definite quantity and quality of workmanship, but buys a bondsman, if wage rates are so low that for natural or historical reasons they cannot drop any further, one improves the wage earner's lot by forcibly shortening the length of the working day. Then it is permissible to look at the laws limiting the hours of work as tantamount to the decrees by means of which European governments of the 17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries step by step reduced and finally entirely abolished the amount of the unpaid statute labor, corvée, which the peasant bondsmen were liable to give to their lords, or to ordinances lightening the work to be done by convicts. Then the shortening of daily hours of work which the evolution of capitalist industrialism brought about is appraised as a victory of the exploited wage-slaves over the rugged selfishness of their tormentors, all laws imposing upon the employer the duty to make definite expenditures to the benefit of the employees are described as social gains, that is, as liberalities for the attainment of which the employees do not have to make any sacrifice. It is generally assumed that the correctness of this doctrine is sufficiently demonstrated by the fact that the individual wage earner has only a negligible influence on the determination of the terms of the labor contract. The decisions concerning the length of the working day, work on Sundays and holidays, the time set for meals, and many other things are made by the employers without asking the employees. The wage earner has no other choice than to yield to these orders or to starve. The cardinal fallacy involved in this reasoning has already been pointed out in the preceding sections. The employers are not asking for labor in general, but for men who are fitted to perform the kind of labor they need. Just as an entrepreneur must choose for his plants the most suitable location, equipment, and raw materials, so he must hire the most efficient workers. He must arrange conditions of work in such a way as to make them appear attractive to those classes of workers he wants to employ. It is true that the individual worker has but little to say with regard to these arrangements, they are, like the height of wage rates itself, like commodity prices and the shape of articles produced for mass consumption, 
the product of the interaction of innumerable people participating in the social process of the market. They are, as such, mass phenomena, which are but little subject to modification on the part of a single individual. However, it is a distortion of truth to assert that the individual voter's ballot is without influence because many thousands or even millions of votes are required to decide the issue, and that those of people not attached to any party virtually do not matter. Even if one were to admit this thesis for the sake of argument, it is a non-sequitur to infer that the substitution of totalitarian principles for democratic procedures would make the office-holders more genuine representatives of the people's will than election campaigns. The counterparts of these totalitarian fables in the field of the market's economic democracy are the assertions that the individual consumer is powerless against the suppliers and the individual employee against the employers. It is, of course, not an individual's taste, different from that of the many, that determines the features of articles of mass production designed for mass consumption, but the wishes and likes of the majority. It is not the individual job-seeker, but the masses of job-seekers, whose conduct determines the terms of the labor contracts prevailing in definite areas or branches of industry. If it is customary to have lunch between noon and one o'clock, an individual worker who prefers to have it between two and three p.m. has little chance of having his wishes satisfied. However, the social pressure to which this solitary individual is subject in this case is not exercised by the employer, but by his fellow employees. Employers, in their search for suitable workers, are forced to accommodate themselves even to serious and costly inconveniences if they cannot find those needed on other terms. In many countries, some of them stigmatized as socially backward by the champions of anti-capitalism, employers must yield to various wishes of workers motivated by considerations of religious ritual or caste and status. They must arrange hours of work, holidays, and many technical problems according to such opinions, however burdensome such an adjustment may be. Whenever an employer asks for special performances which appear irksome or repulsive to the employees, he must pay extra for the excess of disutility the worker must expend. The terms of the labor contract refer to all working conditions, not merely to the height of wage rates. Teamwork in factories and the interdependence of various enterprises make it impossible to deviate from the arrangements customary in the country or in the branch concerned, and thus result in a unification and standardization of these arrangements. But this fact neither weakens nor eliminates the employee's contribution in their setting up. For the individual workers, they are, of course, an unalterable datum, as the railroad's timetable is for the individual traveler. But nobody would contend that in determining the timetable, the company does not bother about the wishes of the potential customers. Its intention is precisely to serve as many of them as possible. 
The interpretation of the evolution of modern industrialism has been utterly vitiated by the anti-capitalistic bias of governments and the masses, and the allegedly pro-labor writers and historians. The rise in real wage rates, the shortening of hours of work, the elimination of child labor, and the restriction of the labor of married women, it is asserted, were the result of the interference of governments and labor unions, and the pressure of public opinion aroused by humanitarian authors. But for this interference and pressure, the entrepreneurs and capitalists would have retained for themselves all the advantages derived from the increase in capital investment and the consequent improvement in technological methods. The rise in the wage earners' standard of living was thus brought about at the expense of the unearned income of capitalists, entrepreneurs, and landowners. It is highly desirable to continue these policies, benefiting the many at the sole expense of a few selfish exploiters, and to reduce more and more the unfair take of the propertied classes. The incorrectness of this interpretation is obvious. All measures restricting the supply of labor directly or indirectly burden the capitalists as far as they increase the marginal productivity of labor and reduce the marginal productivity of the material factors of production. As they restrict the supply of labor without reducing the supply of capital, they increase the portion allotted to the wage earners out of the total net produce of the production effort. But this total net produce will drop too, and it depends on the specific data of each case whether the relatively greater quota of a smaller cake will be greater or smaller than the relatively smaller quota of a bigger cake. The rate of interest and profits are not directly affected by the shortening of the total supply of labor. The prices of material factors of production drop, and wage rates per unit of the individual worker's performance, not necessarily also per capita of the workers employed, rise. The prices of the products rise, too. Whether all these changes result in an improvement or in a deterioration of the average wage earner's income is, as has been said, a question of fact in each instance. But our assumption that such measures do not affect the supply of material factors of production is impermissible. The shortening of the hours of work, the restriction of night work, and of the employment of certain classes of people impair the utilization of a part of the equipment available, and are tantamount to a drop in the supply of capital. The resulting intensification of the scarcity of capital goods may entirely undo the potential rise in the marginal productivity of labor as against the marginal productivity of capital goods. If, concomitantly with the compulsory shortening of the hours of work, the authorities or the unions forbid any corresponding reduction in wage rates which the state of the market would require, or if previously prevailing institutions prevent such a reduction, the effects appear which every attempt to keep wage rates at a height above the potential market rate brings about, institutional unemployment.
The history of capitalism as it has operated in the last two hundred years in the realm of Western civilization is the record of a steady rise in the wage earner's standard of living. The inherent mark of capitalism is that it is mass production for mass consumption directed by the most energetic and far-sighted individuals, unflaggingly aiming at improvement. Its driving force is the profit motive, the instrumentality of which forces the businessman constantly to provide the consumers with more, better, and cheaper amenities. An excess of profits over losses can appear only in a progressing economy, and only to the extent to which the masses' standard of living improves. Thus capitalism is the system under which the keenest and most agile minds are driven to promote to the best of their abilities the welfare of the laggard many. In the field of historical experience it is impossible to resort to measurement. As money is no yardstick of value and want satisfaction, it cannot be applied for comparing the standard of living of people in various periods of time. However, all historians whose judgment is not muddled by romantic prepossessions agree that the evolution of capitalism has multiplied capital equipment on a scale which far exceeded the synchronous increase in population figures. Capital equipment both per capita of the total population and per capita of those able to work is immensely larger today than fifty, a hundred, or two hundred years ago. Concomitantly, there has been a tremendous increase in the quota which the wage earners receive out of the total amount of commodities produced, an amount which in itself is much bigger than in the past. The ensuing rise in the masses' standard of living is miraculous when compared with the conditions of ages gone by. In those merry old days, even the wealthiest people led an existence which must be called straitened when compared with the average standard of the American or Australian worker of our age. Capitalism, says Marx, unthinkingly repeating the fables of the eulogists of the Middle Ages, has an inevitable tendency to impoverish the workers more and more. The truth is that capitalism has poured a horn of plenty upon the masses of wage earners, who frequently did all they could to sabotage the adoption of those innovations which render their life more agreeable. How uneasy an American worker would be if he were forced to live in the manner of a medieval lord and to miss the plumbing facilities and the other gadgets he simply takes for granted. The improvement in his material well-being has changed the worker's valuation of leisure. Better supplied with the amenities of life as he is, he sooner reaches the point at which he looks upon any further increment in the disutility of labor as an evil, which is no longer outweighed by the expected further increment in labor's immediate gratification. He is eager to shorten the hours of daily work, and to spare his wife and children the toil and trouble of gainful employment. It is not labor legislation and labor union pressure that have shortened hours of work and withdrawn married women and children from the factories, 
It is capitalism which has made the wage earner so prosperous that he is able to buy more leisure time for himself and his dependents. The nineteenth century's labor legislation, by and large, achieved nothing more than to provide a legal ratification for changes which the interplay of market factors had brought about previously. As far as it sometimes went ahead of industrial evolution, the quick advance in wealth soon made things right again. As far as the allegedly pro-labor laws decreed measures which were not merely the ratification of changes already effected, or the anticipation of changes to be expected in the immediate future, they hurt the material interests of the workers. The term social gains is utterly misleading. If the law forces workers who would prefer to work 48 hours a week not to give more than 40 hours of work, or if it forces employers to incur certain expenses for the benefit of employees, it does not favor workers at the expense of employers. Whatever the provisions of a social security law may be, their incidence ultimately burdens the employee, not the employer. They affect the amount of take-home wages. If they raise the price the employer has to pay for a unit of performance above the potential market rate, they create institutional unemployment. Social Security does not enjoin upon the employers the obligation to expend more in buying labor. It imposes upon the wage earners a restriction concerning the spending of their total income. It curtails the worker's freedom to arrange his household according to his own decisions. Whether such a system of Social Security is a good or a bad policy is essentially a political problem. One may try to justify it by declaring that the wage earners lack the insight and the moral strength to provide spontaneously for their own future. But then it is not easy to silence the voices of those who ask whether it is not paradoxical to entrust the nation's welfare to the decisions of voters whom the law itself considers incapable of managing their own affairs whether it is not absurd to make those people supreme in the conduct of government who are manifestly in need of a guardian to prevent them from spending their own income foolishly. Is it reasonable to assign to wards the right to elect their guardians? It is no accident that Germany, the country that inaugurated the social security system, was the cradle of both varieties of modern disparagement of democracy the Marxian as well as the non-Marxian. Remarks about the popular interpretation of the Industrial Revolution It is generally asserted that the history of modern industrialism, and especially the history of the British Industrial Revolution, provide an empirical verification of the realistic or institutional doctrine, and utterly explode the abstract dogmatism of the economists. The attribution of the phrase, the Industrial Revolution, to the reigns of the two last Hanoverian Georges, was the outcome of deliberate attempts to melodramatize economic history, in order to fit it into the Procrustean-Marxian schemes. 
the transition from medieval methods of production to those of the free enterprise system was a long process that started centuries before 1760, and even in England was not finished in 1830. Yet it is true that England's industrial development was considerably accelerated in the second half of the 18th century. It is therefore permissible to use the term industrial revolution in the examination of the emotional connotations with which Fabianism, Marxism, the historical school, and institutionalism have loaded it. The economists flatly deny that labor unions and government pro-labor legislation can and did lastingly benefit the whole class of wage earners and raise their standard of living. But the facts, say the anti-economists, have refuted these fallacies. The statesmen and legislators who enacted the factory acts displayed a better insight into reality than the economists, while laissez-faire philosophy, without pity and compassion, taught that the sufferings of the toiling masses are unavoidable, the common sense of laymen succeeded in quelling the worst excesses of profit-seeking business. The improvement in the conditions of the workers is entirely an achievement of governments and labor unions. Such are the ideas permeating most of the historical studies dealing with the evolution of modern industrialism. The authors begin by sketching an idyllic image of conditions as they prevailed on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. At that time, they tell us, things were, by and large, satisfactory. The peasants were happy. So also were the industrial workers under the domestic system. They worked in their own cottages and enjoyed a certain economic independence, since they owned a garden plot and their tools. But then the Industrial Revolution fell like a war or a plague on these people. The factory system reduced the free worker to virtual slavery. It lowered his standard of living to the level of bare subsistence. In cramming women and children into the mills, it destroyed family life and sapped the very foundations of society, morality, and public health. A small minority of ruthless exploiters had cleverly succeeded in imposing their yoke upon the immense majority. The truth is that economic conditions were highly unsatisfactory on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. The traditional social system was not elastic enough to provide for the needs of a rapidly increasing population. Neither farming nor the guilds had any use for the additional hands. Business was imbued with the inherited spirit of privilege and exclusive monopoly. Its institutional foundations were licenses and the grant of a patent of monopoly. Its philosophy was restriction and the prohibition of competition, both domestic and foreign. The number of people for whom there was no room left in the rigid system of paternalism and government tutelage of business grew rapidly. They were virtually outcasts. The apathetic majority of these wretched people lived from the crumbs that fell from the tables of the established castes. In the harvest season they earned a trifle by occasional help on farms. For the rest, they depended upon private charity and communal poor relief. 
thousands of the most vigorous youths of these strata were pressed into the service of the royal army and navy. Many of them were killed or maimed in action. Many more perished ingloriously from the hardships of the barbarous discipline, from tropical diseases, or from syphilis. Other thousands, the boldest and most ruthless of their class, infested the country as vagabonds, beggars, tramps, robbers, and prostitutes. The authorities did not know of any means to cope with these individuals other than the poorhouse and the workhouse. The support the government gave to the popular resentment against the introduction of new inventions and labor-saving devices made things quite hopeless. The factory system developed in a continuous struggle against innumerable obstacles. It had to fight popular prejudice, old established customs, legally binding rules and regulations, the animosity of the authorities, the vested interests of privileged groups, the envy of the guilds. The capital equipment of the individual firms was insufficient, the provision of credit extremely difficult and costly. Technological and commercial experience was lacking. Most factory owners failed. Comparatively few succeeded. Profits were sometimes considerable, but so were losses. It took many decades until the common practice of reinvesting the greater part of profits earned accumulated adequate capital for the conduct of affairs on a broader scale. That the factories could thrive in spite of all these hindrances was due to two reasons. First, there were the teachings of the new social philosophy expounded by the economists. They demolished the prestige of mercantilism, paternalism, and restrictionism. They exploded the superstitious belief that labor-saving devices and processes cause unemployment and reduce all people to poverty and decay. The laissez-faire economists were the pioneers of the unprecedented technological achievements of the last two hundred years. Then there was another factor that weakened the opposition to innovations. The factories freed the authorities and the ruling landed aristocracy from an embarrassing problem that had grown too large for them. They provided sustenance for the masses of paupers, they emptied the poorhouses, the workhouses, and the prisons. They converted starving beggars into self-supporting breadwinners. The factory owners did not have the power to compel anybody to take a factory job. They could only hire people who were ready to work for the wages offered to them. Low as these wage rates were, they were nonetheless much more than these paupers could earn in any other field open to them. It is a distortion of facts to say that the factories carried off the housewives from the nurseries and the kitchens, and the children from their play. These women had nothing to cook with and to feed their children. These children were destitute and starving. Their only refuge was the factory. It saved them, in the strict sense of the term, from death by starvation. It is deplorable that such conditions existed. But if one wants to blame those responsible, one must not blame the factory owners, who, driven by selfishness, of course, and not by altruism, did all they could to eradicate the evils. What had caused these evils was the economic order of the pre-capitalistic era, 
the order of the good old days. In the first decades of the Industrial Revolution, the standard of living of the factory workers was shockingly bad when compared with the contemporary conditions of the upper classes and with the present conditions of the industrial masses. Hours of work were long, the sanitary conditions in the workshops deplorable. The individual's capacity to work was used up rapidly. But the fact remains that for the surplus population which the enclosure movement had reduced to dire wretchedness, and for which there was literally no room left in the frame of the prevailing system of production, work in the factories was salvation. These people thronged into the plants for no reason other than the urge to improve their standard of living. The laissez-faire ideology and its offshoot, the Industrial Revolution, blasted the ideological and institutional barriers to progress and welfare. They demolished the social order in which a constantly increasing number of people were doomed to abject need and destitution. The processing trades of earlier ages had almost exclusively catered to the wants of the well-to-do. Their expansion was limited by the amount of luxuries the wealthier strata of the population could afford. Those not engaged in the production of primary commodities could earn a living only as far as the upper classes were disposed to utilize their skill and services. But now a different principle came into operation. The factory system inaugurated a new mode of marketing as well as of production, Its characteristic feature was that the manufacturers were not designed for the consumption of a few well-to-do only, but for the consumption of those who had hitherto played but a negligible role as consumers. Cheap things for the many was the objective of the factory system. The classical factory of the early days of the Industrial Revolution was the cotton mill, Now the cotton goods, it turned out, were not something the rich were asking for. These wealthy people clung to silk, linen, and cambric. Whenever the factory, with its methods of mass production by means of power-driven machines, invaded a new branch of production, it started with the production of cheap goods for the broad masses. The factories turned to the production of more refined, and therefore more expensive goods, only at a later stage, when the unprecedented improvement in the masses' standard of living, which they caused, made it profitable to apply the methods of mass production also to these better articles. Thus, for instance, the factory-made shoe was for many years bought only by the proletarians, while the wealthier consumers continued to patronize the custom shoemakers. The much-talked-about sweatshops did not produce clothes for the rich, but for people in modest circumstances. The fashionable ladies and gentlemen preferred, and still do prefer, custom-made frocks and suits. The outstanding fact about the Industrial Revolution is that it opened an age of mass production for the needs of the masses. The wage earners are no longer people toiling merely for other people's well-being. They themselves are the main consumers of the products the factories turn out. Big business depends upon mass consumption. 
There is in present-day America not a single branch of big business that would not cater to the needs of the masses. The very principle of capitalist entrepreneurship is to provide for the common man. In his capacity as consumer, the common man is the sovereign, whose buying or abstention from buying decides the fate of entrepreneurial activities. There is in the market economy no other means of acquiring and preserving wealth than by supplying the masses in the best and cheapest way with all the goods they ask for. Blinded by their prejudices, many historians and writers have entirely failed to recognize this fundamental fact. As they see it, wage earners toil for the benefit of other people. They never raise the question who these other people are. Mr. and Mrs. Hammond tell us that the workers were happier in 1760 than they were in 1830. This is an arbitrary value judgment. There is no means of comparing and measuring the happiness of different people and of the same people at different times. We may agree, for the sake of argument, that an individual who was born in 1740 was happier in 1760 than in 1830. But let us not forget that in 1770, according to the estimate of Arthur Young, England had eight and a half million inhabitants, while in 1831, according to the census, the figure was sixteen million. This conspicuous increase was mainly conditioned by the Industrial Revolution. With regard to these additional Englishmen, the assertion of the eminent historians can only be approved by those who endorse the melancholy verses of Sophocles. Not to be born is, beyond all question, the best. But when a man has once seen the light of day, this is next best that speedily he should return to that place whence he came. The early industrialists were, for the most part, men who had their origin in the same social strata from which their workers came. They lived very modestly, spent only a fraction of their earnings for their households, and put the rest back into the business. But as the entrepreneurs grew richer, the sons of successful businessmen began to intrude into the circles of the ruling class. The high-born gentlemen envied the wealth of the parvenus, and resented their sympathies with the reform movement. They hit back by investigating the material and moral conditions of the factory hands, and enacting factory legislation. The history of capitalism in Great Britain, as well as in all other capitalist countries, is a record of an unceasing tendency toward the improvement in the wage earner's standard of living. This evolution coincided with the development of pro-labor legislation and the spread of labor unionism on the one hand, and with the increase in the marginal productivity of labor on the other hand. The economists assert that the improvement in the workers' material conditions is due to the increase in the per capita quota of capital invested, and the technological achievements which the employment of this additional capital brought about. As far as labor legislation and union pressure did not exceed the limits of what the workers would have got without them as a necessary consequence of the acceleration of capital accumulation as compared with population, they were superfluous. 
as far as they exceeded these limits, they were harmful to the interests of the masses. They delayed the accumulation of capital, thus slowing down the tendency toward a rise in the marginal productivity of labor and in wage rates. They conferred privileges on some groups of wage earners at the expense of other groups. They created mass unemployment and decreased the amount of products available for the workers in their capacity as consumers. The apologists of government interference with business and of labor unionism ascribe all the improvements in the conditions of the workers to the actions of governments and unions. Except for them, they contend, the workers' standard of living would be no higher today than it was in the early years of the factory system. It is obvious that this controversy cannot be settled by appeal to historical experience. With regard to the establishment of the facts, there is no disagreement between the two groups. Their antagonism concerns the interpretation of events, and this interpretation must be guided by the theory chosen. The epistemological and logical considerations which determine the correctness or incorrectness of a theory are logically and temporally antecedent to the elucidation of the historical problem involved. The historical facts, as such, neither prove nor disprove any theory. They need to be interpreted in the light of theoretical insight. Most of the authors who wrote the history of the conditions of labor under capitalism were ignorant of economics, and boasted of this ignorance. However, this contempt for sound economic reasoning did not mean that they approached the topic of their studies without prepossession and without bias in favor of any theory. They were guided by the popular fallacies concerning governmental omnipotence and the alleged blessings of labor unionism. It is beyond question that the Webbs, as well as Luyo Brentano and a host of minor authors, were at the very start of their studies imbued with a fanatical dislike of the market economy and an enthusiastic endorsement of the doctrines of socialism and interventionism. They were certainly honest and sincere in their convictions and tried to do their best. Their candor and probity exonerates them as individuals it does not exonerate them as historians. However pure the intentions of a historian may be, there is no excuse for his recourse to fallacious doctrines. The first duty of a historian is to examine with the utmost care all the doctrines to which he resorts in dealing with the subject matter of his work. If he neglects to do this, and naively espouses the garbled and confused ideas of popular opinion, he is not a historian, but an apologist and propagandist. The antagonism between the two opposite points of view is not merely a historical problem. It refers no less to the most burning problems of the present day. It is the matter of controversy in what is called in present-day America the problem of industrial relations. Let us stress one aspect of this matter only. Vast areas, Eastern Asia, the East Indies, Southern and Southeastern Europe, Latin America, are only superficially affected by modern capitalism. 
Conditions in these countries, by and large, do not differ from those of England on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. There are millions and millions of people for whom there is no secure place left in the traditional economic setting. The fate of these wretched masses can be improved only by industrialization. What they need most is entrepreneurs and capitalists. As their own foolish policies have deprived these nations of the further enjoyment of the assistance imported foreign capital hitherto gave them, they must embark upon domestic capital accumulation. They must go through all the stages through which the evolution of Western industrialism had to pass. They must start with comparatively low wage rates and long hours of work. But, deluded by the doctrines prevailing in present-day Western Europe and North America, their statesmen think that they can proceed in a different way. They encourage labor union pressure and alleged pro-labor legislation. Their interventionist radicalism nips in the bud all attempts to create domestic industries. These men do not comprehend that industrialization cannot begin with the adoption of the precepts of the International Labor Office and the principles of the American Congress of Industrial Organizations. Their stubborn dogmatism spells the doom of the Indian and Chinese coolies, the Mexican peons, and millions of other peoples, desperately struggling on the verge of starvation. 8. Wage Rates as Affected by the Vicissitudes of the Market Labor is a factor of production. The price which the seller of labor can obtain on the market depends on the data of the market. The quantity and quality of labor which an individual is fitted to deliver is determined by his innate and acquired characteristics. The innate abilities cannot be altered by any purposeful conduct. They are the individual's heritage, with which his ancestors have endowed him on the day of his birth. He can bestow care upon these gifts and cultivate his talents. He can keep them from prematurely withering away, but he can never cross the boundaries which nature has drawn to his forces and abilities. He can display more or less skill in his endeavors to sell his capacity to work at the highest price which is obtainable on the market under prevailing conditions, but he cannot change his nature in order to adjust it better to the state of the market data. It is good luck for him if market conditions are such that a kind of labor which he is able to perform is lavishly remunerated. It is chance, not personal merit, if his innate talents are highly appreciated by his fellow men. Miss Greta Garbo, if she had lived a hundred years earlier, would probably have earned much less than she did in this age of moving pictures. As far as her innate talents are concerned, she is in a position similar to that of a farmer, whose farm can be sold at a high price because the expansion of a neighboring city converted it into urban soil. Within the rigid limits drawn by his innate abilities, a man's capacity to work can be perfected by training for the accomplishment of definite tasks. The individual or his parents incurs expenses for a training the fruit of which consists in the acquisition of the ability to perform certain kinds of work. 
Such schooling and training intensify a man's one-sidedness. They make him a specialist. Every special training enhances the specific character of a man's capacity to work. The toil and trouble, the disutility of the efforts to which an individual must submit in order to acquire these special abilities, the loss of potential earnings during the training period and the money expenditure required are laid out in the expectation that the later increment in earnings will compensate for them. These expenses are an investment, and as such, speculative. It depends on the future state of the market whether or not they will pay. In training himself, the worker becomes a speculator and entrepreneur. The future state of the market will determine whether profit or loss results from his investment. Thus the wage earner has vested interests in a twofold sense, as a man with definite innate qualities and as a man who has acquired definite special skills. The wage earner sells his labor on the market at the price which the market allows for it today. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, the sum of the prices which the entrepreneur must expend for all the complementary factors of production together must equal, due consideration being made for time preference, the price of the product. In the changing economy, changes in the market structure may bring about differences between these two magnitudes. The ensuing profits and losses do not affect the wage earner. Their incidence falls upon the employer alone. The uncertainty of the future affects the employee only as far as the following items are concerned. 1. The expenses incurred in time, disutility, and money for training. 2. The expenses incurred in moving to a definite place of work. 3. In case of a labor contract stipulated for a definite period of time, changes in the price of the specific type of labor occurring in the meantime, and changes in the employer's solvency. 9. The Labor Market Wages are the prices paid for the factor of production, human labor. As is the case with all the other prices of complementary factors of production, their height is ultimately determined by the prices of the products as they are expected at the instant the labor is sold and bought. It does not matter whether he who performs the labor sells his services to an employer who combines them with the material factors of production and with the services of other people, or whether he himself embarks upon his own account and peril upon these acts of combination. The final price of labor of the same quality is, at any rate, the same in the whole market system. Wage rates are always equal to the price of the full produce of labor. The popular slogan, the worker's right to the full produce of labor, was an absurd formulation of the claim that the consumer's goods should be distributed exclusively among the workers, and nothing should be left to the entrepreneurs and the owners of the material factors of production. From no point of view whatever can artifacts be considered as the products of mere labor. They are the yield of a purposive combination of labor and of material factors of production. 
In the changing economy, there prevails a tendency for market wage rates to adjust themselves precisely to the state of the final wage rates. This adjustment is a time-absorbing process. The length of the period of adjustment depends on the time required for the training for new jobs and for the removal of workers to new places of residence. It depends furthermore on subjective factors, as, for instance, the workers' familiarity with the conditions and prospects of the labor market. The adjustment is a speculative venture as far as the training for new jobs and the change of residence involve costs which are expended only if one believes that the future state of the labor market will make them appear profitable. With regard to all these things, there is nothing that is peculiar to labor, wages, and the labor market. What gives a particular feature to the labor market is that the worker is not merely the purveyor of the factor of production, labor, but also a human being, and that it is impossible to sever the man from his performance. Reference to this fact has been mostly used for extravagant utterances and for a vain critique of the economic teachings concerning wage rates. However, these absurdities must not prevent economics from paying adequate attention to this primordial fact. For the worker, it is a matter of consequence what kind of labor he performs among the various kinds he is able to perform where he performs it, and under what particular conditions and circumstances. An unaffected observer may consider empty, or even ridiculous, prejudices, the ideas and feelings that actuate a worker to prefer certain jobs, certain places of work, and certain conditions of labor to others. However, such academic judgments of unaffected censors are of no avail, for an economic treatment of the problems involved, there is nothing especially remarkable in the fact that the worker looks upon his toil and trouble not only from the point of view of the disutility of labor and its immediate gratification, but also takes into account whether the special conditions and circumstances of its performance interfere with his enjoyment of life, and to what extent. The fact that a worker is ready to forego the chance to increase his money earnings by migrating to a place he considers less desirable and prefers to remain in his native place or country is not more remarkable than the fact that a wealthy gentleman of no occupation prefers the more expensive life in the capital to the cheaper life in a small town. The worker and the consumer are the same person, it is merely economic reasoning that integrates the social functions and splits up this unity into two schemes. Men cannot sever their decisions concerning the utilization of their working power from those concerning the enjoyment of their earnings. Descent, language, education, religion, mentality, family bonds, and social environment— tie the worker in such a way that he does not choose the place and the branch of his work merely with regard to the height of wage rates. We may call that height of wage rates for definite types of labor which would prevail on the market if the workers did not discriminate between various places, and, wage rates being equal, did not prefer one working place to another, standard wage rates, S., 
If, however, the wage earners, out of the above-mentioned considerations, value differently work in different places, the height of market wage rates, M, can permanently deviate from the standard rates. We may call the maximum difference between the market rate and the standard rate, which does not yet result in the migration of workers from the places of lower market wage rates to those of higher market wage rates, the attachment component, A. The attachment component of a definite geographical place or area is either positive or negative. We must furthermore take into account that the various places and areas differ with regard to provision with consumers' goods, as far as transportation costs, in the broadest sense of the term, are concerned. These costs are lower in some areas, higher in other areas. Then there are differences with regard to the physical input required for the attainment of the same amount of physical satisfaction, In some places, a man must expend more in order to attain the same degree of want satisfaction, which, apart from the circumstances determining the amount of the attachment component, he could attain elsewhere more cheaply. On the other hand, a man can, in some places, avoid certain expenses without any impairment of his want satisfaction, while renunciation of these expenses would curtail his satisfaction in other places. We may call the expenses which a worker must incur in certain places in order to attain in this sense the same degree of want satisfaction, or which he can spare without curtailing his want satisfaction, the cost component, C. The cost component of a definite geographical place or area is either positive or negative. If we assume that there are no institutional barriers preventing or penalizing the transfer of capital goods, workers, and commodities from one place or area to another, and that the workers are indifferent with regard to their dwelling and working places, there prevails a tendency toward a distribution of population over the Earth's surface in accordance with the physical productivity of the primary natural factors of production and the immobilization of inconvertible factors of production as effected in the past. There is, if we disregard the cost component, a tendency toward an equalization of wage rates for the same type of work all over the Earth. It would be permissible to call an area comparatively overpopulated if, in it, market wage rates plus the positive or negative cost component are lower than the standard rates, and comparatively underpopulated if, in it, market wage rates plus the positive or negative cost component are higher than the standard rates. But it is not expedient to resort to such a definition of the terms involved, It does not help us in explaining the real conditions of the formation of wage rates and the conduct of wage earners. It is more expedient to choose another definition. We may call an area comparatively overpopulated if, in it, market wage rates are lower than the standard rates, plus both the positive or negative attachment component and the positive or negative cost component. That is, where M is less than S plus A plus C. 
Accordingly, an area is to be called comparatively underpopulated in which M is greater than S plus A plus C. In the absence of institutional migration barriers, workers move from the comparatively overpopulated areas to the comparatively underpopulated, until everywhere M equals S plus A plus C. The same is true, mutatis mutandis, for the migration of individuals working on their own account and selling their labor in disposing of its products or in rendering personal services. The concepts of the attachment component and the cost component apply in the same way to shifting from one branch of business or occupation to another. It is hardly necessary to observe that the migrations which these theorems describe come to pass only insofar as there are no institutional barriers to the mobility of capital, labor, and commodities. In this age, aiming at the disintegration of the international division of labor and at each sovereign nation's economic self-sufficiency, the tendencies they describe are operative only within each nation's boundaries. The Work of Animals and of Slaves For man, animals are a material factor of production. It may be that one day a change in moral sentiments will induce people to treat animals more gently. Yet as far as men do not leave the animals alone and let them go their way, they will always deal with them as mere objects of their own acting. Social cooperation can exist only between human beings, because only these are able to attain insight into the meaning and the advantages of the division of labor and of peaceful cooperation. Man subdues the animal and integrates it into his scheme of action as a material thing. In taming, domesticating, and training animals, man often displays appreciation for the creature's psychological peculiarities. He appeals, as it were, to its soul. But even then, the gulf that separates man from animal remains unbridgeable. An animal can never get anything else than satisfaction of its appetites for food and sex and adequate protection against injury resulting from environmental factors. Animals are bestial and inhuman precisely because they are such as the iron law of wages imagined workers to be. As human civilization would never have emerged if men were exclusively dedicated to feeding and mating, so animals can neither consort in social bonds nor participate in human society. People have tried to look upon fellow men as they look upon animals and to deal with them accordingly. They have used whips to compel galley slaves and barge haulers to work like capstan horses. However, experience has shown that these methods of unbridled brutalization render very unsatisfactory results. Even the crudest and dullest people achieve more when working of their own accord than under the fear of the whip. Primitive man makes no distinction between his property in women, children, and slaves on the one hand, and his property in cattle and inanimate things on the other. But as soon as he begins to expect from his slaves services other than such as can also be rendered by draft and pack animals, he is forced to loosen their chains. 
he must try to substitute the incentive of self-interest for the incentive of mere fear. He must try to bind the slave to himself by human feelings. If the slave is no longer prevented from fleeing exclusively by being chained and watched, and no longer forced to work exclusively under the threat of being whipped, the relation between master and slave is transformed into a social nexus. The slave may, especially if the memory of happier days of freedom is still fresh, bemoan his misfortune and hanker after liberation, but he puts up with what seems to be an inevitable state of affairs, and accommodates himself to his fate in such a way as to make it as bearable as possible. The slave becomes intent upon satisfying his master through application and carrying out the tasks entrusted to him. The master becomes intent upon rousing the slave's zeal and loyalty through reasonable treatment. There develop between lord and drudge familiar relations, which can properly be called friendship. Perhaps the eulogists of slavery were not entirely wrong when they asserted that many slaves were satisfied with their station and did not aim at changing it. There are, perhaps, individuals, groups of individuals, and even whole peoples and races who enjoy the safety and security provided by bondage who, insensible of humiliation and mortification, are glad to pay with a moderate amount of labor for the privilege of sharing in the amenities of a well-to-do household, and in whose eyes subjection to the whims and bad tempers of a master is only a minor evil, or no evil at all. Of course, the conditions under which the servile workers toiled in big farms and plantations, in mines, in workshops, and galleys, were very different from the idyllically described gay life of domestic valets, chambermaids, cooks, and nurses, and from the conditions of unfree laborers, dairymaids, herdsmen, and shepherds of small farming. No apologist of slavery was bold enough to glorify the lot of the Roman agricultural slaves, chained and crammed together in the ergastulum, or of the Negroes of the American cotton and sugar plantations. Margaret Mitchell, who in her popular novel Gone with the Wind, eulogizes the South slavery system, is cautious enough not to enter into particulars concerning the plantation hands, and prefers to dwell upon the conditions of domestic servants, who, even in her account, appear as an aristocracy of their caste. The abolition of slavery and serfdom is to be attributed neither to the teachings of theologians and moralists, nor to weakness or generosity on the part of the masters. There were among the teachers of religion and ethics as many eloquent defenders of bondage as opponents. Servile labor disappeared because it could not stand the competition of free labor. Its unprofitability sealed its doom in the market economy. The price paid for the purchase of a slave is determined by the net yield expected from his employment, both as a worker and as a progenitor of other slaves, just as the price paid for a cow is determined by the net yield expected from its utilization. The owner of a slave does not pocket a specific revenue. 
For him there is no exploitation boon derived from the fact that the slave's work is not remunerated, and that the potential market price of the services he renders is possibly greater than the cost of feeding, sheltering, and guarding him. He who buys a slave must, in the price paid, make good for these economies as far as they may be expected. He pays for them in full, due allowance being made for time preference. Whether the proprietor employs the slave in his own household or enterprise, or rents his services to other people, he does not enjoy any specific advantage from the existence of the institution of slavery. The specific boon goes totally to the slave hunter, that is, the man who deprives free men of their liberty and transforms them into slaves. But of course, the profitability of the slave hunter's business depends upon the height of the prices buyers are ready to pay for the acquisition of slaves. If these prices drop below the operation and transportation costs incurred in the business of slave hunting, business no longer pays and must be discontinued. Now at no time and at no place was it possible for enterprises employing servile labor to compete on the market with enterprises employing free labor. Servile labor could always be utilized only where it did not have to meet the competition of free labor. If one treats men like cattle, one cannot squeeze out of them more than cattle-like performances. But it then becomes significant that man is physically weaker than oxen and horses, and that feeding and guarding a slave is, in proportion to the performance to be reaped, more expensive than feeding and guarding cattle. When treated as a chattel, man renders a smaller yield per unit of cost expended for current sustenance and guarding than domestic animals. If one asks from an unfree laborer human performances, one must provide him with specifically human inducements. If the employer aims at obtaining products which, in quality and quantity, excel those whose production can be extorted by the whip, he must interest the toiler in the yield of his contribution. Instead of punishing laziness and sloth, he must reward diligence, skill, and eagerness. But whatever he may try in this respect, he will never obtain from a bonded worker, that is, a worker who does not reap the full market price of his contribution, a performance equal to that rendered by a free man, that is, a man hired on the unhampered labor market. The upper limit beyond which it is impossible to lift the quality and quantity of the products and services rendered by slave and serf labor is far below the standards of free labor. In the production of articles of superior quality, an enterprise employing the apparently cheap labor of unfree workers can never stand the competition of enterprises employing free labor. It is this fact that has made all systems of compulsory labor disappear. Social institutions once made whole areas or branches of production reservations exclusively kept for the occupation of unfree labor and sheltered against any competition on the part of entrepreneurs employing free men. 
Slavery and serfdom thus became essential features of a rigid caste system that could be neither removed nor modified by the actions of individuals. Wherever conditions were different, the slave owners themselves resorted to measures which were bound to abolish, step by step, the whole system of unfree labor. It was not humanitarian feelings and clemency that induced the callous and pitiless slaveholders of ancient Rome to loosen the fetters of their slaves, but the urge to derive the best possible gain from their property. They abandoned the system of centralized big-scale management of their vast land holdings, the latifundia, and transformed the slaves into virtual tenants, cultivating their tenements on their own account, and owing to the landlord merely either a lease or a share of the yield. In the processing trades and in commerce, the slaves became entrepreneurs, and their funds, the peculium, their legal quasi-property. Slaves were manumitted in large numbers because the freedman rendered to the former owner, the patronus, services more valuable than those to be expected from a slave. For the manumission was not an act of grace and a gratuitous gift on the part of the owner. It was a credit operation, a purchase of freedom on the installment plan, as it were. The freedman was bound to render the former owner for many years, or even for a lifetime, definite payments and services. The patronus, moreover, had special rights of inheritance to the estate of the deceased freedman. With the disappearance of the plants and farms employing unfree laborers, bondage ceased to be a system of production, and became a political privilege of an aristocratic caste. The overlords were entitled to definite tributes in kind or money, and to definite services on the part of their subordinates. Moreover, their serfs' children were obliged to serve them as servants or military retinue for a definite length of time. But the underprivileged peasants and artisans operated their farms and shops on their own account and peril, only when their processes of production were accomplished did the Lord step in and claim a part of the proceeds. Later, from the sixteenth century on, people again began to employ unfree workers in agricultural and even sometimes in industrial big-scale production. In the American colonies, Negro slavery became the standard method of the plantations. In Eastern Europe, in northeastern Germany, in Bohemia and its annexes, Moravia and Silesia, in Poland, in the Baltic countries, in Russia, and also in Hungary and its annexes, big-scale farming was built upon the unlimited statute labor of serfs. Both these systems of unfree labor were sheltered by political institutions against the competition of enterprises employing free workers. In the plantation colonies, the high costs of immigration and the lack of sufficient legal and judicial protection of the individual against the arbitrariness of government officers and the planter aristocracy prevented the emergence of a sufficient supply of free labor and the development of a class of independent farmers. In Eastern Europe, the caste system made it impossible for outsiders to enter the field of agricultural production. Big-scale farming was reserved to members of the nobility. Small holdings were reserved to unfree bondmen. 
yet the fact that the enterprises employing unfree labor would not be able to stand the competition of enterprises employing free labor was not contested by anybody. On this point, the 18th and early 19th century authors on agricultural management were no less unanimous than the writers of ancient Rome on farm problems. But the abolition of slavery and serfdom could not be effected by the free play of the market system, as political institutions had withdrawn the estates of the nobility and the plantations from the supremacy of the market. Slavery and serfdom were abolished by political action dictated by the spirit of the much-abused laissez-faire, laissez-passer ideology. Today, mankind is again faced with endeavors to substitute compulsory labor for the labor of the free man, selling his capacity to work as a commodity on the market. Of course, people believe that there is an essential difference between the tasks incumbent upon the comrades of the socialist commonwealth and those incumbent upon slaves or serfs. The slaves and serfs, they say, toiled for the benefit of an exploiting lord. But in a socialist system, the produce of labor goes to society, of which the toiler himself is a part. Here the worker works for himself, as it were. What this reasoning overlooks is that the identification of the individual comrades and the totality of all comrades with the collective entity pocketing the produce of all work is merely fictitious. Whether the ends which the community's officeholders are aiming at agree or disagree with the wishes and desires of the various comrades is of minor importance. The main thing is that the individual's contribution to the collective entity's wealth is not requited in the shape of wages determined by the market. A socialist commonwealth lacks any method of economic calculation. It cannot determine separately what quotas of the total amount of goods produced are to be assigned to the various complementary factors of production. As it cannot ascertain the magnitude of the contribution society owes to the various individuals' efforts, it cannot remunerate the workers according to the value of their performance. In order to distinguish free labor from compulsory labor, no metaphysical subtleties concerning the essence of freedom and compulsion are required. We may call free labor that kind of extroversive, not immediately gratifying labor that a man performs either for the direct satisfaction of his own wants or for their indirect satisfaction to be reaped by expending the price earned by its sale on the market. Compulsory labor is labor performed under the pressure of other incentives. If somebody were to take umbrage at this terminology because the employment of words like freedom and compulsion may arouse an association of ideas injurious to a dispassionate treatment of the problems involved, one could as well choose other terms. We may substitute the expression F labor for the term free labor and the term C labor for the term compulsory labor. The crucial problem cannot be affected by the choice of the terms. What alone matters is this. 
What kind of inducement can spur a man to submit to the disutility of labor if his own want satisfaction neither directly nor to any appreciable extent indirectly depends on the quantity and quality of his performance? Let us assume for the sake of argument that many workers, perhaps even most of them, will of their own accord dutifully take pains for the best possible fulfillment of the tasks assigned to them by their superiors. We may disregard the fact that the determination of the task to be imposed upon the various individuals would confront a socialist commonwealth with insoluble problems. But how to deal with those sluggish and careless in the discharge of the imposed duties? There is no other way left than to punish them. In their superiors must be vested the authority to establish the offense, to give judgment on its subjective reasons, and to mete out punishment accordingly. A hegemonic bond is substituted for the contractual bond the worker becomes subject to the discretionary power of his superiors. He is personally subordinate to his chief's disciplinary power. In the market economy, the worker sells his services as other people sell their commodities. The employer is not the employee's lord. He is simply the buyer of services which he must purchase at their market price. Of course, like every other buyer, an employer, too, can take liberties. But if he resorts to arbitrariness in hiring or discharging workers, he must foot the bill. An employer or an employee entrusted with the management of a department of an enterprise is free to discriminate in hiring workers, to fire them arbitrarily, or to cut down their wages below the market rate. But, in indulging in such arbitrary acts, he jeopardizes the profitability of his enterprise or his department, and thereby impairs his own income and his position in the economic system. In the market economy, such whims bring their own punishment. The only real and effective protection of the wage earner in the market economy is provided by the play of the factors determining the formation of prices. The market makes the worker independent of arbitrary discretion on the part of the employer and his aides. The workers are subject only to the supremacy of the consumers, as their employers are too. In determining, by buying or abstention from buying, the prices of products and the employment of factors of production, consumers assign to each kind of labor its market price. What makes the worker a free man is precisely the fact that the employer, under the pressure of the market's price structure, considers labor a commodity, an instrument of earning profits. The employee is, in the eyes of the employer, merely a man who, for a consideration in money, helps him to make money. The employer pays for services rendered, and the employee performs in order to earn wages. There is in this relation between employer and employee no question of favor or disfavor. The hired man does not owe the employer gratitude. He owes him a definite quantity of work of a definite kind and quality. That is why in the market economy the employer can do without the power to punish the employee. 
All non-market systems of production must give to those in control the power to spur on the slow worker to more zeal and application. As imprisonment withdraws the worker from his job, or at least reduces considerably the value of his contribution, corporal punishment has always been the classical means of keeping slaves and serfs to their work. With the abolition of unfree labor, one could dispense with the whip as a stimulus. Flogging was the symbol of bond labor. Members of a market society consider corporal punishment inhuman and humiliating, to such a degree that it has been abolished also in the schools, in the penal code, and in military discipline. He who believes that a socialist commonwealth could do without compulsion and coercion against slothful workers because everyone will spontaneously do his duty, falls prey to the same illusions implied in the doctrine of anarchy. Chapter 22 The Non-Human Original Factors of Production 1. General Observations Concerning the Theory of Rent In the frame of Ricardian economics, the idea of rent was an attempt at a treatment of those problems which modern economics approaches by means of marginal utility analysis. Ricardo's theory appears rather unsatisfactory when judged from the point of view of present-day insight. There is no doubt that the method of the subjective value theory is far superior. Yet the renown of the rent theory is well-deserved. The care bestowed upon its initiation and perfection brought forth fine fruits. There is no reason for the history of economic thought to feel ashamed of the rent theory. The fact that land of different quality and fertility, that is, yielding different returns per unit of input, is valued differently, does not pose any special problem to modern economics. As far as Ricardo's theory refers to the graduation in the valuation and appraisement of pieces of land, it is completely comprehended in the modern theory of the prices of factors of production. It is not the content of the rent theory that is objectionable, but the exceptional position assigned to it in the complex of the economic system. Differential rent is a general phenomenon, and is not limited to the determination of the prices of land. The sophisticated distinction between rents and quasi-rents is spurious. Land and the services it renders are dealt with in the same way as other factors of production and their services. Control of a better tool yields rent when compared with the returns of less suitable tools, which must be utilized on account of the insufficient supply of more suitable ones. The abler and more zealous worker earns a rent when compared with the wages earned by his less skillful and less industrious competitors. The problems which the rent concept was designed to solve were for the most part generated by the employment of inappropriate terms. The general notions as used in everyday language and mundane thought were not formed with regard to the requirements of praxeological and economic investigation. The early economists were mistaken in adopting them without scruple and hesitation. 
only if one clings naively to general terms such as land or labor is one puzzled by the question why land and labor are differently valued and appraised. He who does not allow himself to be fooled by mere words, but looks at a factor's relevance for the satisfaction of human wants, considers it a matter of course that different services are valued and appraised differently. The modern theory of value and prices is not based on the classification of the factors of production as land, capital, and labor. Its fundamental distinction is between goods of higher and of lower orders, between producers' goods and consumers' goods. When it distinguishes within the class of factors of production the original, nature-given factors from the produced factors of production, the intermediary products, and, furthermore, within the class of original factors, the non-human, external factors, from the human factors, labor, it does not break up the uniformity of its reasoning concerning the determination of the prices of the factors of production. The law controlling the determination of the prices of the factors of production is the same with all classes and specimens of these factors. The fact that different services rendered by such factors are valued, appraised, and dealt with in a different way can only amaze people who fail to notice these differences in serviceableness. He who is blind to the merits of a painting may consider it strange that collectors should pay more for a painting of Velasquez than for a painting of a less gifted artist. For the connoisseur, it is self-evident. It does not astonish the farmer that buyers pay higher prices and tenants higher leases for more fertile land than for less fertile. The only reason why the old economists were puzzled by this fact was that they operated with a general term, land, that neglects differences in productivity. The greatest merit of the Ricardian theory of rent is the cognizance of the fact that the marginal land does not yield any rent. From this knowledge there is but one step to the discovery of the principle of valuational subjectivism. Yet, blinded by the real cost notion, neither the classical economists nor their epigones took this step. While the differential rent idea, by and large, can be adopted by the subjective value theory, the second rent concept derived from Ricardian economics, namely the residual rent concept, must be rejected altogether. This residual claimant idea is based on the notion of real or physical costs that does not make any sense in the frame of the modern explanation of the prices of factors of production. The reason why the price of Burgundy is higher than that of Chianti is not the higher price of the vineyards of Burgundy as against those of Tuscany. The causation is the other way around. Because people are ready to pay higher prices for Burgundy than for Chianti, wine growers are ready to pay higher prices for the vineyards of Burgundy than for those of Tuscany. Profits are not a share left over when all costs of production have been paid. In the evenly rotating economy, such a surplus of the prices of products over and above costs could never appear. 
In the changing economy, differences between the prices of the products and the sum of the prices that the entrepreneur has expended for the purchase of the complementary factors of production, plus interest on the capital invested, can appear in either direction, that is, either as profit or as loss. These differences are caused by changes which arise in the prices of the products in the time interval. He who succeeds better than others in anticipating these changes in time and acts accordingly reaps profits. He who fails in his endeavors to adjust his entrepreneurial ventures to the future state of the market is penalized by losses. The main deficiency of Ricardian economics was that it was a theory of the distribution of a total product of a nation's joint efforts. Like the other champions of classical economics, Ricardo failed to free himself from the mercantilist image of the Volkswirtschaft. In his thought, the problem of the determination of prices was subordinated to the problem of the distribution of wealth. The customary characterization of his economic philosophy as that of the manufacturing middle classes of contemporary England misses the point. These English businessmen of the early 19th century were not interested in the total product of industry and its distribution. They were guided by the urge to make profits and to avoid losses. Classical economics erred when it assigned to land a distinct place in its theoretical scheme. Land is, in the economic sense, a factor of production and the laws determining the formation of the prices of land are the same that determine the formation of the prices of other factors of production. All peculiarities of the economic teachings concerning land refer to some peculiarities of the data involved. 2. The Time Factor in Land Utilization the starting point of the economic teachings concerning land is the distinction between two classes of original factors of production, namely human and non-human factors. As the utilization of the non-human factors is, as a rule, connected with the power to utilize a piece of the earth, we speak of land when referring to them. Legal provisions concerning the separation of the right of hunting, fishing, and extracting mineral deposits from the other rights of the owner of a piece of land are of no interest for catalactics. The term land as used in catalactics includes also expanses of water. In dealing with the economic problems of land, that is, the non-human original factors of production, one must neatly separate the praxeological point of view from the cosmological point of view. It may make good sense for cosmology in its study of cosmic events to speak of permanency and of the conservation of mass and energy, if one compares the orbit within which human action is able to affect the natural environmental conditions of human life with the operation of natural entities, it is permissible to call the natural powers indestructible and permanent, or, more precisely, safe against destruction by human action. 
For the great periods of time to which cosmology refers, soil erosion, in the broadest sense of the term, of such an intensity as can be effected by human interference, is of no importance. Nobody knows today whether or not cosmic changes will, in millions of years, transform deserts and barren soil into land that, from the point of view of our present-day knowledge, will have to be described as extremely fertile, and the most luxuriant tropical gardens into sterile land. Precisely because nobody can anticipate such changes, nor venture to influence the cosmic events which possibly could bring them about, it is supererogatory to speculate about them in dealing with the problems of human action. Thus also the problem of entropy stands outside of the sphere of praxeological meditation. The natural sciences may assert that those powers of the soil that condition its serviceableness for forestry, cattle breeding, agriculture, and water utilization regenerate themselves periodically. It may be true that even human endeavors deliberately directed toward the utmost devastation of the productive capacity of the earth's crust could at best succeed only with regard to small parts of it. But these facts do not strictly count for human action. The periodical regeneration of the soil's productive powers is not a rigid datum that would face man with a uniquely determined situation. It is possible to use the soil in such a way that this regeneration is slowed down and postponed, or the soil's productive power either vanishes altogether for a definite period of time, or can only be restored by means of a considerable input of capital and labor. In dealing with the soil, man has to choose between various methods different from one another with regard to the preservation and regeneration of its productive power. No less than in any other branch of production, the time factor enters into the conduct of hunting, fishing, grazing, cattle breeding, plant growing, lumbering, and water utilization. Here, too, man must choose between satisfaction in nearer and in more remote periods of the future. Here, too, the phenomenon of originary interest, entailed in every human action, plays its paramount role. There are institutional conditions that cause the persons involved to prefer satisfaction in the nearer future, and to disregard entirely or almost entirely satisfaction in the more distant future. If the soil is on the one hand not owned by individual proprietors, and on the other hand all or certain people favored by special privilege or by the actual state of affairs are free to make use of it temporarily for their own benefit, no heed is paid to the future. The same is the case when the proprietor expects that he will be expropriated in a not-too-distant future. In both cases, the actors are exclusively intent upon squeezing out as much as possible for their immediate advantage. They do not concern themselves about the temporally more remote consequences of their methods of exploitation. Tomorrow does not count for them. The history of lumbering, hunting, and fishing provides plenty of illustrative experience, 
but many examples can also be found in other branches of soil utilization. From the point of view of the natural sciences, the maintenance of capital goods and the preservation of the powers of the soil belong to two entirely different categories. The produced factors of production perish sooner or later entirely in the pursuit of production processes, and piecemeal are transformed into consumers' goods, which are eventually consumed. If one does not want to make the results of past saving and capital accumulation disappear, one must, apart from consumers' goods, also produce that amount of capital goods which is needed for the replacement of those worn out. If one were to neglect this, one would finally consume, as it were, the capital goods. One would sacrifice the future to the present. One would live in luxury today and be in want later. But, it is often said, it is different with the powers of land. They cannot be consumed. Such a statement is meaningful, however, only from the point of view of geology. But from the geological point of view, one could or should no less deny that factory equipment or a railroad can be eaten up. The gravel and stones of a railroad substructure, and the iron and steel of the rails, bridges, cars, and engines, do not perish in a cosmic sense. Only from the praxeological point of view is it permissible to speak of the consumption, the eating up, of a tool, a railroad, or a steel mill. In the same economic sense we speak of the consumption of the productive powers of the soil, in forestry, agriculture, and water utilization, these powers are dealt with in the same way as other factors of production. With regard to the powers of the soil, too, the actors must choose between processes of production which render higher output at the expense of productivity in later periods, and processes which do not impair future physical productivity. It is possible to extract so much from the soil that its later utilization will render smaller returns per unit of the quantities of capital and labor employed, or practically no returns at all. It is true that there are physical limits to the devastating powers of man. These limits are sooner reached in lumbering, hunting, and fishing than in tilling the soil. But this fact results only in a quantitative, not in a qualitative, difference between capital decumulation and soil erosion. Ricardo calls the powers of the soil original and indestructible. However, modern economics must stress the point that valuation and appraisement do not differentiate between original and produced factors of production and that the cosmological indestructibility of mass and energy, whatever it may mean, does not enjoin upon land utilization a character radically different from other branches of production. 3. The Submarginal Land The services a definite piece of land can render in a definite period of time are limited. If they were unlimited, men would not consider land a factor of production and an economic good. However, the quantity of soil available is so vast, nature is so prodigal, that land is still abundant. 
Therefore, only the most productive pieces of land are utilized. There is land which people consider, either with regard to its physical productivity or with regard to its location, as too poor to be worth cultivating. Consequently, the marginal soil, that is, the poorest soil cultivated, yields no rent in the Ricardian sense. There are areas in which practically every corner is cultivated or otherwise utilized, but this is the outcome of institutional conditions, barring the inhabitants of these regions from access to more fertile, unused soil. Submarginal land would be considered entirely worthless if one were not to appraise it positively in anticipation of its being utilized in later days. The appraisal of a piece of soil must not be confused with the appraisal of the improvements, that is, the irremovable and inconvertible results of the investment of capital and labor that facilitate its utilization and raise future outputs per unit of current future inputs. The fact that the market economy does not have a more ample supply of agricultural products is caused by the scarcity of capital and labor, not by a scarcity of cultivable land. An increase in the surface of land available would, other things being equal, increase the supply of cereals and meat only if the additional land's fertility exceeded that of the marginal land already previously cultivated. On the other hand, the supply of agricultural products would be increased by any increase in the amount of labor and capital available, provided the consumers do not consider another employment of the additional amount of capital and labor more appropriate to fill their most urgent wants. These observations, of course, refer only to conditions in which there are no institutional barriers to the mobility of capital and labor. The useful mineral substances contained in the soil are limited in quantity. It is true that some of them are the outgrowth of natural processes which are still going on and increasing the existing deposits. However, the slowness and length of these processes makes them insignificant for human action. Man must take into account that the available deposits of these minerals are limited. Every single mine or oil source is exhaustible. Many of them are already exhausted. We may hope that new deposits will be discovered and that technological procedures will be invented which will make it possible to utilize deposits which today cannot be exploited at all or only at unreasonable costs. We may also assume that the further progress of technological knowledge will enable later generations to utilize substances which cannot be utilized today. But all these things do not matter for the present-day conduct of mining and oil drilling. The deposits of mineral substances and their exploitation are not characterized by features which would give a particular mark to human action dealing with them. For catalactics, the distinction between soil used in agriculture and that used in mining is merely a distinction of data. 
Although the available quantities of these mineral substances are limited, and although we may academically concern ourselves with the possibility that they will be entirely exhausted one day, acting men do not consider these deposits rigidly limited. Their activities take into account the fact that definite mines and wells will become exhausted, but they do not pay heed to the fact that, at an unknown later date, all the deposits of certain minerals may come to an end. For to present-day action the supply of these substances appears to be so abundant that one does not venture to exploit all their deposits to the full extent which the state of technological knowledge permits. The mines are utilized only as far as there is no more urgent employment available for the required quantities of capital and labor. There are, therefore, sub-marginal deposits that are not utilized at all. In every mine operated, the extent of the production is determined by the relation between the prices of the products and those of the required non-specific factors of production. 4. THE LAND AS STANDING ROOM The employment of land for the location of human residences, workshops, and means of transportation withdraws pieces of soil from other employments. The particular place which older theories attributed to urban site rent need not here concern us. It is not especially noteworthy that people pay higher prices for land they value more for housing than for land which they value less. It is a matter of fact that for workshops, warehouses, and railroad yards, people prefer locations which reduce costs of transportation, and that they are ready to pay higher prices for such land in accordance with the economies expected. Land is also used for pleasure grounds and gardens, for parks, and for the enjoyment of the grandeur and beauty of nature. With the development of the love of nature, this very characteristic feature of bourgeois mentality, the demand for such enjoyments increased enormously. The soil of the high mountain chains, once merely considered a barren dreariness of rocks and glaciers, is today highly appreciated as the source of the most lofty pleasures. From time immemorial, access to these spaces has been free to everybody. Even if the land is owned by private individuals, the owners, as a rule, have not the right to close it to tourists and mountain climbers or to ask an entrance fee. Whoever has the opportunity to visit these areas has the right to enjoy all their grandeur, and to consider them his own, as it were. The nominal owner does not derive any advantage from the satisfaction his property gives to the visitors. But this does not alter the fact that this land serves human well-being and is appreciated accordingly. The ground is subject to an easement that entitles everybody to pass along and to camp on it. As no other utilization of the area concerned is possible, this servitude completely exhausts all the advantages the proprietor could reap from his ownership. Since the particular services which these rocks and glaciers can render are practically inexhaustible, do not wear out, and do not require any input of capital and labor for their conservation, 
This arrangement does not bring about those consequences which appeared wherever it was applied to lumbering, hunting, and fishing grounds. If, in the neighborhood of these mountain chains, the space available for the construction of shelters, hotels, and means of transportation, for example, rack railroads, is limited, the owners of these scarce pieces of soil can sell or rent them on more propitious terms, and thus divert to themselves a part of the advantages the tourists reap from the free accessibility of the peaks. If this is not the case, the tourists enjoy all these advantages gratuitously. 5. THE PRICES OF LAND In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, buying and selling of the services of definite pieces of land does not differ at all from buying and selling the services of other factors of production. All these factors are appraised according to the services they will render in various periods of the future, due allowance being made for time preference. For the marginal land, and, of course, for the submarginal land, no price is paid at all. Rent-bearing land, that is, land that, compared with the marginal land, bears a higher output per unit of input of capital and labor, is appraised in accordance with the degree of its superiority. Its price is the sum of all its future rents, each of them discounted at the rate of originary interest. There is need to remember again that the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy cannot be carried consistently to its ultimate logical consequences. With regard to the problems of land, one must stress two points. First, that in the frame of this imaginary construction, characterized by the absence of changes in the conduct of affairs, there is no room for the buying and selling of land. Second, that in order to integrate into this construction mining and oil drilling, we must ascribe to the mines and oil wells a permanent character and must disregard the possibility that any of the operated mines and wells could be exhausted, or even undergo a change in the quantity of output or of current input required. In the changing economy, people buying and selling land take due account of expected changes in the market prices for the services rendered by the soil. Of course, they may err in their expectations, but this is another thing. They try to anticipate to the best of their abilities future events that may alter the market data, and they act in accordance with these opinions. If they believe that the annual net yield of the piece of land concerned will rise, the price will be higher than it would have been in the absence of such expectations. This is, for instance, the case with suburban land in the neighborhood of cities growing in population, or with forests and arable land in countries in which pressure groups are likely to succeed in raising, by means of tariffs, the prices of timber and cereals. On the other hand, fears concerning the total or partial confiscation of the net yield of land tend to lower the prices of land. 
In everyday business language, people speak of the capitalization of the rent, and observe that the rate of capitalization is different with different classes of land, and varies even within the same class with different pieces of soil. This terminology is rather inexpedient, as it misrepresents the nature of the process. In the same way in which buyers and sellers of land take into account anticipated future events that will reduce the net return, they deal with taxes. Taxes levied upon land reduce its market price to the extent of the discounted amount of their future burden. The introduction of a new tax of this kind, which is likely not to be abolished, results in an immediate drop in the market price of the pieces of land concerned. This is the phenomenon that the theory of taxation calls amortization of taxes. In many countries, the owners of land, or of certain estates, enjoyed special political-legal privileges, or a great social prestige. Such institutions, too, can play a role in the determination of the prices of land. The Myth of the Soil Romanticists condemn the economic theories concerning land for their utilitarian narrow-mindedness. Economists, they say, look upon land from the point of view of the callous speculator who degrades all eternal values to terms of money and profit. Yet the glebe is much more than a mere factor of production. It is the inexhaustible source of human energy and human life. Agriculture is not simply one branch of production among many other branches. It is the only natural and respectable activity of man, the only dignified condition of a really human existence. It is iniquitous to judge it merely with regard to the net returns to be squeezed out of the soil. The soil not only bears the fruits that nourish our body, it produces first of all the moral and spiritual forces of civilization. The cities, the processing industries, and commerce are phenomena of depravity and decay. Their existence is parasitic. They destroy what the plowman must create again and again. Thousands of years ago, when fishing and hunting tribesmen began to cultivate the soil, romantic reverie was unknown. But if there had lived romanticists in those ages, they would have eulogized the lofty moral values of the hunt, and would have stigmatized soil cultivation as a phenomenon of depravity. They would have reproached the plowman for desecrating the soil that the gods had given to man as a hunting ground, and for degrading it to a means of production. In the pre-romantic ages, in his actions, no one considered the soil as anything other than a source of human well-being, a means to promote welfare. The magic rites and observances concerning the soil aimed at nothing else than improvement of the soil's fertility and increase in the quantity of fruits to be harvested. These people did not seek the unio mystica with the mysterious powers and forces hidden in the soil. All they aimed at was bigger and better crops. They resorted to magic rituals and adjurations because, in their opinion, this was the most efficient method of attaining the end sought. 
Their sophisticated progeny erred when they interpreted these ceremonies from an idealistic point of view. A real peasant does not indulge in ecstatic babble about the soil and its mysterious powers. For him, land is a factor of production, not an object of sentimental emotions. He covets more land because he desires to increase his income and to improve his standard of living. Farmers buy and sell land and mortgage it. They sell the produce of land and become very indignant if the prices are not as high as they want them to be. Love of nature and appreciation of the beauties of the landscape were foreign to the rural population. The inhabitants of the cities brought them to the countryside. It was the city dwellers who began to appreciate the land as nature, while the countrymen valued it only from the point of view of its productivity for hunting, lumbering, crop-raising, and cattle-breeding. From time immemorial the rocks and glaciers of the Alps were merely wasteland in the eyes of the mountaineers. Only when the townsfolk ventured to climb the peaks and brought money into the valleys did they change their minds. The pioneers of mountain climbing and skiing were ridiculed by the indigenous population until they found out that they could derive gain from this eccentricity. Not shepherds, but sophisticated aristocrats and city-dwellers were the authors of bucolic poetry. Daphnis and Chloe are creations of fancies far removed from earthly concerns. No less removed from the soil is the modern political myth of the soil. It did not blossom from the moss of the forests and the loam of the fields, but from the pavements of the cities and the carpets of the salons. The farmers make use of it because they find it a practical means of obtaining political privileges which raise the prices of their products and of their farms. Chapter 23 THE DATA OF THE MARKET 1. THE THEORY AND THE DATA Catalactics, the theory of the market economy, is not a system of theorems valid only under ideal and unrealizable conditions, and applicable to reality merely with essential restrictions and modifications. All the theorems of catalactics are rigidly and without any exception valid for all phenomena of the market economy, provided the particular conditions which they presuppose are present. It is, for instance, a simple question of fact whether there is direct or indirect exchange. But where there is indirect exchange, all the general laws of the theory of indirect exchange are valid with regard to the acts of exchange and the media of exchange. As has been pointed out, praxeological knowledge is precise or exact knowledge of reality. All references to the epistemological issues of the natural sciences, and all analogies derived from comparing these two radically different realms of reality and cognition, are misleading. There is, apart from formal logic, no such thing as a set of methodological rules applicable both to cognition by means of the category of causality, and to that by means of the category of finality. Praxeology deals with human action as such in a general and universal way. 
It deals neither with the particular conditions of the environment in which man acts, nor with the concrete content of the valuations which direct his actions. For praxeology, data are the bodily and psychological features of the acting men, their desires and value judgments, and the theories, doctrines, and ideologies they develop in order to adjust themselves purposively to the conditions of their environment, and thus to attain the ends they are aiming at. These data, although permanent in their structure and strictly determined by the laws controlling the order of the universe, are perpetually fluctuating and varying. They change from instant to instant. The fullness of reality can be mentally mastered only by a mind resorting both to the conception of praxeology and to the understanding of history and the latter requires command of the teachings of the natural sciences. Cognition and prediction are provided by the totality of knowledge. What the various single branches of science offer is always fragmentary. It must be complemented by the results of all the other branches. From the point of view of acting man, the specialization of knowledge and its breaking up into the various sciences is merely a device of the division of labor. In the same way in which the consumer utilizes the products of various branches of production, the actor must base his decisions on knowledge brought about by various branches of thought and investigation. It is not permissible to disregard any of these branches in dealing with reality. The historical school and the institutionalists want to outlaw the study of praxeology and economics, and to occupy themselves merely with the registration of the data, or, as they call them nowadays, the institutions. But no statement concerning these data can be made without reference to a definite set of economic theorems. When an institutionalist ascribes a definite event to a definite cause, for example, mass unemployment to the alleged deficiencies of the capitalist mode of production, he resorts to an economic theorem. In objecting to the closer examination of the theorem tacitly implied in his conclusions, he merely wants to avoid the exposure of the fallacies of his argument. There is no such thing as a mere recording of unadulterated facts apart from any reference to theories. As soon as two events are recorded together or integrated into a class of events, a theory is operative. The question whether there is any connection between them can only be answered by a theory, that is, in the case of human action, by praxeology. It is vain to search for coefficients of correlation if one does not start from a theoretical insight acquired beforehand. The coefficient may have a high numerical value without indicating any significant and relevant connection between the two groups. 2. The Role of Power the historical school and institutionalism condemn economics for disregarding the role which power plays in real life. The basic notion of economics, namely the choosing and acting individual, is, they say, an unrealistic concept. Real man is not free to choose and to act. 
He is subject to social pressure, to the sway of irresistible power. It is not the individual's value judgments, but the interactions of the forces of power that determine the market phenomena. These objections are no less spurious than all other statements of the critics of economics. Praxeology in general, and economics and catalactics in particular, do not contend or assume that man is free in any metaphysical sense attached to the term freedom. Man is unconditionally subject to the natural conditions of his environment. In acting, he must adjust himself to the inexorable regularity of natural phenomena. It is precisely the scarcity of the nature-given conditions of his welfare that enjoins upon man the necessity to act. Most social reformers, foremost among them Fourier and Marx, pass over in silence the fact that the nature-given means of removing human uneasiness are scarce. As they see it, the fact that there is not an abundance of all useful things is merely caused by the inadequacy of the capitalist mode of production, and will therefore disappear in the higher phase of communism. An eminent Menshevik author, who could not help referring to the nature-given barriers to human well-being, in genuinely Marxian style, calls nature the most relentless exploiter. In acting, man is directed by ideologies. He chooses ends and means under the influence of ideologies. The might of an ideology is either direct or indirect. It is direct when the actor is convinced that the content of the ideology is correct and that he serves his own interests directly in complying with it. It is indirect when the actor rejects the content of the ideology as false, but is under the necessity of adjusting his actions to the fact that this ideology is endorsed by other people. The mores of their social environment are a power which people are forced to consider. Those recognizing the spuriousness of the generally accepted opinions and habits must in each instance choose between the advantages to be derived from resorting to a more efficient mode of acting and the disadvantages resulting from the contempt of popular prejudices, superstitions, and folkways. The same is true with regard to violence. In choosing, man must take into account the fact that there is a factor ready to exercise violent compulsion upon him. All the theorems of catalactics are valid also with regard to actions influenced by such social or physical pressure. The direct or indirect might of an ideology and the threat of physical compulsion are merely data of the market situation. It does not matter, for instance, what kind of considerations motivate a man not to offer a higher bid for the purchase of a commodity than the one he really makes, without obtaining the good concerned. For the determination of the market price, it is immaterial whether he spontaneously prefers to spend his money for other purposes, or whether he is afraid of being looked upon by his fellow men as an upstart or as a spendthrift, afraid of violating a government-decreed ceiling price, or of defying a competitor ready to resort to violent revenge. 
In any case, his abstention from bidding a higher price contributes to the same extent to the emergence of the market price. It is customary nowadays to signify the position which the owners of property occupy on the market as economic power. The expediency of this terminology is questionable. The term is, at any rate, inappropriate, as far as it is intended to imply that under the impact of economic power, the determination of the market phenomena is controlled by laws other than those dealt with by catalactics. 3. The Historical Role of War and Conquest Many authors glorify war and revolution, bloodshed and conquest. Carlyle and Ruskin, Nietzsche, Georges Sorel, and Spengler were harbingers of the ideas which Lenin and Stalin, Hitler and Mussolini put into effect. The course of history, say these philosophies, is not determined by the mean activities of materialistic peddlers and merchants, but by the heroic deeds of warriors and conquerors. The economists err in abstracting from the experience of the short-lived liberal episode a theory to which they ascribe universal validity. This epoch of liberalism, individualism, and capitalism, of democracy, tolerance, and freedom, of the disregard of all true and eternal values, and of the supremacy of the rabble, is now vanishing and will never return. The dawning age of manliness requires a new theory of human action. However, no economist ever ventured to deny that war and conquest were of utmost importance in the past, and that Huns and Tartars, Vandals and Vikings, Normans and Conquistadors played an enormous part in history. One of the determinants of the present state of mankind is the fact that there were thousands of years of armed conflicts. Yet what remains and is the essence of human civilization is not the legacy inherited from the warriors. Civilization is an achievement of the bourgeois spirit, not of the spirit of conquest. Those barbarian peoples who did not substitute working for plundering disappeared from the historical scene. If there is still any trace left of their existence, it is in the achievements they accomplished under the influence of the civilization of the subdued peoples. Latin civilization survived in Italy, France, and the Iberian Peninsula in defiance of all barbarian invasions. If capitalist entrepreneurs had not succeeded Lord Clive and Warren Hastings, British rule in India might one day become such an insignificant historical reminiscence as are the 150 years of Turkish rule in Hungary. It is not the task of economics to enter into an examination of the endeavors to revive the ideals of the Vikings. It has merely to refute the statements that the fact that there are armed conflicts reduces its teachings to naught. With regard to this problem, there is need to emphasize again the following. First, the teachings of catalactics do not refer to a definite epoch of history, but to all actions characterized by the two conditions, private ownership of the means of production and division of labor. 
Whenever and wherever, in a society in which there is private ownership of the means of production, people not only produce for the direct satisfaction of their own wants, but also consume goods produced by other people, the theorems of catalactics are strictly valid. Second, if, apart from the market and outside of the market, there is robbing and plundering, these facts are a datum for the market. The actors must take into account the fact that they are threatened by murderers and robbers. If killing and robbing become so prevalent that any production appears useless, it may finally happen that productive work ceases, and mankind plunges into a state of war of every man against every other man. Third, in order to seize booty, something to be plundered must be available. The heroes can only live if there are enough bourgeois to be expropriated. The existence of producers is a condition for the survival of conquerors. But the producers could do without the plunderers. Fourth, there are, of course, other imaginable systems of a society based on the division of labor besides the capitalist system of private ownership of the means of production. Champions of militarism are consistent in asking for the establishment of socialism. The whole nation should be organized as a community of warriors, in which the non-combatants have no other task than that of supplying the fighting forces with all they need. The problems of socialism are dealt with in the fifth part of this book. 4. Real Man as a Datum Economics deals with the real actions of real men. Its theorems refer neither to ideal nor to perfect men, neither to the phantom of a fabulous economic man, homo economicus, nor to the statistical notion of an average man, homme um moyen. Man, with all his weaknesses and limitations, every man, as he lives and acts, is the subject matter of catalactics. Every human action is a theme of praxeology. The subject matter of praxeology is not only the study of society, societal relations, and mass phenomena, but the study of all human actions. The term the social sciences and all its connotations are in this regard misleading. There is no yardstick that a scientific investigation can apply to human action other than that of the ultimate goals the acting individual wants to realize in embarking upon a definite action. The ultimate goals themselves are beyond and above any criticism. Nobody is called upon to establish what could make another man happy. What an unaffected observer can question is merely whether or not the means chosen for the attainment of these ultimate goals are fit to bring about the results sought by the actor. Only in answering this question is economics free to express an opinion about the actions of individuals and groups of individuals, or of the policies of parties, pressure groups, and governments. It is customary to disguise the arbitrariness of the attacks launched against the value judgments of other people by converting them into a critique of the capitalist system or of the conduct of entrepreneurs. Economics is neutral with regard to all such statements.
to the arbitrary statement that the balance between the production of different goods is admittedly faulty under capitalism, the economist does not oppose the statement that this balance is faultless. What the economist asserts is that in the unhampered market economy, this balance is in agreement with the conduct of the consumers, as displayed in the spending of their incomes. This is the general feature of democracy, whether political or economic. Democratic elections do not provide the guarantee that the man elected is free from faults, but merely that the majority of the voters prefer him to other candidates. It is not the task of the economist to censure his fellow men and to call the result of their actions faulty. The alternative to the system in which the individual's value judgments are paramount in the conduct of production processes is autocratic dictatorship. Then the value judgments of the dictators alone decide, although they are not less arbitrary than those of other people. Man is certainly not a perfect being. His human weakness taints all human institutions, and thus, also, the market economy. 5. The Period of Adjustment Every change in the market data has its definite effects upon the market. It takes a definite length of time before all these effects are consummated, that is, before the market is completely adjusted to the new state of affairs. Catalactics has to deal with all the various individuals' conscious and purposive reactions to the changes in the data, and not, of course, merely with the final result brought about in the market structure by the interplay of these actions. It may happen that the effects of one change in the data are counteracted by the effects of another change, occurring by and large at the same time and to the same extent. Then, no considerable change in the market prices finally results. The statistician, exclusively preoccupied with the observation of mass phenomena and the outgrowth of the totality of market transactions as manifested in market prices, ignores the fact that the non-emergence of changes in the height of prices is merely accidental, and not the outcome of a continuance in the data and the absence of specific adjustment activities. He fails to see any movement and the social consequences of such movements. Yet each change in the data has its own course, generates certain reactive responses on the part of the individuals affected, and disturbs the relation between the various members of the market system, even if, eventually, no considerable changes in the prices of the various goods, and no changes at all in the figures concerning the total amount of capital in the whole market system, result. Economic history can give vague information ex post factum about the length of adjustment periods. The method of attaining such information is, of course, not measurement, but historical understanding. The various adjustment processes are, in reality, not isolated. Synchronously, an indefinite number of them take their course, their paths intersect, and they mutually influence one another. 
To disentangle this intricate tissue and to observe the chain of actions and reactions set into motion by a definite change in the data is a difficult task for the historian's understanding, and the results are mostly meager and questionable. The understanding of the length of adjustment periods is also the most difficult task incumbent upon those eager to understand the future, the entrepreneurs. Yet for success in entrepreneurial activities, mere anticipation of the direction in which the market will react to a certain event is of little significance if it is not supplemented by an adequate anticipation of the length of the various adjustment periods involved. Most of the mistakes committed by entrepreneurs in the conduct of affairs, and most of the blunders vitiating the prognoses of future business trends on the part of expert forecasters, are caused by errors concerning the length of adjustment periods. In dealing with effects brought about by changes in the data, it is customary to distinguish between the temporally nearer and the temporally remoter effects namely the short-run effects and the long-run effects. This distinction is much older than the terminology in which it is expressed nowadays. In order to discover the immediate, the short-run effects brought about by a change in a datum, there is, as a rule, no need to resort to a thorough investigation. The short-run effects are, for the most part, obvious, and seldom escape the notice of a naive observer unfamiliar with searching investigations. What started economic studies was precisely the fact that some men of genius began to suspect that the remoter consequences of an event may differ from the immediate effects visible even to the most simple-minded layman. The main achievement of economics was the disclosure of such long-run effects, hitherto unnoticed by the unaffected observer and neglected by the statesman. From their startling discoveries, the classical economists derived a rule for political practice. Governments, statesmen, and political parties, they argued, in planning and acting, should consider not only the short-run consequences, but also the long-run consequences of their measures. The correctness of this inference is incontestable and indisputable. Action aims at the substitution of a more satisfactory state of affairs for a less satisfactory. Whether or not the outcome of a definite action will be considered more or less satisfactory depends on a correct anticipation of all its consequences, both short-run and long-run. Some people criticize economics for alleged neglect of the short-run effects and for alleged preference given to the study of the long-run effects. The reproach is nonsensical. Economics has no means of scrutinizing the results of a change in the data other than to start with its immediate consequences and to analyze step by step, proceeding from the first reaction to the remoter reactions, all the subsequent consequences, until it finally arrives at its ultimate consequences. The long-run analysis necessarily always fully includes the short-run analysis. 
It is easy to understand why certain individuals, parties, and pressure groups are eager to propagate the exclusive sway of the short-run principle. Politics, they say, should never be concerned about the long-run effects of a device, and should never abstain from resorting to a measure from which benefits are expected in the short run, merely because its long-run effects are detrimental. What counts is only the short-run effects. In the long run, we shall all be dead. All that economics has to answer to these passionate critics is that every decision should be based on a careful weighing of all its consequences, both those in the short run and those in the long run. There are certainly, both in the actions of individuals and in the conduct of public affairs, situations in which the actors may have good reasons to put up even with very undesirable long-run effects in order to avoid what they consider still more undesirable short-run conditions. It may sometimes be expedient for a man to heat the stove with his furniture, But if he does, he should know what the remoter effects will be. He should not delude himself by believing that he has discovered a wonderful new method of heating his premises. That is all that economics need oppose to the frenzy of the short-run apostles. History one day will have to say much more. It will have to establish the role that the recommendation of the short-run principle This revival of Madame de Pompadour's notorious phrase, Après nous le déluge, played in the most serious crisis of Western civilization. It will have to show how welcome this slogan was to governments and parties whose policies aimed at the consumption of the spiritual and material capital inherited from earlier generations. 6. THE LIMITS OF PROPERTY RIGHTS AND THE PROBLEMS OF EXTERNAL COSTS AND EXTERNAL ECONOMIES Property rights, as they are circumscribed by laws and protected by courts and the police, are the outgrowth of an age-long evolution. The history of these ages is the record of struggles aiming at the abolition of private property. Again and again, despots and popular movements have tried to restrict the rights of private property or to abolish it altogether. These endeavors, it is true, failed, but they have left traces in the ideas determining the legal form and definition of property. The legal concepts of property do not fully take account of the social function of private property. There are certain inadequacies and incongruities which are reflected in the determination of the market phenomena. Carried through consistently, the right of property would entitle the proprietor to claim all the advantages which the good's employment may generate on the one hand, and would burden him with all the disadvantages resulting from its employment on the other hand. Then the proprietor alone would be fully responsible for the outcome. In dealing with his property, he would take into account all the expected results of his action, those considered favorable as well as those considered unfavorable. But if some of the consequences of his action are outside the sphere of the benefits he is entitled to reap, and of the drawbacks that are put to his debit, he will not bother in his planning about all the effects of his action, 
he will disregard those benefits which do not increase his own satisfaction and those costs which do not burden him. His conduct will deviate from the line which it would have followed if the laws were better adjusted to the economic objectives of private ownership. He will embark upon certain projects only because the laws release him from responsibility for some of the costs incurred. He will abstain from other projects merely because the laws prevent him from harvesting all the advantages derivable. The laws concerning liability and indemnification for damages caused were and still are in some respects deficient. By and large, the principle is accepted that everybody is liable to damages which his actions have inflicted upon other people. But there were loopholes left, which the legislators were slow to fill. In some cases, this tardiness was intentional, because the imperfections agreed with the plans of the authorities. When, in the past, in many countries, the owners of factories and railroads were not held liable for the damages which the conduct of their enterprises inflicted on the property and health of neighbors, patrons, employees, and other people through smoke, soot, noise, water pollution, and accidents caused by defective or inappropriate equipment, the idea was that one should not undermine the progress of industrialization and the development of transportation facilities. The same doctrines which prompted and still are prompting many governments to encourage investment in factories and railroads through subsidies, tax exemption, tariffs, and cheap credit were at work in the emergence of a legal state of affairs in which the liability of such enterprises was either formally or practically abated. Later again, the opposite tendency began to prevail in many countries, and the liability of manufacturers and railroads was increased as against that of other citizens and firms. Here again, definite political objectives were operative. Legislators wished to protect the poor, the wage-earners, and the peasants against the wealthy entrepreneurs and capitalists. Whether the proprietor's relief from responsibility for some of the disadvantages resulting from his conduct of affairs is the outcome of a deliberate policy on the part of governments and legislators, or whether it is an unintentional effect of the traditional wording of laws, it is, at any rate, a datum which the actors must take into account. They are faced with the problem of external costs. Then, some people choose certain modes of want satisfaction merely on account of the fact that a part of the costs incurred are debited not to them, but to other people. The extreme instance is provided by the case of no man's property referred to above. If land is not owned by anybody, although legal formalism may call it public property, it is utilized without any regard to the disadvantages resulting. Those who are in a position to appropriate to themselves the returns, lumber and game of the forests, fish of the water areas, and mineral deposits of the subsoil, do not bother about the later effects of their mode of exploitation. For them, the erosion of the soil, the depletion of the exhaustible resources and other impairments of the future utilization, are external costs, not entering into their calculation of input and output.
they cut down the trees without any regard for fresh shoots or reforestation. In hunting and fishing, they do not shrink from methods preventing the repopulation of the hunting and fishing grounds. In the early days of human civilization, when soil of a quality not inferior to that of the utilized pieces was still abundant, people did not find any fault with such predatory methods. When their effects appeared in a decrease in the net returns, the plowman abandoned his farm and moved to another place. It was only when a country was more densely settled and unoccupied first-class land was no longer available for appropriation that people began to consider such predatory methods wasteful. At that time, they consolidated the institution of private property in land. They started with arable land, and then, step by step, included pastures, forests, and fisheries. The newly settled colonial countries overseas, especially the vast spaces of the United States, whose marvelous agricultural potentialities were almost untouched when the first colonists from Europe arrived, passed through the same stages. Until the last decades of the nineteenth century there was always a geographic zone open to newcomers, the frontier. Neither the existence of the frontier nor its passing was peculiar to America. What characterizes American conditions is the fact that at the time the frontier disappeared, ideological and institutional factors impeded the adjustment of the methods of land utilization to the change in the data. In the central and western areas of continental Europe, where the institution of private property had been rigidly established for many centuries, things were different. There was no question of soil erosion of formerly cultivated land. There was no problem of forest devastation, in spite of the fact that the domestic forests had been, for ages, the only source of lumber for construction and mining, and of fuel for heating, and for the foundries and furnaces, the potteries and the glass factories. The owners of the forests were impelled to conservation by their own selfish interests. In the most densely inhabited and industrialized areas up to a few years ago, between a fifth and a third of the surface was still covered by first-class forests managed according to the methods of scientific forestry. Late in the 18th century, European governments began to enact laws aiming at forest conservation. However, it would be a serious blunder to ascribe to these laws any role in the conservation of the forests. Before the middle of the nineteenth century, there was no administrative apparatus available for their enforcement. Besides, the governments of Austria and Prussia, to say nothing of those of the smaller German states, virtually lacked the power to enforce such laws against the aristocratic lords. No civil servant before 1914 would have been bold enough to rouse the anger of a Bohemian or Silesian magnate or a German mediatized Standesherr. These princes and counts were spontaneously committed to forest conservation because they felt perfectly safe in the possession of their property and were eager to preserve unabated the source of their revenues and the market price of their estates. 
It is not the task of catalactic theory to elaborate an account of the complex factors that produced modern American land ownership conditions. Whatever these factors were, they brought about a state of affairs under which a great many farmers, and the majority of the lumbering enterprises, had reason to consider the disadvantages resulting from the neglect of soil and forest conservation as external costs. It is true that where a considerable part of the costs incurred are external costs from the point of view of the acting individuals or firms, the economic calculation established by them is manifestly defective and their results deceptive. But this is not the outcome of alleged deficiencies inherent in the system of private ownership of the means of production. It is, on the contrary, a consequence of loopholes left in this system. It could be removed by a reform of the laws concerning liability for damages inflicted, and by rescinding the institutional barriers preventing the full operation of private ownership. The case of external economies is not simply the inversion of the case of external costs. It has its own domain and character. If the results of an actor's action benefit not only himself but also other people, two alternatives are possible. 1. The planning actor considers the advantages which he expects for himself so important that he is prepared to defray all the costs required. The fact that his project also benefits other people will not prevent him from accomplishing what promotes his own well-being. When a railroad company erects dikes to protect its tracks against snowslides and avalanches, it also protects the houses on adjacent grounds. But the benefits which its neighbors will derive will not hinder the company from embarking upon an expenditure that it deems expedient. 2. The costs incurred by a project are so great that none of those whom it will benefit is ready to expend them in full. The project can be realized only if a sufficient number of those interested in it share in the costs. It would hardly be necessary to say more about external economies if it were not for the fact that this phenomenon is entirely misinterpreted in current pseudo-economic literature. A project, P, is unprofitable when and because consumers prefer the satisfaction expected from the realization of some other projects to the satisfaction expected from the realization of P. The realization of P would withdraw capital and labor from the realization of some other projects for which the demand of the consumers is more urgent. The layman and the pseudo-economist fail to recognize this fact. They stubbornly refuse to notice the scarcity of the factors of production. As they see it, P could be realized without any cost at all, that is, without foregoing any other satisfaction. It is merely the wantonness of the profit system that prevents the nation from enjoying gratuitously the pleasures expected from P. Now, these short-sighted critics go on to say, the absurdity of the profit system becomes especially outrageous if the unprofitability of P is merely due to the fact that the entrepreneur's calculations neglect those advantages of P which for them are external economies. 
From the point of view of the whole of society, such advantages are not external. They benefit at least some members of society and would increase total welfare. The non-realization of P is therefore a loss for society. As profit-seeking business, entirely committed to selfishness, declines to embark upon such unprofitable projects, it is the duty of government to fill the gap. Government should either run them as public enterprises, or it should subsidize them in order to make them attractive for the private entrepreneur and investor. The subsidies may be granted either directly by money grants from public funds, or indirectly by means of tariffs, the incidence of which falls upon the buyers of the products. However, the means which a government needs in order to run a plant at a loss, or to subsidize an unprofitable project, must be withdrawn either from the taxpayer's spending and investing power, or from the loan market. The government has no more ability than individuals to create something out of nothing. What the government spends more, the public spends less. Public works are not accomplished by the miraculous power of a magic wand. They are paid for by funds taken away from the citizens. If the government had not interfered, the citizens would have employed them for the realization of profit-promising projects, the realization of which they must omit because their means have been curtailed by the government. For every unprofitable project that is realized by the aid of the government, there is a corresponding project, the realization of which is neglected, merely on account of the government's intervention. Yet this non-realized project would have been profitable, that is, it would have employed the scarce means of production in accordance with the most urgent needs of the consumers. From the point of view of the consumers, the employment of these means of production for the realization of an unprofitable project is wasteful. It deprives them of satisfactions which they prefer to those which the government-sponsored project can furnish them. The gullible masses who cannot see beyond the immediate range of their physical eyes are enraptured by the marvelous accomplishments of their rulers. They fail to see that they themselves foot the bill, and must consequently renounce many satisfactions which they would have enjoyed if the government had spent less for unprofitable projects. They have not the imagination to think of the possibilities that the government has not allowed to come into existence. These enthusiasts are still more bewildered if the government's interference enables sub-marginal producers to continue producing and to stand the competition of more efficient plants, shops, or farms. Here, they say, it is obvious that total production is increased, and something is added to the wealth that would not have been produced without the assistance of the authorities. What happens, in fact, is just the opposite. The magnitude of total production and of total wealth is curtailed. Outfits producing at higher costs are brought into existence or preserved, while other outfits producing at lower costs are forced to curtail or to discontinue their production. The consumers are not getting more, but less.
There is, for instance, the very popular idea that it is a good thing for the government to promote the agricultural development of those parts of the country which nature has poorly endowed. Costs of production are higher in these districts than in other areas. It is precisely this fact that qualifies a large part of their soil as submarginal. When unaided by public funds, the farmers tilling these submarginal lands could not stand the competition of the more fertile farms. Agriculture would shrink or fail to develop, and the whole area would become a backward part of the country. In full cognizance of this state of affairs, profit-seeking business avoids investing in the construction of railroads connecting such inauspicious areas with the centers of consumption. The plight of the farmers is not caused by the fact that they lack transportation facilities. The causation is the other way round, because business realizes that the prospects for these farmers are not propitious. It abstains from investing in railroads which are likely to become unprofitable for lack of a sufficient amount of goods to be shipped. If the government, yielding to the demands of the interested pressure groups, builds the railroad and runs it at a deficit, it certainly benefits the owners of farmland in those poor districts of the country. As a part of the costs that the shipping of their products requires is borne by the treasury, they find it easier to compete with those tilling more fertile land to whom such aid is denied. But the boon of these privileged farmers is paid for by the taxpayers, who must provide the funds required to defray the deficit. It affects neither the market price nor the total available supply of agricultural products. It merely makes profitable the operation of farms which hitherto were submarginal, and makes other farms, the operation of which was hitherto profitable, submarginal. It shifts production from land requiring lower costs to land requiring higher costs. It does not increase total supply and wealth. It curtails them, as the additional amounts of capital and labor required for the cultivation of high-cost fields instead of low-cost fields are withheld from employments in which they would have made possible the production of some other consumer's goods. The government attains its end of benefiting some parts of the country with what they would have missed, but it produces somewhere else costs which exceed these gains of a privileged group. The External Economies of Intellectual Creation The extreme case of external economies is shown in the production of the intellectual groundwork of every kind of processing and constructing. The characteristic mark of recipes, that is, the mental devices directing the technological procedures, is the inexhaustibility of the services they render. These services are consequently not scarce, and there is no need to economize their employment. Those considerations that resulted in the establishment of the institution of private ownership of economic goods did not refer to them. They remained outside the sphere of private property, not because they are immaterial, intangible, and impalpable, but because their serviceableness cannot be exhausted. People began to realize only later that this state of affairs has its drawbacks, too. 
It places the producers of such recipes, especially the inventors of technological procedures and authors and composers, in a peculiar position. They are burdened with the costs of production, while the services of the product they have created can be gratuitously enjoyed by everybody. What they produce is for them either entirely or almost entirely external economies. If there are neither copyrights nor patents, the inventors and authors are in the position of an entrepreneur. They have a temporary advantage as against other people. As they start sooner in utilizing their invention or their manuscript themselves, or in making it available for use to other people, manufacturers or publishers, they have the chance to earn profits in the time interval until everybody can likewise utilize it. As soon as the invention or the content of the book are publicly known, they become free goods, and the inventor or author has only his glory. The problem involved has nothing to do with the activities of the creative genius. These pioneers and originators of things unheard of do not produce and work in the sense in which these terms are employed in dealing with the affairs of other people. They do not let themselves be influenced by the response their work meets on the part of their contemporaries. They do not wait for encouragement. It is different with the broad class of professional intellectuals whose services society cannot do without. We may disregard the problem of second-rate authors of poems, fiction, and plays, and second-rate composers, and need not inquire whether it would be a serious disadvantage for mankind to lack the products of their efforts. But it is obvious that handing down knowledge to the rising generation and familiarizing the acting individuals with the amount of knowledge they need for the realization of their plans requires textbooks, manuals, handbooks, and other non-fiction works. It is unlikely that people would undertake the laborious task of writing such publications if everyone were free to reproduce them. This is still more manifest in the field of technological invention and discovery. The extensive experimentation necessary for such achievements is often very expensive. It is very probable that technological progress would be seriously retarded if, for the inventor and for those who defray the expenses incurred by his experimentation, the results obtained were nothing but external economies. Patents and copyrights are results of the legal evolution of the last centuries. Their place in the traditional body of property rights is still controversial. People look askance at them and deem them irregular. They are considered privileges, a vestige of the rudimentary period of their evolution when legal protection was accorded to authors and inventors only by virtue of an exceptional privilege granted by the authorities. They are suspect, as they are lucrative only if they make it possible to sell at monopoly prices. Moreover, the fairness of patent laws is contested on the ground that they reward only those who put the finishing touch leading to practical utilization of achievements of many predecessors. These precursors go empty-handed, although their contribution to the final result was often much more weighty than that of the patentee.
It is beyond the scope of catalactics to enter into an examination of the arguments brought forward for and against the institution of copyrights and patents. It has merely to stress the point that this is a problem of the delimitation of property rights, and that with the abolition of patents and copyrights, authors and inventors would, for the most part, be producers of external economies. Privileges and Quasi-Privileges The restrictions which laws and institutions impose upon the discretion to choose and to act are not always so insurmountable that they could not be overcome under certain conditions. To some favorites, exemption from the obligation binding the rest of the people may be granted as an explicit privilege, either by the laws themselves or by an administrative act of the authorities entrusted with the law's enforcement. Some may be ruthless enough to defy the laws in spite of the vigilance of the authorities. Their daring insolence secures them a quasi-privilege. A law that nobody observes is ineffectual. A law that is not valid for all or which not all obey may grant to those who are exempt, whether by virtue of the law itself or by virtue of their own audacity, the opportunity to reap either differential rent or monopoly gains. With regard to the determination of the market phenomena, it does not matter whether the exemption is legally valid as a privilege or illegal as a quasi-privilege. Neither does it matter whether the costs, if any, incurred by the favored individual or firm for the acquisition of the privilege or quasi-privilege are legal, for example, a tax levied on licenses, or illegal, for example, bribes paid to corrupt officers. If an importation embargo is mitigated by the importation of a certain quantity, the prices are affected by the quantity imported, and the specific costs incurred by the acquisition and the utilization of the privilege or quasi-privilege. But whether the importation was legal, for example, a license granted under the system of quantitative trade control to some privileged people, or illegal contraband, does not affect the price structure. Chapter 24 Harmony and Conflict of Interests 1. The Ultimate Source of Profit and Loss on the Market The changes in the data whose reiterated emergence prevents the economic system from turning into an evenly rotating economy and produces again and again entrepreneurial profit and loss, are favorable to some members of society and unfavorable to others. Hence, people concluded, the gain of one man is the damage of another. No man profits but by the loss of others. This dogma was already advanced by certain ancient authors. Among modern writers, Montaigne was the first to restate it we may fairly call it the Montaigne dogma. It was the quintessence of the doctrines of mercantilism, old and new. It is at the bottom of all modern doctrines teaching that there prevails within the frame of the market economy an irreconcilable conflict among the interests of various social classes within a nation, and, furthermore, between the interests of any nation and those of all other nations. 
Now, the Montaigne dogma is true with regard to the effects of cash-induced changes in the purchasing power of money on deferred payments, but it is entirely wrong with regard to any kind of entrepreneurial profit or loss, whether they emerge in a stationary economy in which the total amount of profits equals the total amount of losses, or in a progressing or a retrogressing economy, in which these two magnitudes are different. What produces a man's profit in the course of affairs within an unhampered market society is not his fellow citizens' plight and distress, but the fact that he alleviates or entirely removes what causes his fellow citizens' feeling of uneasiness. What hurts the sick is the plague, not the physician who treats the disease. The doctor's gain is not an outcome of the epidemics, but of the aid he gives to those affected. The ultimate source of profits is always the foresight of future conditions. Those who succeeded better than others in anticipating future events and in adjusting their activities to the future state of the market reap profits because they are in a position to satisfy the most urgent needs of the public. The profits of those who have produced goods and services for which the buyers scramble are not the source of the losses of those who have brought to the market commodities in the purchase of which the public is not prepared to pay the full amount of production costs expended. These losses are caused by the lack of insight displayed in anticipating the future demand of the consumers. External events affecting demand and supply may sometimes come so suddenly and unexpectedly that people say that no reasonable man could have foreseen them. Then the envious may consider the profits of those who gain from the change as unjustified. Yet such arbitrary value judgments do not alter the real state of interests. It is certainly better for a sick man to be cured by a doctor for a high fee than to lack medical assistance. If it were otherwise, he would not consult the physician. There are in the market economy no conflicts between the interests of the buyers and sellers. There are disadvantages caused by inadequate foresight. It would be a universal boon if every man and all the members of the market society would always foresee future conditions correctly and in time and act accordingly. If this were the case, retrospection would establish that no particle of capital and labor was wasted for the satisfaction of wants which now are considered as less urgent than some other unsatisfied wants. However, Man is not omniscient. It is wrong to look at these problems from the point of view of resentment and envy. It is no less faulty to restrict one's observation to the momentary position of various individuals. These are social problems and must be judged with regard to the operation of the whole market system. What secures the best possible satisfaction of the demands of each member of society is precisely the fact that those who succeeded better than other people in anticipating future conditions are earning profits. If profits were to be curtailed for the benefit of those whom a change in the data has injured, 
the adjustment of supply to demand would not be improved, but impaired. If one were to prevent doctors from occasionally earning high fees, one would not increase, but rather decrease, the number of those choosing the medical profession. The deal is always advantageous both for the buyer and the seller. Even a man who sells at a loss is still better off than he would be if he could not sell at all, or only at a still lower price. He loses on account of his lack of foresight. The sale limits his loss, even if the price received is low. If both the buyer and the seller were not to consider the transaction as the most advantageous action they could choose under the prevailing conditions, they would not enter into the deal. The statement that one man's boon is the other man's damage is valid with regard to robbery, war, and booty. The robber's plunder is the damage of the despoiled victim. But war and commerce are two different things. Voltaire erred when, in 1764, he wrote in the article Patri of his Dictionnaire Philosophique, to be a good patriot is to wish that one's own community should enrich itself by trade and acquire power by arms. It is obvious that a country cannot profit but at the expense of another, and that it cannot conquer without inflicting harm on other people. Voltaire, like so many other authors who preceded and followed him, deemed it superfluous to familiarize himself with economic thought. If he had read the essays of his contemporary David Hume, he would have learned how false it is to identify war and foreign trade. Voltaire, the great debunker of age-old superstitions and popular fallacies, fell prey unawares to the most disastrous fallacy. When the baker provides the dentist with bread, and the dentist relieves the baker's toothache, neither the baker nor the dentist is harmed. It is wrong to consider such an exchange of services and the pillage of the baker's shop by armed gangsters as two manifestations of the same thing. Foreign trade differs from domestic trade only in so far as goods and services are exchanged beyond the border lines separating the territories of two sovereign nations. It is monstrous that Prince Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the later Emperor Napoleon III, should have written many decades after Hume, Adam Smith, and Ricardo, the quantity of merchandise which a country exports is always in direct proportion to the number of shells it can discharge upon its enemies whenever its honor and its dignity may require it. All the teachings of economics concerning the effects of the international division of labor and of international trade have up to now failed to destroy the popularity of the mercantilist fallacy that the object of foreign trade is to pauperize foreigners. It is a task of historical investigation to disclose the sources of the popularity of this and other similar delusions and errors. For economics, the matter is long since settled. 2. The Limitation of Offspring 
The natural scarcity of the means of sustenance forces every living being to look upon all other living beings as deadly foes in the struggle for survival, and generates pitiless biological competition. But with man, these irreconcilable conflicts of interests disappear when, and as far as, the division of labor is substituted for economic autarky of individuals, families, tribes, and nations. Within the system of society, there is no conflict of interests as long as the optimum size of population has not been reached. As long as the employment of additional hands results in a more than proportionate increase in the returns, harmony of interests is substituted for conflict. People are no longer rivals in the struggle for the allocation of portions out of a strictly limited supply. They become cooperators in striving after ends common to all of them. An increase in population figures does not curtail, but rather augments, the average shares of the individuals. If men were to strive only after nourishment and sexual satisfaction, population would tend to increase beyond the optimum size to the limits drawn by the sustenance available. However, men want more than merely to live and to copulate. They want to live humanly. An improvement in conditions usually results, it is true, in an increase in population figures. But this increase lags behind the increase in bare sustenance. If it were otherwise, men would never have succeeded in the establishment of social bonds and in the development of civilization. As with rats, mice, and microbes, every increase in sustenance would have made population figures rise to the limits of bare sustenance. Nothing would have been left for the seeking of other ends. The fundamental error implied in the iron law of wages was precisely the fact that it looked upon men, or at least upon the wage earners, as being exclusively driven by animal impulses. Its champions failed to realize that man differs from the beasts as far as he aims also at specifically human ends, which one may call higher or more sublime ends. The Malthusian law of population is one of the great achievements of thought. Together with the principle of the division of labor, it provided the foundations for modern biology and for the theory of evolution. The importance of these two fundamental theorems for the sciences of human action is second only to the discovery of the regularity in the intertwinement and sequence of market phenomena and their inevitable determination by the market data. The objections raised against the Malthusian law, as well as against the law of returns, are vain and trivial. Both laws are indisputable. But the role to be assigned to them within the body of the sciences of human action is different from that which Malthus attributed to them. Non-human beings are entirely subject to the operation of the biological law described by Malthus. The Malthusian law is, of course, a biological and not a praxeological law. 
However, its cognizance is indispensable for praxeology in order to conceive by contrast the essential characteristic of human action. As the natural sciences failed to discover it, the economists had to fill the gap. The history of the law of population, too, explodes the popular myth about the backwardness of the sciences of human action and their need to borrow from the natural sciences. For non-human beings, the statement that their numbers tend to encroach upon the means of subsistence, and that the supernumerary specimens are weeded out by want of sustenance, is valid, without any exception. With reference to the non-human animals, the notion of minimum sustenance has an unequivocal, uniquely determined sense. But the case is different with man. Man integrates the satisfaction of the purely zoological impulses, common to all animals, into a scale of values, in which a place is also assigned to specifically human ends. Acting man also rationalizes the satisfaction of his sexual appetites. Their satisfaction is the outcome of a weighing of pros and cons. Man does not blindly submit to a sexual stimulation like a bull. He refrains from copulation if he deems the costs, the anticipated disadvantages, too high. In this sense, we may, without any valuation or ethical connotation, apply the term moral restraint employed by Malthus. Rationalization of sexual intercourse already involves the rationalization of proliferation. Then, later, further methods of rationalizing the increase of progeny were adopted, which were independent of abstention from copulation. People resorted to the egregious and repulsive practices of exposing or killing infants and of abortion. Finally, they learned to perform the sexual act in such a way that no pregnancy results. In the last hundred years, the technique of contraceptive devices has been perfected, and the frequency of their employment increased considerably. Yet the procedures had long been known and practiced. The wealth that modern capitalism bestows upon the broad masses of the capitalist countries and the improvement in hygienic conditions and therapeutical and prophylactic methods brought about by capitalism have considerably reduced mortality, especially infant mortality, and prolonged the average duration of life. Today, in these countries, the restriction in generating offspring can succeed only if it is more drastic than in earlier ages. The transition to capitalism, that is, the removal of the obstacles which in former days had fettered the functioning of private initiative and enterprise, has consequently deeply influenced sexual customs. It is not the practice of birth control that is new, but merely the fact that it is more frequently resorted to. Especially new is the fact that the practice is no longer limited to the upper strata of the population, but is common to the whole population. For it is one of the most important social effects of capitalism that it deproletarianizes all strata of society. 
It raises the standard of living of the masses of the manual workers to such a height that they too turn into bourgeois and think and act like well-to-do burghers. Eager to preserve their standard of living for themselves and for their children, they embark upon birth control. With the spread and progress of capitalism, birth control becomes a universal practice. The transition to capitalism is thus accompanied by two phenomena, a decline both in fertility rates and in mortality rates. The average duration of life is prolonged. In the days of Malthus it was not yet possible to observe these demographical characteristics of capitalism. Today it is no longer permissible to question them. But, blinded by romantic prepossessions, many describe them as phenomena of decline and degeneration peculiar only to the white-skinned peoples of Western civilization, grown old and decrepit. These romantics are seriously alarmed by the fact that the Asiatics do not practice birth control to the same extent to which it is practiced in Western Europe, North America, and Australia. As modern methods of fighting and preventing disease have brought about a drop in mortality rates with these Oriental peoples, too, their population figures grow more rapidly than those of the Western nations. Will not the indigenes of India, Malaya, China, and Japan, who themselves did not contribute to the technological and therapeutical achievements of the West, but received them as an unexpected present, in the end, by the sheer superiority of their numbers, squeeze out the peoples of European descent? These fears are groundless. Historical experience shows that all Caucasian peoples reacted to the drop in mortality figures brought about by capitalism with a drop in the birth rate. Of course, from such historical experience no general law may be deduced, but praxeological reflection demonstrates that there exists between these two phenomena a necessary concatenation. An improvement in the external conditions of well-being makes possible a corresponding increase in population figures. However, if the additional quantity of the means of sustenance is completely absorbed by rearing an additional number of people, nothing is left for a further improvement in the standard of living. The march of civilization is arrested. Mankind reaches a state of stagnation. The case becomes still more obvious if we assume that a prophylactic invention is made by a lucky chance, and that its practical application requires neither a considerable investment of capital nor considerable current expenditure. Of course, modern medical research, and still more its utilization, absorb huge amounts of capital and labor. They are products of capitalism. They would never have come into existence in a non-capitalist environment. But there were, in earlier days, instances of a different character. The practice of smallpox inoculation did not originate from expensive laboratory research, and in its original crude form could be applied at trifling costs. 
Now, what would the results of smallpox inoculation have been if its practice had become general in a pre-capitalist country not committed to birth control? It would have increased population figures without increasing sustenance. It would have impaired the average standard of living. It would not have been a blessing, but a curse. Conditions in Asia and Africa are, by and large, the same. These backward peoples receive the devices for fighting and preventing disease ready-made from the West. Often they are not even charged for the drugs, the hospital equipment, and the services of the doctors. The whites defray the costs, sometimes out of humanitarian considerations, sometimes impelled by their own interests. It is true that in some of these countries, imported foreign capital and the adoption of foreign technological methods by the comparatively small domestic capital synchronously tend to increase the per capita output of labor, and thus to bring about a tendency toward an improvement in the average standard of living. However, this does not sufficiently counterbalance the opposite tendency resulting from the drop in mortality rates not accompanied by an adequate fall in fertility rates. The contact with the West has not yet benefited these peoples because it has not yet affected their minds. It has not freed them from age-old superstitions, prejudices, and misapprehensions. It has merely altered their technological and therapeutical knowledge. The reformers of the Oriental peoples want to secure for their fellow citizens the material well-being that the Western nations enjoy. Deluded by Marxian, nationalist, and militarist ideas, they think that all that is needed for the attainment of this end is the introduction of European and American technology. Neither the Slavonic Bolsheviks and nationalists, nor their sympathizers in the Indies, in China, and in Japan, realize that what their peoples need most is not Western technology, but the social order, which, in addition to other achievements, has generated this technological knowledge. They lack, first of all, economic freedom and private initiative, entrepreneurs, and capitalism but they look only for engineers and machines. What separates East and West is the social and economic system. The East is foreign to the Western spirit that has created capitalism. It is of no use to import the paraphernalia of capitalism without admitting capitalism as such. No achievement of capitalist civilization would have been accomplished in a non-capitalistic environment, or can be preserved in a world without a market economy. If the Asiatics really enter into the orbit of Western civilization, they will have to adopt the market economy without reservations. Then their masses will rise above their present proletarian wretchedness and practice birth control as it is practiced in every capitalistic country. No excessive growth of population will longer hinder the improvement in the standards of living.
But if the Oriental peoples in the future confine themselves to mechanical reception of the tangible achievements of the West, without embracing its basic philosophy and social ideologies, they will forever remain in their present state of inferiority and destitution. Their populations may increase considerably, but they will not raise themselves above distress. These miserable masses of paupers will certainly not be a serious menace to the independence of the Western nations. As long as there is a need for weapons, the entrepreneurs of the market society will never stop producing more efficient weapons, and thus securing to their countrymen a superiority of equipment over the merely imitative non-capitalistic Orientals. The military events of both world wars have proved anew that the capitalistic countries are paramount also in armaments production. No foreign aggressor can destroy capitalist civilization if it does not destroy itself. Where capitalistic entrepreneurship is allowed to function freely, the fighting forces will always be so well equipped that the biggest armies of the backward peoples will be no match for them. There has even been great exaggeration of the danger of making the formulas for manufacturing secret weapons universally known. If war comes again, the searching mind of the capitalistic world will always have a head start on the peoples who merely copy and imitate clumsily. The peoples who have developed the system of market economy and cling to it are, in every respect, superior to all other peoples. The fact that they are eager to preserve peace is not a mark of their weakness and inability to wage war. They love peace because they know that armed conflicts are pernicious and disintegrate the social division of labor. But if war becomes unavoidable, they show their superior efficiency in military affairs, too. They repel the barbarian aggressors, whatever their numbers may be. The purposive adjustment of the birth rate to the supply of the material potentialities of well-being is an indispensable condition of human life and action, of civilization, and of any improvement in wealth and welfare. Whether the only beneficial method of birth control is abstention from coitus is a question which must be decided from the point of view of bodily and mental hygiene. It is absurd to confuse the issue by referring to ethical precepts developed in ages which were faced with different conditions. However, praxeology is not interested in the theological aspects of the problem. It has merely to establish the fact that where there is no limitation of offspring, there cannot be any question of civilization and improvement in the standard of living. A socialist commonwealth would be under the necessity of regulating the fertility rate by authoritarian control. It would have to regiment the sexual life of its wards no less than all other spheres of their conduct. In the market economy, every individual is spontaneously intent upon not begetting children whom he could not rear without considerably lowering his family's standard of life. Thus the growth of population beyond the optimum size as determined by the supply of capital available and the state of technological knowledge is checked. 
the interests of each individual coincide with those of all other individuals. Those fighting birth control want to eliminate a device indispensable for the preservation of peaceful human cooperation and the social division of labor. Where the average standard of living is impaired by the excessive increase in population figures, irreconcilable conflicts of interests arise. Each individual is again a rival of all other individuals in the struggle for survival. The annihilation of rivals is the only means of increasing one's own well-being. The philosophers and theologians who assert that birth control is contrary to the laws of God and nature refuse to see things as they really are. Nature straightens the material means required for the improvement of human well-being and survival. As natural conditions are, man has only the choice between the pitiless war of each against each or social cooperation. But social cooperation is impossible if people give rein to the natural impulse of proliferation. In restricting procreation, man adjusts himself to the natural conditions of his existence. The rationalization of the sexual passions is an indispensable condition of civilization and societal bonds. Its abandonment would, in the long run, not increase, but decrease the numbers of those surviving, and would render life for everyone as poor and miserable as it was many thousands of years ago for our ancestors. 3. The Harmony of the Rightly Understood Interests From time immemorial men have prattled about the blissful conditions their ancestors enjoyed in the original state of nature. From old myths, fables, and poems, the image of this primitive happiness passed into many popular philosophies of the 17th and 18th centuries. In their language, the term natural denoted what was good and beneficial in human affairs while the term civilization had the connotation of opprobrium. The fall of man was seen in the deviation from the primitive conditions of ages in which there was but little difference between man and other animals. At that time, these romantic eulogists of the past asserted, there were no conflicts between men. Peace was undisturbed in the Garden of Eden. Yet nature does not generate peace and goodwill. The characteristic mark of the state of nature is irreconcilable conflict. Each specimen is the rival of all other specimens. The means of subsistence are scarce and do not grant survival to all. The conflicts can never disappear. If a band of men, united with the object of defeating rival bands, succeeds in annihilating its foes, new antagonisms arise among the victors over the distribution of the booty. The source of the conflicts is always the fact that each man's portion curtails the portions of all other men. This is a dilemma that does not allow of any peaceful solution. What makes friendly relations between human beings possible is the higher productivity of the division of labor. It removes the natural conflict of interests. 
for where there is division of labor, there is no longer question of the distribution of a supply not capable of enlargement. Thanks to the higher productivity of labor performed under the division of tasks, the supply of goods multiplies. A preeminent common interest, the preservation and further intensification of social cooperation, becomes paramount and obliterates all essential collisions. Catalactic competition is substituted for biological competition. It makes for harmony of the interests of all members of society. The very condition from which the irreconcilable conflicts of biological competition arise, namely the fact that all people by and large strive after the same things, is transformed into a factor making for harmony of interests. Because many people, or even all people, want bread, clothes, shoes, and cars, large-scale production of these goods becomes feasible and reduces the costs of production to such an extent that they are accessible at low prices. The fact that my fellow man wants to acquire shoes as I do does not make it harder for me to get shoes, but easier. What enhances the price of shoes is the fact that nature does not provide a more ample supply of leather and other raw materials required, and that one must submit to the disutility of labor in order to transform these raw materials into shoes. The catalactic competition of those who, like me, are eager to have shoes, makes shoes cheaper, not more expensive. This is the meaning of the theorem of the harmony of the rightly understood interests of all members of the market society. For rightly understood interests, we may as well say, interests in the long run. When the classical economists made this statement, they were trying to stress two points. First, that everybody is interested in the preservation of the social division of labor, the system that multiplies the productivity of human efforts. Second, that in the market society, consumers' demand ultimately directs all production activities. The fact that not all human wants can be satisfied is not due to inappropriate social institutions or to deficiencies of the system of the market economy. It is a natural condition of human life. The belief that nature bestows upon man inexhaustible riches and that misery is an outgrowth of man's failure to organize the good society is entirely fallacious. The state of nature, which the reformers and utopians depict as paradisiac, was in fact a state of extreme poverty and distress. Poverty, says Bentham, is not the work of the laws, it is the primitive condition of the human race. Even those at the base of the social pyramid are much better off than they would have been in the absence of social cooperation. They, too, are benefited by the operation of the market economy and participate in the advantages of civilized society. The 19th century reformers did not drop the cherished fable of the original earthly paradise. Frederick Engels incorporated it in the Marxian account of mankind's social evolution. However, they no longer set up the bliss of the Golden Age as a pattern for social and economic reconstruction. 
They contrast the alleged depravity of capitalism with the ideal happiness man will enjoy in the socialist Elysium of the future. The socialist mode of production will abolish the fetters by means of which capitalism checks the development of the productive forces and will increase the productivity of labor and wealth beyond all measure. The preservation of free enterprise and the private ownership of the means of production benefits exclusively the small minority of parasitic exploiters and harms the immense majority of working men. Hence there prevails within the frame of the market economy an irreconcilable conflict between the interests of capital and those of labor. This class struggle can disappear only when a fair system of social organization, either socialism or interventionism, is substituted for the manifestly unfair capitalist mode of production. Such is the almost universally accepted social philosophy of our age. It was not created by Marx, although it owes its popularity mainly to the writings of Marx and the Marxians. It is today endorsed not only by the Marxians, but no less by most of those parties who emphatically declare their anti-Marxism and pay lip service to free enterprise. It is the official social philosophy of Roman Catholicism, as well as of Anglo-Catholicism. It is supported by many eminent champions of the various Protestant denominations and of the Orthodox Oriental Church. It is an essential part of the teachings of Italian fascism and of German Nazism, and of all varieties of interventionist doctrines. It was the ideology of the Sozialpolitik of the Hohenzollerns in Germany, and the French royalists aiming at the restoration of the House of Bourbon-Orléans, of the New Deal of President Roosevelt, and of the nationalists of Asia and Latin America. The antagonisms between these parties and factions refer to accidental issues, such as religious dogma, constitutional institutions, foreign policy, and, first of all, to the characteristic features of the social system that is to be substituted for capitalism. But they all agree in the fundamental thesis that the very existence of the capitalist system harms the vital interests of the immense majority of workers, artisans, and small farmers, and they all ask in the name of social justice for the abolition of capitalism. All socialist and interventionist authors and politicians base their analysis and critique of the market economy on two fundamental errors. First, they fail to recognize the speculative character inherent in all endeavors to provide for future want satisfaction, that is, in all human action. They naively assume that there cannot exist any doubt about the measures to be applied for the best possible provisioning of the consumers. In a socialist commonwealth, there will be no need for the production czar or the central board of production management to speculate. He will simply have to resort to those measures which are beneficial to his wards. The advocates of a planned economy have never conceived that the task is to provide for future wants, which may differ from today's wants, and to employ the various available factors of production in the most expedient way for the best possible satisfaction of these uncertain future wants. 
They have not conceived that the problem is to allocate scarce factors of production to the various branches of production in such a way that no wants considered more urgent should remain unsatisfied because the factors of production required for their satisfaction were employed, that is, wasted, for the satisfaction of wants considered less urgent. This economic problem must not be confused with the technological problem. Technological knowledge can merely tell us what could be achieved under the present state of our scientific insight. It does not answer the questions as to what should be produced and in what quantities, and which of the multitude of technological processes available should be chosen. Deluded by their failure to grasp this essential matter, the advocates of a planned society believe that the production czar will never err in his decisions. In the market economy, the entrepreneurs and capitalists cannot avoid committing serious blunders, because they know neither what the consumers want nor what their competitors are doing. The general manager of a socialist state will be infallible, because he alone will have the power to determine what should be produced and how, and because no action of other people will cross his plans. The second fundamental error involved in the socialists' critique of the market economy stems from their faulty theory of wages. They have failed to realize that wages are the price paid for the wage earner's achievement that is, for the contribution of his efforts to the processing of the good concerned, or, as people say, for the value which his services add to the value of the materials. No matter whether there are time wages or piecework wages, the employer always buys the worker's performance and services, not his time. It is therefore not true that in the unhampered market economy the worker has no personal interest in the execution of his task. The socialists are badly mistaken in asserting that those paid a certain rate per hour, per day, per week, per month, or per year, are not impelled by their own selfish interests when they work efficiently. It is not lofty ideals and the sense of duty that deter a worker paid according to the length of time worked from carelessness and loafing around the shop, but very substantial arguments. He who works more and better gets higher pay, and he who wants to earn more must increase the quantity and improve the quality of his performance." The hard-boiled employers are not so gullible as to let themselves be cheated by slothful employees. They are not so negligent as those governments who pay salaries to hosts of loafing bureaucrats. Neither are the wage earners so stupid as to not know that laziness and inefficiency are heavily penalized on the labor market. On the shaky ground of their misconception of the catalactic nature of wages, the socialist authors have advanced fantastic fables about the increase in the productivity of labor to be expected from the realization of their plans. Under capitalism, they say, the worker's zeal is seriously impaired, because he is aware of the fact that he himself does not reap the fruits of his labor and that his toil and trouble enrich merely his employer, this parasitic and idle exploiter. 
But under socialism, every worker will know that he works for the benefit of society, of which he himself is a part. This knowledge will provide him with the most powerful incentive to do his best. An enormous increase in the productivity of labor, and thereby in wealth, will result. However, the identification of the interests of each worker and those of the socialist commonwealth is a purely legalistic and formalistic fiction which has nothing to do with the real state of affairs. While the sacrifices an individual worker makes in intensifying his own exertion burden him alone, only an infinitesimal fraction of the produce of his additional exertion benefits himself and improves his own well-being. While the individual worker enjoys completely the pleasures he may reap by yielding to the temptation to carelessness and laziness, the resulting impairment of the social dividend curtails his own share only infinitesimally. Under such a socialist mode of production, all personal incentives which selfishness provides under capitalism are removed, and a premium is put upon laziness and negligence. Whereas in a capitalist society, selfishness incites everyone to the utmost diligence, in a socialist society it makes for inertia and laxity. The socialists may still babble about the miraculous change in human nature that the advent of socialism will effect, and about the substitution of lofty altruism for mean egotism, but they must no longer indulge in fables about the marvelous effects the selfishness of each individual will bring about under socialism. No judicious man can fail to conclude from the evidence of these considerations that in the market economy the productivity of labor is incomparably higher than it would be under socialism. However, this cognition does not settle the question between the advocates of capitalism and those of socialism from a praxeological, that is, scientific, point of view. A bona fide advocate of socialism who is free from bigotry, prepossession, and malice could still contend. It may be true that P, the total net income turned out in a market society, is larger than P, the total net income turned out in a socialist society. But, if the socialist system assigns to each of its members an equal share of P, namely, P divided by Z equals D. All those whose income in the market society is smaller than D are favored by the substitution of socialism for capitalism. It may happen that this group of people includes the majority of men. At any rate, it becomes evident that the doctrine of the harmony between the rightly understood interests of all members of the market society is untenable. There is a class of men whose interests are hurt by the very existence of the market economy, and who would be better off under socialism. The liberals contest the conclusiveness of this reasoning. They believe that P will lag so much behind P that D will be smaller than the income which even those earning the lowest wages get in the market society. There can be no doubt that the objection raised by the liberals is well-founded. 
However, their refutation of the socialist claims is not based on praxeological considerations, and therefore lacks the apodictic and incontestable argumentative power inherent in a praxeological demonstration. It is based on a judgment of relevance, the quantitative appraisal of the difference between the two magnitudes, P and P. In the field of human action, such quantitative cognition is obtained by understanding, with regard to which full agreement between men cannot be reached. Praxeology, economics, and catalactics are of no use for the settlement of such dissensions concerning quantitative issues. The advocates of socialism could go even farther and say, Granted that each individual will be worse off under socialism than even the poorest under capitalism, yet we spurn the market economy in spite of the fact that it supplies everybody with more goods than socialism. We disapprove of capitalism on ethical grounds as an unfair and amoral system. We prefer socialism on grounds commonly called non-economic, and put up with the fact that it impairs everybody's material well-being. This mode of reasoning was mainly resorted to by many eminent champions of Christian socialism. The Marxians used to recommend socialism on the ground that it would multiply productivity and bring unprecedented material wealth to everybody. Only lately have they changed their tactics. They declare that the Russian worker is happier than the American worker in spite of the fact that his standard of living is much lower. The knowledge that he lives under a fair social system compensates by far for all his material hardships. It cannot be denied that this haughty indifference with regard to material well-being is a privilege reserved to ivory tower intellectuals, secluded from reality, and to ascetic anchorites. What made socialism popular with the immense majority of its supporters was, on the contrary, the illusion that it would supply them with more amenities than capitalism. But however this may be, it is obvious that this type of pro-socialist argumentation cannot be touched by the liberal reasoning concerning the productivity of labor. If no other objections could be raised to the socialist plans than that socialism will lower the standard of living of all, or at least of the immense majority, it would be impossible for praxeology to pronounce a final judgment. Men would have to decide the issue between capitalism and socialism on the ground of judgments of value and of judgments of relevance. They would have to choose between the two systems as they choose between many other things. No objective standard could be discovered which would make it possible to settle the dispute in a manner which allows no contradiction and must be accepted by every sane individual. The freedom of each man's choice and discretion would not be annihilated by inexorable necessity. However, the true state of affairs is entirely different. Man is not in a position to choose between these two systems. Human cooperation under the system of the social division of labor is possible only in the market economy. Socialism is not a realizable system of society's economic organization because it lacks any method of economic calculation. 
To deal with this fundamental problem is the task of the fifth part of this book. The establishment of this truth does not amount to a depreciation of the conclusiveness and the convincing power of the anti-socialist argument derived from the impairment of productivity to be expected from socialism. The weight of this objection raised to the socialist plans is so overwhelming that no judicious man could hesitate to choose capitalism. Yet this would still be a choice between alternative systems of society's economic organization, preference given to one system as against another. However, such is not the alternative. Socialism cannot be realized because it is beyond human power to establish it as a social system. The choice is between capitalism and chaos. A man who chooses between drinking a glass of milk and a glass of a solution of potassium cyanide does not choose between two beverages. He chooses between life and death. A society that chooses between capitalism and socialism does not choose between two social systems. It chooses between social cooperation and the disintegration of society. Socialism is not an alternative to capitalism. It is an alternative to any system under which men can live as human beings. To stress this point is the task of economics, as it is the task of biology and chemistry to teach that potassium cyanide is not a nutriment, but a deadly poison. The convincing power of the productivity argument is in fact so irresistible that the advocates of socialism were forced to abandon their old tactics and to resort to new methods. They are eager to divert attention from the productivity issue by throwing into relief the monopoly problem. All contemporary socialist manifestos expatiate on monopoly power. Statesmen and professors try to outdo one another in depicting the evils of monopoly. Our age is called the age of monopoly capitalism. The foremost argument advanced today in favor of socialism is the reference to monopoly. Now it is true that the emergence of monopoly prices, not of monopoly as such without monopoly prices, creates a discrepancy between the interests of the monopolist and those of the consumers. The monopolist does not employ the monopolized good according to the wishes of the consumers. As far as there are monopoly prices, the interests of the monopolist take precedence over those of the public, and the democracy of the market is restricted. With regard to monopoly prices, there is not harmony, but conflict of interests. It is possible to contest these statements with regard to the monopoly prices received in the sale of articles under patents and copyrights. One may argue that in the absence of patent and copyright legislation, these books, compositions, and technological innovations would never have come into existence. The public pays monopoly prices for things they would not have enjoyed at all under competitive prices. However, we may fairly disregard this issue. It has little to do with the great monopoly controversy of our day. 
When people deal with the evils of monopoly, they imply that there prevails within the unhampered market economy a general and inevitable tendency toward the substitution of monopoly prices for competitive prices. This is, they say, a characteristic mark of mature or late capitalism. Whatever conditions may have been in the earlier stages of capitalist evolution, and whatever one may think about the validity of the classical economists' statements concerning the harmony of the rightly understood interests, today there is no longer any question of such a harmony. As has been pointed out already, there is no such tendency toward monopolization. It is a fact that with many commodities in many countries, monopoly prices prevail, and, moreover, many articles are sold at monopoly prices on the world market. However, almost all of these instances of monopoly prices are the outgrowth of government interference with business. They were not created by the interplay of the factors operating on a free market. They are not products of capitalism, but precisely of the endeavors to counteract the forces determining the height of the market prices. It is a distortion of fact to speak of monopoly capitalism. It would be more appropriate to speak of monopoly interventionism or of monopoly statism. Those instances of monopoly prices which would appear also on a market not hampered and sabotaged by the interference of the various national governments and by conspiracies between groups of governments are of minor importance. They concern some raw materials, the deposits of which are few and geographically concentrated, and local limited space monopolies. However, it is a fact that in these cases monopoly prices can be realized even in the absence of government policies aiming directly or indirectly at their establishment. It is necessary to realize that consumers' sovereignty is not perfect, and that there are limits to the operation of the democratic process of the market. There is, it is true, in some exceptional and rare cases of minor importance, even on a market not hampered and sabotaged by government interference, an antagonism between the interests of the owners of factors of production and those of the rest of the people. However, the existence of such antagonisms by no means impairs the concord of the interests of all people with regard to the preservation of the market economy. The market economy is the only system of society's economic organization that can function and really has been functioning. Socialism is unrealizable because of its inability to develop a method for economic calculation. Interventionism must result in a state of affairs which, from the point of view of its advocates, is less desirable than the conditions of the unhampered market economy which it aims to alter. In addition, it liquidates itself as soon as it is pushed beyond a narrow field of application. Such being the case, the only social order that can preserve and further intensify the social division of labor is the market economy. All those who do not wish to disintegrate social cooperation and to return to the conditions of primitive barbarism are interested in the perpetuation of the market economy.
The classical economists' teachings concerning the harmony of the rightly understood interests were defective, insofar as they failed to recognize the fact that the democratic process of the market is not perfect, because in some instances of minor importance, even in the unhampered market economy, monopoly prices may appear. But much more conspicuous was their failure to recognize that, and why, no socialist system can be considered as a system of society's economic organization. They based the doctrine of the harmony of interests upon the erroneous assumption that there are no exceptions to the rule that the owners of the means of production are forced by the market process to employ their property according to the wishes of the consumers. Today, this theorem must be based on the knowledge that no economic calculation is feasible under socialism. 4. Private Property Private ownership of the means of production is the fundamental institution of the market economy. It is the institution the presence of which characterizes the market economy as such, where it is absent, there is no question of a market economy. Ownership means full control of the services that can be derived from a good. This catalactic notion of ownership and property rights is not to be confused with the legal definition of ownership and property rights as stated in the laws of various countries. It was the idea of legislators and courts to define the legal concept of property in such a way as to give to the proprietor full protection by the governmental apparatus of coercion and compulsion, and to prevent anybody from encroaching upon his rights. As far as this purpose was adequately realized, the legal concept of property rights corresponded to the catalactic concept. However, nowadays there are tendencies to abolish the institution of private property by a change in the laws determining the scope of the actions which the proprietor is entitled to undertake with regard to the things which are his property. While retaining the term private property, these reforms aim at the substitution of public ownership for private ownership. This tendency is the characteristic mark of the plans of various schools of Christian socialism and of nationalist socialism. But few of the champions of these schools have been so keen as the Nazi philosopher Otmar Spahn, who explicitly declared that the realization of his plans would bring about a state of affairs in which the institution of private property will be preserved only in a formal sense, while in fact there will be only public ownership. There is need to mention these things in order to avoid popular fallacies and confusion. In dealing with private property, catalactics deals with control, not with legal terms, concepts, and definitions. Private ownership means that the proprietors determine the employment of the factors of production, while public ownership means that the government controls their employment. Private property is a human device. It is not sacred. It came into existence in early ages of history when people with their own power and by their own authority appropriated to themselves what had previously not been anybody's property. 
Again and again, proprietors were robbed of their property by expropriation. The history of private property can be traced back to a point at which it originated out of acts which were certainly not legal. Virtually every owner is the direct or indirect legal successor of people who acquired ownership either by arbitrary appropriation of ownerless things or by violent spoliation of their predecessor. However, the fact that legal formalism can trace back every title either to arbitrary appropriation or to violent expropriation has no significance whatever for the conditions of a market society. Ownership in the market economy is no longer linked up with the remote origin of private property. Those events in a far distant past, hidden in the darkness of primitive mankind's history, are no longer of any concern for our day. For in an unhampered market society the consumers daily decide anew who should own and how much he should own. The consumers allot control of the means of production to those who know how to use them best for the satisfaction of the most urgent wants of the consumers. Only in a legal and formalistic sense can the owners be considered the successors of appropriators and expropriators. In fact, they are mandatories of the consumers, bound by the operation of the market to serve the consumers best. Capitalism is the consummation of the self-determination of the consumers. The meaning of private property in the market society is radically different from what it is under a system of each household's autarky. Where each household is economically self-sufficient, the privately owned means of production exclusively serve the proprietor. He alone reaps all the benefits derived from their employment. In the market society, the proprietors of capital and land can enjoy their property only by employing it for the satisfaction of other people's wants. They must serve the consumers in order to have any advantage from what is their own. The very fact that they own means of production forces them to submit to the wishes of the public. Ownership is an asset only for those who know how to employ it in the best possible way for the benefit of the consumers. It is a social function. 5. The Conflicts of Our Age Popular opinion sees the source of the conflicts which bring about the civil wars and international wars of our age in the collision of economic interests inherent in the market economy. Civil war is the rebellion of the exploited masses against the exploiting classes. Foreign war is the revolt of the have-not nations against those nations who have appropriated to themselves an unfair share of the earth's natural resources, and with insatiable greed want to snatch even more of this wealth destined for the use of all. He who in face of these facts speaks of the harmony of the rightly understood interests is either a moron or an infamous apologist of a manifestly unjust social order. No intelligent and honest man could fail to realize that there prevail today irreconcilable conflicts of material interests, which can be settled only by recourse to arms. 
It is certainly true that our age is full of conflicts which generate war. However, these conflicts do not spring from the operation of the unhampered market society. It may be permissible to call them economic conflicts because they concern that sphere of human life, which is, in common speech, known as the sphere of economic activities. But it is a serious blunder to infer from this appellation that the source of these conflicts are conditions which develop within the frame of a market society. It is not capitalism that produces them, but precisely the anti-capitalistic policies designed to check the functioning of capitalism. They are an outgrowth of the various governments' interference with business, of trade and migration barriers, and discrimination against foreign labor, foreign products, and foreign capital. None of these conflicts could have emerged in an unhampered market economy. Imagine a world in which everybody were free to live and work as entrepreneur or as employee, where he wanted and how he chose, and ask which of these conflicts could still exist. Imagine a world in which the principle of private ownership of the means of production is fully realized, in which there are no institutions hindering the mobility of capital, labor, and commodities in which the laws, the courts, and the administrative officers do not discriminate against any individual or group of individuals, whether native or alien. Imagine a state of affairs in which governments are devoted exclusively to the task of protecting the individual's life, health, and property against violent and fraudulent aggression. In such a world, the frontiers are drawn on the maps, but they do not hinder anybody from the pursuit of what he thinks will make him more prosperous. No individual is interested in the expansion of the size of his nation's territory, as he cannot derive any gain from such an aggrandizement. Conquest does not pay, and war becomes obsolete. In the ages preceding the rise of liberalism and the evolution of modern capitalism, people for the most part consumed only what could be produced out of raw materials available in their own neighborhood. The development of the international division of labor has radically altered this state of affairs. Food and raw materials imported from distant countries are articles of mass consumption, The most advanced European nations could do without these imports only at the price of a very considerable lowering of their standard of living. They must pay for the badly needed purchase of minerals, lumber, oil, cereals, fat, coffee, tea, cocoa, fruit, wool, and cotton by exporting manufactures, most of them processed out of imported raw materials. Their vital interests are hurt by the protectionist trade policies of the countries producing these primary products. Two hundred years ago, it was of little concern to the Swedes or the Swiss whether or not a non-European country was efficient in utilizing its natural resources. But today, economic backwardness in a foreign country, endowed by rich natural resources, hurts the interests of all those whose standard of living could be raised if a more appropriate mode of utilizing this natural wealth were adopted. 
The principle of each nation's unrestricted sovereignty is, in a world of government interference with business, a challenge to all other nations. The conflict between the have-nots and the haves is a real conflict, but it is present only in a world in which any sovereign government is free to hurt the interests of all peoples, its own included, by depriving the consumers of the advantages a better exploitation of this country's resources would give them. It is not sovereignty as such that makes for war, but sovereignty of governments not entirely committed to the principles of the market economy. Liberalism did not and does not build its hopes upon abolition of the sovereignty of the various national governments, a venture which would result in endless wars. It aims at a general recognition of the idea of economic freedom. If all peoples become liberal and conceive that economic freedom best serves their own interests, national sovereignty will no longer engender conflict and war. What is needed to make peace durable is neither international treaties and covenants, nor international tribunals and organizations like the defunct League of Nations or its successor, the United Nations. If the principle of the market economy is universally accepted, such makeshifts are unnecessary. If it is not accepted, they are futile. Durable peace can only be the outgrowth of a change in ideologies. As long as the peoples cling to the Montaigne dogma and think that they cannot prosper economically except at the expense of other nations, peace will never be anything other than a period of preparation for the next war. Economic nationalism is incompatible with durable peace. Yet economic nationalism is unavoidable where there is government interference with business. Protectionism is indispensable where there is no domestic free trade. Where there is government interference with business, free trade, even in the short run, would frustrate the aims sought by the various interventionist measures. It is an illusion to believe that a nation would lastingly tolerate other nations' policies which harm the vital interest of its own citizens. Let us assume that the United Nations had been established in the year 1600, and that the Indian tribes of North America had been admitted as members of this organization. Then the sovereignty of these Indians would have been recognized as inviolable. They would have been given the right to exclude all aliens from entering their territory, and from exploiting its rich natural resources, which they themselves did not know how to utilize. Does anybody really believe that any international covenant or charter could have prevented the Europeans from invading these countries? Many of the richest deposits of various mineral substances are located in areas whose inhabitants are too ignorant, too inert, or too dull to take advantage of the riches nature has bestowed upon them. If the governments of these countries prevent aliens from exploiting these deposits, or if their conduct of public affairs is so arbitrary that no foreign investments are safe, serious harm is inflicted upon all those foreign peoples whose material well-being could be improved by a more adequate utilization of the deposits concerned.
It does not matter whether the policies of these governments are the outcome of a general cultural backwardness or of the adoption of the now fashionable ideas of interventionism and economic nationalism. The result is the same in both cases. There is no use in conjuring away these conflicts by wishful thinking. What is needed to make peace durable is a change in ideologies. What generates war is the economic philosophy almost universally espoused today by governments and political parties. As this philosophy sees it, there prevail within the unhampered market economy irreconcilable conflicts between the interests of various nations. Free trade harms a nation. It brings about impoverishment. It is the duty of government to prevent the evils of free trade by trade barriers. We may, for the sake of argument, disregard the fact that protectionism also hurts the interests of the nations which resort to it. But there can be no doubt that protectionism aims at damaging the interests of foreign peoples, and really does damage them. It is an illusion to assume that those injured will tolerate other nations' protectionism if they believe that they are strong enough to brush it away by the use of arms. The philosophy of protectionism is a philosophy of war. The wars of our age are not at variance with popular economic doctrines. They are, on the contrary, the inescapable result of a consistent application of these doctrines. The League of Nations did not fail because its organization was deficient. It failed because it lacked the spirit of genuine liberalism. It was a convention of governments imbued with the spirit of economic nationalism and entirely committed to the principles of economic warfare. While the delegates indulged in mere academic talk about goodwill among the nations, the governments whom they represented inflicted a good deal of evil upon all other nations. The two decades of the League's functioning were marked by each nation's adamant economic warfare against all other nations. The tariff protectionism of the years before 1914 was mild indeed when compared with what developed in the twenties and thirties, namely embargoes, quantitative trade control, foreign exchange control, monetary devaluation, and so on. The prospects for the United Nations are not better, but rather worse. Every nation looks upon imports, especially upon imports of manufactured goods, as upon a disaster. It is the avowed goal of almost all countries to bar foreign manufacturers as much as possible from access to their domestic markets. Almost all nations are fighting against the specter of an unfavorable balance of trade. They do not want to cooperate. They want to protect themselves against the alleged dangers of cooperation. Part 5. Social Cooperation Without a Market Chapter 25. The Imaginary Construction of a Socialist Society 1. The Historical Origin of the Socialist Idea when the social philosophers of the 18th century laid the foundations of praxeology and economics, they were confronted with an almost universally accepted and uncontested distinction between the petty, selfish individuals and the state, 
the representative of the interests of the whole society. However, at that time, the deification process, which finally elevated the men managing the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion into the ranks of the gods, was not yet completed. What people had in mind when speaking of government was not yet the quasi-theological notion of an omnipotent and omniscient deity, the perfect embodiment of all virtues. It was the concrete governments as they acted on the political scene. It was the various sovereign entities whose territorial size was the outcome of bloody wars, diplomatic intrigues, and dynastic intermarriage and succession. It was the princes whose private domain and revenue were in many countries not yet separated from the public treasury, and oligarchic republics like Venice and some of the Swiss cantons, in which the ultimate objective of the conduct of public affairs was to enrich the ruling aristocracy. The interests of these rulers were in opposition to those of their selfish subjects, exclusively committed to the pursuit of their own happiness on the one hand, and to those of foreign governments longing for booty and territorial aggrandizement on the other hand. In dealing with these antagonisms, the authors of books on public affairs were ready to espouse the cause of their own country's government. They assumed, quite candidly, that the rulers are the champions of the interests of the whole society, irreconcilably conflicting with those of the individuals. In checking the selfishness of their subjects, governments were promoting the welfare of the whole of society as against the mean concerns of individuals. The liberal philosophy discarded these notions. From its point of view, there are within the unhampered market society no conflicts of the rightly understood interests. The interests of the citizens are not opposed to those of the nation. The interests of each nation are not opposed to those of other nations. Yet in demonstrating this thesis, the liberal philosophers themselves contributed an essential element to the notion of the godlike state. They substituted in their inquiries the image of an ideal state for the real states of their age. They constructed the vague image of a government whose only objective is to make its citizens happy. This ideal had certainly no counterpart in the Europe of the Ancien Régime. In this Europe there were German princelings who sold their subjects like cattle to fight the wars of foreign nations. There were kings who seized every opportunity to rush upon weaker neighbors. There was the shocking experience of the partitions of Poland. There was France, successively governed by the century's most profligate men, the Regent Orléans and Louis XV. And there was Spain, ruled by the ill-bred paramour of an adulterous queen. However, the liberal philosophers deal only with a state which has nothing in common with these governments of corrupt courts and aristocracies. The state, as it appears in their writings, is governed by a perfect superhuman being, a king whose only aim is to promote the welfare of his subjects. Starting from this assumption, they raise the question of whether the actions of the individual citizens, when left free from any authoritarian control, would not develop along lines of which this good and wise king would disapprove. 
the liberal philosopher answers this question in the negative. It is true, he admits, that the entrepreneurs are selfish and seek their own profit. However, in the market economy they can earn profits only by satisfying in the best possible way the most urgent needs of the consumers. The objectives of entrepreneurship do not differ from those of the perfect king. For this benevolent king, too, aims at nothing else than such an employment of the means of production that the maximum of consumer satisfaction can be reached. It is obvious that this reasoning introduces value judgments and political bias into the treatment of the problems. This paternal ruler is merely an alias for the economist, who, by means of this trick, elevates his personal value judgments to the dignity of a universally valid standard of absolute eternal values. The author identifies himself with the perfect king, and calls the ends he himself would choose if he were equipped with this king's power, welfare, commonweal, and volkswirtschaftliche productivity as distinct from the ends toward which the selfish individuals are striving. He is so naive as not to see that this hypothetical chief of state is merely a hypostatization of his own arbitrary value judgments and blithely assumes that he has discovered an incontestable standard of good and evil. Masked as the benevolent paternal autocrat, the author's own ego is enshrined as the voice of the absolute moral law. The essential characteristic of the imaginary construction of this king's ideal regime is that all its citizens are unconditionally subject to authoritarian control. The king issues orders, and all obey. This is not a market economy. There is no longer private ownership of the means of production. The terminology of the market economy is retained, but in fact there is no longer any private ownership of the means of production, no real buying and selling, and no market prices. Production is not directed by the conduct of the consumers displayed on the market, but by authoritarian decrees. The authority assigns to everybody his station in the system of the social division of labor, determines what should be produced, and how and what each individual is allowed to consume. This is what nowadays can properly be called the German variety of socialist management. Now the economists compare this hypothetical system, which in their eyes embodies the moral law itself, with the market economy. The best they can say of the market economy is that it does not bring about a state of affairs different from that produced by the supremacy of the perfect autocrat. They approve of the market economy only because its operation, as they see it, ultimately attains the same results the perfect king would aim at. Thus the simple identification of what is morally good and economically expedient with the plans of the totalitarian dictator that characterizes all champions of planning and socialism was not contested by many of the old liberals. One must even assert that they originated this confusion when they substituted the ideal image of the perfect state for the wicked and unscrupulous despots and politicians of the real world. 
Of course, for the liberal thinker, this perfect state was merely an auxiliary tool of reasoning, a model with which he compared the operation of the market economy. But it was not amazing that people finally raised the question as to why one should not transfer this ideal state from the realm of thought into the realm of reality. All older social reformers wanted to realize the good society by a confiscation of all private property and its subsequent redistribution. Each man's share should be equal to that of every other, and continuous vigilance by the authorities should safeguard the preservation of this equalitarian system. These plans became unrealizable when the large-scale enterprises in manufacturing, mining, and transportation appeared. There cannot be any question of splitting up large-scale business units and distributing the fragments in equal shares. There are, however, even today in the United States, people who want to knock to pieces large-scale production and to do away with corporate business. The age-old program of redistribution was superseded by the idea of socialization. The means of production were to be expropriated, but no redistribution was to be resorted to. The state itself was to run all the plants and farms. This inference became logically inescapable as soon as people began to ascribe to the state not only moral but also intellectual perfection. The liberal philosophers had described their imaginary state as an unselfish entity, exclusively committed to the best possible improvement of its subject's welfare. They had discovered that in the frame of a market society, the citizen's selfishness must bring about the same results that this unselfish state would seek to realize. It was precisely this fact that justified the preservation of the market economy in their eyes. But things became different as soon as people began to ascribe to the state not only the best intentions, but also omniscience. Then one could not help concluding that the infallible state was in a position to succeed in the conduct of production activities better than erring individuals. It would avoid all those errors that often frustrate the actions of entrepreneurs and capitalists. There would no longer be malinvestment or squandering of scarce factors of production. Wealth would multiply. The anarchy of production appears wasteful when contrasted with the planning of the omniscient state. The socialist mode of production then appears to be the only reasonable system, and the market economy seems the incarnation of unreason. In the eyes of the rationalist advocates of socialism, the market economy is simply an incomprehensible aberration of mankind. In the eyes of those influenced by historicism, the market economy is the social order of an inferior stage of human evolution, which the inescapable progress of progressive perfection will eliminate in order to establish the more adequate system of socialism. Both lines of thought agree that reason itself postulates the transition to socialism. What the naive mind calls reason is nothing but the absolutization of its own value judgments. The individual simply identifies the products of his own reasoning with the shaky notion of an absolute reason. 
No socialist ever gave a thought to the possibility that the abstract entity which he wants to vest with unlimited power, whether it is called humanity, society, nation, state, or government, could act in a way of which he himself disapproves. A socialist advocates socialism because he is fully convinced that the supreme director of the socialist commonwealth will be reasonable from his, the individual socialist's, point of view, that he will aim at those ends of which he, the individual socialist, fully approves, and that he will try to attain these ends by choosing means which he, the individual socialist, would also choose. Every socialist calls only that system a genuinely socialist system in which these conditions are completely fulfilled. All other brands claiming the name of socialism are counterfeit systems, entirely different from true socialism. Every socialist is a disguised dictator. Woe to all dissenters! They have forfeited their right to live and must be liquidated. The market economy makes peaceful cooperation among people possible in spite of the fact that they disagree with regard to their value judgments. In the plans of the socialists, there is no room left for dissenting views. Their principle is Gleichschaltung, perfect uniformity enforced by the police. People frequently call socialism a religion. It is, indeed, the religion of self-deification. The state and government of which the planners speak, the people of the nationalists, the society of the Marxians, and the humanity of the positivists, are names for the god of the new religions. But all these idols are merely aliases for the individual reformer's own will. In ascribing to his idol all those attributes which the theologians ascribe to God, the inflated ego glorifies itself. It is infinitely good, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal. It is the only perfect being in this imperfect world. Economics is not called to examine blind faith and bigotry. The faithful are proof against every criticism. In their eyes, criticism is scandalous, a blasphemous revolt of wicked men against the imperishable splendor of their idol. Economics deals merely with the socialist plans, not with the psychological factors that impel people to espouse the religion of statolatry. 2. The Socialist Doctrine Karl Marx was not the originator of socialism. The idea of socialism was fully elaborated when Marx adopted the socialist creed. Nothing could be added to the praxeological description of the socialist system as developed by his predecessors, and Marx did not add anything. Neither did Marx refute the objections against the feasibility, desirability, and advantageousness of socialism raised by earlier authors and by his contemporaries. He never even embarked upon such a venture, fully aware as he was of his inability to succeed in it. All that he did to fight the criticisms of socialism was to hatch out the doctrine of polylogism. However, the services that Marx rendered to the socialist propaganda were not confined to the invention of polylogism. 
Still more important was his doctrine of the inevitability of socialism. Marx lived in an age in which the doctrine of evolutionary meliorism was almost generally accepted. The invisible hand of providence leads men, independently of their wills, from lower and less perfect stages to higher and more perfect ones. There prevails in the course of human history an inevitable tendency toward progress and improvement. Each later stage of human affairs is, by virtue of its being a later stage, also a higher and better stage. Nothing is permanent in human conditions except this irresistible urge toward progress. Hegel, who died a few years before Marx entered the scene, had presented this doctrine in his fascinating philosophy of history, and Nietzsche, who entered the scene just at the time when Marx withdrew, made it the focal point of his no less fascinating writings. It has been the myth of the last two hundred years. What Marx did was to integrate the socialist creed into this meliorist doctrine. The coming of socialism is inevitable, and this by itself proves that socialism is a higher and more perfect state of human affairs than the preceding state of capitalism. It is vain to discuss the pros and cons of socialism. Socialism is bound to come with the inexorability of a law of nature. Only morons can be so stupid as to question whether what is bound to come is more beneficial than what preceded it. Only bribed apologists of the unjust claims of the exploiters can be so insolent as to find any fault with socialism. If we attribute the epithet Marxian to all those who agree with this doctrine, we must call the immense majority of our contemporaries Marxians. These people agree that the coming of socialism is both absolutely inevitable and highly desirable. The wave of the future drives mankind toward socialism. Of course, they disagree with one another as to who is to be entrusted with the captaincy of the socialist ship of state. There are many candidates for this job. Marx tried to prove his prophecy in a twofold way. The first is the method of Hegelian dialectics. Capitalist private property is the first negation of individual private property, and must beget its own negation, namely the establishment of public property in the means of production. Things were as simple as that for the hosts of Hegelian writers who infested Germany in the days of Marx. The second method is the demonstration of the unsatisfactory conditions brought about by capitalism. Marx's critique of the capitalist mode of production is entirely wrong. Even the most orthodox Marxians are not bold enough to support seriously its essential thesis, namely that capitalism results in a progressive impoverishment of the wage earners. But if one admits, for the sake of argument, all the absurdities of the Marxian analysis of capitalism, nothing is yet won for the demonstration of the two theses, namely that socialism is bound to come, and that it is not only a better system than capitalism, but even the most perfect system, the final realization of which will bring to man eternal bliss in his earthly life. 
All the sophisticated syllogisms of the ponderous volumes published by Marx, Engels, and hundreds of Marxian authors cannot conceal the fact that the only and ultimate source of Marx's prophecy is an alleged inspiration by virtue of which Marx claims to have guessed the plans of the mysterious powers determining the course of history. Like Hegel, Marx was a prophet, communicating to the people the revelation that an inner voice had imparted to him. The outstanding fact in the history of socialism between 1848 and 1920 was that the essential problems concerning its working were hardly ever touched upon. The Marxian taboo branded all attempts to examine the economic problems of a socialist commonwealth as unscientific. Nobody was bold enough to defy this ban. It was tacitly assumed by both the friends and the foes of socialism that socialism is a realizable system of mankind's economic organization. The vast literature concerning socialism dealt with alleged shortcomings of capitalism and with the general cultural implications of socialism. It never dealt with the economics of socialism as such. The socialist creed rests upon three dogmas. First, society is an omnipotent and omniscient being, free from human frailty and weakness. Second, the coming of socialism is inevitable. Third, as history is a continuous progress from less perfect conditions to more perfect conditions, the coming of socialism is desirable. For praxeology and economics, the only problem to be discussed in regard to socialism is this. Can a socialist system operate as a system of the division of labor? 3. The Praxeological Character of Socialism The essential mark of socialism is that one will alone acts. It is immaterial whose will it is. The director may be an anointed king or a dictator, ruling by virtue of his charisma. He may be a fuhrer or a board of fuhrers appointed by the vote of the people. The main thing is that the employment of all factors of production is directed by one agency only. One will alone chooses, decides, directs, acts, gives orders. All the rest simply obey orders and instructions. Organization and a planned order are substituted for the anarchy of production and for various people's initiative. Social cooperation under the division of labor is safeguarded by a system of hegemonic bonds in which a director peremptorily calls upon the obedience of all his wards. In terming the director society, as the Marxians do, state with a capital S, government or authority, people tend to forget that the director is always a human being not an abstract notion or a mythical collective entity. We may admit that the director or the board of directors are people of superior ability, wise and full of good intentions, but it would be nothing short of idiocy to assume that they are omniscient and infallible. In a praxeological analysis of the problems of socialism, we are not concerned with the moral and ethical character of the director, 
Neither do we discuss his value judgments and his choice of ultimate ends. What we are dealing with is merely the question of whether any mortal man, equipped with the logical structure of the human mind, can be equal to the tasks incumbent upon a director of a socialist society. We assume that the director has at his disposal all the technological knowledge of his age. Moreover, he has a complete inventory of all the material factors of production available, and a roster enumerating all manpower employable. In these respects, the crowd of experts and specialists which he assembles in his offices provide him with perfect information and answer correctly all questions he may ask them. Their voluminous reports accumulate in huge piles on his desk. But now he must act. He must choose among an infinite variety of projects in such a way that no want which he himself considers more urgent remains unsatisfied because the factors of production required for its satisfaction are employed for the satisfaction of wants which he considers less urgent. It is important to realize that this problem has nothing at all to do with the valuation of the ultimate ends. It refers only to the means by the employment of which the ultimate ends chosen are to be attained. We assume that the director has made up his mind with regard to the valuation of ultimate ends. We do not question his decision. Neither do we raise the question of whether the people, the wards, approve or disapprove of their director's decisions. We may assume, for the sake of argument, that a mysterious power makes everyone agree with one another and with the director in the valuation of ultimate ends. Our problem, the crucial and only problem of socialism, is a purely economic problem, and as such refers merely to means and not to ultimate ends. Chapter 26 the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism. 1. The Problem The director wants to build a house. Now there are many methods that can be resorted to. Each of them offers, from the point of view of the director, certain advantages and disadvantages with regard to the utilization of the future building, and results in a different duration of the building's serviceableness. Each of them requires other expenditures of building materials and labor and absorbs other periods of production. Which method should the director choose? He cannot reduce to a common denominator the items of various materials and various kinds of labor to be expended. Therefore, he cannot compare them. He cannot attach either to the waiting time, period of production, or to the duration of serviceableness, a definite numerical expression. In short, he cannot, in comparing costs to be expended and gains to be earned, resort to any arithmetical operation. The plans of his architects enumerate a vast multiplicity of various items in kind. They refer to the physical and chemical qualities of various materials and to the physical productivity of various machines, tools, and procedures. But all their statements remain unrelated to each other. There is no means of establishing any connection between them. 
Imagine the plight of the director when faced with a project. What he needs to know is whether or not the execution of the project will increase well-being, that is, add something to the wealth available without impairing the satisfaction of wants which he considers more urgent. But none of the reports he receives give him any clue to the solution of this problem. We may, for the sake of argument, at first disregard the dilemmas involved in the choice of consumers' goods to be produced. We may assume that this problem is settled. But there is the embarrassing multitude of producers' goods and the infinite variety of procedures that can be resorted to for manufacturing definite consumers' goods. The most advantageous location of each industry and the optimum size of each plant and of each piece of equipment must be determined. One must determine what kind of mechanical power should be employed in each of them and which of the various formulas for the production of this energy should be applied. All these problems are raised daily in thousands and thousands of cases. Each case offers special conditions and requires an individual solution appropriate to these special data. The number of elements with which the director's decision has to deal is much greater than would be indicated by a merely technological description of the available producer's goods in terms of physics and chemistry. The location of each of them must be taken into consideration, as well as the serviceableness of the capital investments made in the past for their utilization. The director does not simply have to deal with coal as such, but with thousands and thousands of pits already in operation in various places and with the possibilities for digging new pits, with the various methods of mining in each of them, with the different qualities of the coal in various deposits, with the various methods for utilizing the coal for the production of heat, power, and a great number of derivatives. It is permissible to say that the present state of technological knowledge makes it possible to produce almost anything out of almost everything. Our ancestors, for instance, knew only a limited number of employments for wood. Modern technology has added a multitude of possible new employments. Wood can be used for the production of paper, of various textile fibers, of foodstuffs, drugs, and many other synthetic products. Today, two methods are resorted to for providing a city with clean water. Either one brings the water over long distances in aqueducts, an ancient method long practiced, or one chemically purifies the water available in the city's neighborhood. Why does one not produce water synthetically in factories? Modern technology could easily solve the technological problems involved. The average man in his mental inertia is ready to ridicule such projects as sheer lunacy. However, the only reason why the synthetic production of drinking water today, perhaps not at a later day, is out of the question, is that economic calculation in terms of money shows that it is a more expensive procedure than other methods. Eliminate economic calculation, and you have no means of making a rational choice between the various alternatives. The socialists, it is true, object that economic calculation is not infallible. 
They say that the capitalists sometimes make mistakes in their calculation. Of course, this happens, and will always happen. For all human action points to the future, and the future is always uncertain. The most carefully elaborated plans are frustrated if expectations concerning the future are dashed to the ground. However, this is quite a different problem. Today we calculate from the point of view of our present knowledge and of our present anticipation of future conditions. We do not deal with the problem of whether or not the director will be able to anticipate future conditions. What we have in mind is that the director cannot calculate from the point of view of his own present value judgments and his own present anticipations of future conditions, whatever they may be. If he invests today in the canning industry, it may happen that a change in consumers' tastes or in the hygienic opinions concerning the wholesomeness of canned food will one day turn his investment into a malinvestment. But how can he find out today how to build and equip a cannery most economically? Some railroad lines constructed at the turn of the century would not have been built if people had at that time anticipated the impending advance of motoring and aviation. But those who at that time built railroads knew which of the various possible alternatives for the realization of their plans they had to choose, from the point of view of their appraisements and anticipations, and of the market prices of their day in which the valuations of the consumers were reflected. It is precisely this insight that the director will lack. He will be like a sailor on the high seas, unfamiliar with the methods of navigation, or like a medieval scholar entrusted with the technical operation of a railroad engine. We have assumed that the director has already made up his mind with regard to the construction of a definite plant or building. However, in order to make such a decision, he already needs economic calculation. If a hydroelectric power station is to be built, one must know whether or not this is the most economical way to produce the energy needed. How can he know this if he cannot calculate costs and output? We may admit that in its initial period, a socialist regime could, to some extent, rely upon the experience of the preceding age of capitalism. But what is to be done later, as conditions change more and more? Of what use could the prices of 1900 be for the director in 1949? And what use can the director in 1980 derive from the knowledge of the prices of 1949? The paradox of planning is that it cannot plan because of the absence of economic calculation. What is called a planned economy is no economy at all. It is just a system of groping about in the dark. There is no question of a rational choice of means for the best possible attainment of the ultimate end sought. What is called conscious planning is precisely the elimination of conscious purposive action. 2. Past Failures to Conceive the Problem For more than a hundred years, the substitution of socialist planning for private enterprise has been the main political issue. 
Thousands and thousands of books have been published for and against the communist plans. No other subject has been more eagerly discussed in private circles, in the press, in public gatherings, in the meetings of learned societies, in election campaigns, and in parliaments. Wars have been fought, and rivers of blood have been shed for the cause of socialism. Yet in all these years, the essential question has not been raised. It is true that some eminent economists, Hermann Heinrich Gossen, Albert Schaeffle, Wilfredo Pareto, Nicolas G. Pearson, Enrico Barone, touched upon the problem. But with the exception of Pearson, they did not penetrate to the core of the problem, and they all failed to recognize its primordial importance. Neither did they venture to integrate it into the system of the theory of human action. It was these failures which prevented people from paying attention to their observations. They were disregarded and soon fell into oblivion. It would be a serious mistake to blame the historical school and institutionalism for this neglect of mankind's most vital problem. These two lines of thought fanatically disparage economics, the dismal science, in the interests of their interventionist or socialist propaganda. However, they have not succeeded in suppressing the study of economics entirely. The puzzling thing is not why the detractors of economics failed to recognize the problem, but why the economists were guilty of the same fault. It is the two fundamental errors of mathematical economics that must be indicted. The mathematical economists are almost exclusively intent upon the study of what they call economic equilibrium and the static state. Recourse to the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy is, as has been pointed out, an indispensable mental tool of economic reasoning. But it is a grave mistake to consider this auxiliary tool as anything else than an imaginary construction, and to overlook the fact that it has not only no counterpart in reality, but cannot even be thought through consistently to its ultimate logical consequences. The mathematical economist, blinded by the prepossession that economics must be constructed according to the pattern of Newtonian mechanics, and is open to treatment by mathematical methods, misconstrues entirely the subject matter of his investigations. He no longer deals with human action, but with a soulless mechanism mysteriously actuated by forces not open to further analysis. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, there is, of course, no room for the entrepreneurial function. Thus, the mathematical economist eliminates the entrepreneur from his thought. He has no need for this mover and shaker, whose never-ceasing intervention prevents the imaginary system from reaching the state of perfect equilibrium and static conditions. He hates the entrepreneur as a disturbing element. The prices of the factors of production, as the mathematical economist sees it, are determined by the intersection of two curves, not by human action.
Moreover, in drawing his cherished curves of cost and price, the mathematical economist fails to see that the reduction of costs and prices to homogeneous magnitudes implies the use of a common medium of exchange. Thus he creates the illusion that calculation of costs and prices could be resorted to even in the absence of a common denominator of the exchange ratios of the factors of production. The result is that from the writings of the mathematical economists, the imaginary construction of a socialist commonwealth emerges as a realizable system of cooperation under the division of labor as a full-fledged alternative to the economic system based on private control of the means of production. The director of the socialist community will be in a position to allocate the various factors of production in a rational way, that is, on the ground of calculation. Men can have both socialist cooperation under the division of labor and rational employment of the factors of production. They are free to adopt socialism without abandoning economy in the choice of means. Socialism does not enjoin the renunciation of rationality in the employment of the factors of production. It is a variety of rational social action. An apparent verification of these errors was seen in the experience of the socialist governments of Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. People did not realize that these were not isolated socialist systems. They were operating in an environment in which the price system still worked. They could resort to economic calculation on the ground of the prices established abroad. Without the aid of these prices, their actions would have been aimless and planless, Only because they were able to refer to these foreign prices were they able to calculate, to keep books, and to prepare their much-talked-about plans. 3. Recent Suggestions for Socialist Economic Calculation The socialist tracks deal with everything except the essential and unique problem of socialism, namely economic calculation. It is only in the last years that socialist writers have no longer been able to avoid paying attention to this primordial matter. They have begun to suspect that the Marxian technique of smearing bourgeois economics is not an entirely sufficient method for the realization of the socialist utopia. They have tried to substitute a theory of socialism for the scurrilous Hegelian metaphysics of the Marxian doctrine. They have embarked upon designing schemes for socialist economic calculation. Of course, they have lamentably failed in this task. It would hardly be necessary to deal with their spurious suggestions were it not for the fact that such examination offers a good opportunity to bring into relief fundamental features both of the market society and of the imaginary construction of a non-market society. The various schemes proposed can be classified in the following way. 1. Calculation in kind is to be substituted for calculation in terms of money. This method is worthless. One cannot add or subtract numbers of different kinds, heterogeneous quantities. 2. Starting from the ideas of the labor theory of value, the labor hour is recommended as the unit of calculation. 
This suggestion does not take into account the original material factors of production and ignores the different qualities of work accomplished in the various labor hours worked by the same and by different people. 3. The unit is to be a quantity of utility. However, acting man does not measure utility. He arranges it in scales of gradation. Market prices are not expressive of equivalence, but of a divergence in the valuation of the two exchanging parties. It is impermissible to neglect the fundamental theorem of modern economics, namely that the value attached to one unit of a supply of n-1 units is greater than that attached to one unit of a supply of n units. 4. Calculation is to be made possible by the establishment of an artificial quasi-market. This scheme is dealt with in Section 5 of this chapter. 5. Calculation is to be made with the aid of the differential equations of mathematical catalactics. This scheme is dealt with in Section 6 of this chapter. 6. Calculation is to be made superfluous by resorting to the method of trial and error. This idea is dealt with in Section 4 of this chapter. 4. Trial and Error The entrepreneurs and capitalists do not have advance assurance about whether their plans are the most appropriate solution for the allocation of factors of production to the various branches of industry. It is only later experience that shows them, after the event, whether they were right or wrong in their enterprises and investments. The method they apply is the method of trial and error. Why, say some socialists, should not the socialist director resort to the same method? The method of trial and error is applicable in all cases in which the correct solution is recognizable as such by unmistakable marks not dependent on the method of trial and error itself. If a man mislays his wallet, he may hunt for it in various places. If he finds it, he recognizes it as his property. There is no doubt about the success of the method of trial and error applied. He has solved his problem. When Ehrlich was looking for a remedy for syphilis, he tested hundreds of drugs until he found what he was searching for, a drug that killed the spirochetes without damaging the human body. The mark of the correct solution, the drug number 606, was that it combined these two qualities, as could be learned from laboratory experiment and from clinical experience. Things are quite different if the only mark of the correct solution is that it has been reached by the application of a method considered appropriate for the solution of the problem. The correct result of a multiplication of two factors is recognizable only as the result of a correct application of the process indicated by arithmetic. One may try to guess the correct result by trial and error, but here the method of trial and error is no substitute for the arithmetical process. It would be quite futile if the arithmetical process did not provide a yardstick for discriminating what is incorrect from what is correct.
If one wants to call entrepreneurial action an application of the method of trial and error, one must not forget that the correct solution is easily recognizable as such. It is the emergence of a surplus of proceeds over costs. Profit tells the entrepreneur that the consumers approve of his ventures, loss that they disapprove. The problem of socialist economic calculation is precisely this, that in the absence of market prices for the factors of production, a computation of profit or loss is not feasible. We may assume that in the socialist commonwealth there is a market for consumers' goods, and that money prices for consumers' goods are determined on this market. We may assume that the director assigns periodically to every member a certain amount of money, and sells the consumers' goods to those bidding the highest prices. Or we may as well assume that a certain portion of the various consumers' goods in kind is allotted to each member, and that the members are free to exchange these goods against other goods on a market in which the transactions are effected through a common medium of exchange, a sort of money. But the characteristic mark of the socialist system is that the producer's goods are controlled by one agency only, in whose name the director acts, that they are neither bought nor sold, and that there are no prices for them. Thus, there cannot be any question of comparing input and output by the methods of arithmetic. We do not assert that the capitalist mode of economic calculation guarantees the absolutely best solution of the allocation of factors of production. Such absolutely perfect solutions of any problem are out of reach of mortal men. What the operation of a market not sabotaged by the interference of compulsion and coercion can bring about is merely the best solution accessible to the human mind under the given state of technological knowledge and the intellectual abilities of the age's shrewdest men. As soon as any man discovers a discrepancy between the real state of production and a realizable better state— the profit motive pushes him toward the utmost effort to realize his plans. Better means, of course, more satisfactory from the point of view of the consumers buying on the market. The sale of his products will show whether he was right or wrong in his anticipations. The market daily tries the entrepreneurs anew and eliminates those who cannot stand the test. It tends to entrust the conduct of business affairs to those men who have succeeded in filling the most urgent wants of the consumers. This is the only important respect in which one can call the market economy a system of trial and error. 5. The Quasi-Market the distinctive mark of socialism is the oneness and indivisibility of the will directing all production activities within the whole social system. When the socialists declare that order and organization are to be substituted for the anarchy of production, conscious action for the alleged planlessness of capitalism, true cooperation for competition, production for use for production for profit, 
What they have in mind is always the substitution of the exclusive and monopolistic power of only one agency for the infinite multitude of the plans of the individual consumers and those attending to the wishes of the consumers, the entrepreneurs and capitalists. The essence of socialism is the entire elimination of the market and of catalactic competition. The socialist system is a system without a market and market prices for the factors of production and without competition. It means the unrestricted centralization and unification of the conduct of all affairs in the hands of one authority. In the drafting of the unique plan that directs all economic activities, the citizens cooperate, if at all, only by electing the director or the board of directors. For the rest, they are only subordinates, bound to obey unconditionally the orders issued by the director, and wards of whose well-being the director takes care. All the excellences the socialists ascribe to socialism and all the blessings they expect from its realization are described as the necessary outcome of this absolute unification and centralization. It is, therefore, nothing short of a full acknowledgment of the correctness and irrefutability of the economists' analysis and devastating critique of the socialists' plans that the intellectual leaders of socialism are now busy designing schemes for a socialist system in which the market, market prices for the factors of production, and catalactic competition are to be preserved. The overwhelmingly rapid triumph of the demonstration that no economic calculation is possible under a socialist system is without precedent indeed in the history of human thought. The socialists cannot help admitting their crushing final defeat. They no longer claim that socialism is matchlessly superior to capitalism because it brushes away markets, market prices, and competition. On the contrary, they are now eager to justify socialism by pointing out that it is possible to preserve these institutions even under socialism. They are drafting outlines for a socialism in which there are prices and competition. This refers, of course, only to those socialists or communists who, like Professors H. D. Dickinson and Oscar Lange, are conversant with economic thought. The dull hosts of the intellectuals will not abandon their superstitious belief in the superiority of socialism. Superstitions die hard. What these neo-socialists suggest is really paradoxical. They want to abolish private control of the means of production, market exchange, market prices, and competition— but at the same time they want to organize the socialist utopia in such a way that people could act as if these things were still present. They want people to play market as children play war, railroad, or school. They do not comprehend how such childish play differs from the real thing it tries to imitate. It was, say these neo-socialists, a serious mistake on the part of the older socialists, that is, of all socialists before 1920, to believe that socialism necessarily requires the abolition of the market and of market exchange, 
and even that this fact is both the essential element and the preeminent feature of a socialist economy. This idea is, as they reluctantly admit, preposterous, and its realization would result in a chaotic muddle. But fortunately, they say, there is a better pattern for socialism available. It is possible to instruct the managers of the various production units to conduct the affairs of their unit in the same way they did under capitalism. The manager of a corporation operates in the market society not on his account and at his own peril, but for the benefit of the corporation, that is, the shareholders. He will go on under socialism in the same way, with the same care and attention. The only difference will consist in the fact that the fruits of his endeavors will enrich the whole society, not the shareholders. For the rest, he will buy and sell, recruit and pay workers, and try to make profits in the same way he did before. The transition from the managerial system of mature capitalism to the managerial system of the planned socialist commonwealth will be smoothly effected. Nothing will change except the ownership of the capital invested. Society will be substituted for the shareholders. The people will henceforth pocket the dividends. That is all. The cardinal fallacy implied in this and all kindred proposals is that they look at the economic problem from the perspective of the subaltern clerk, whose intellectual horizon does not extend beyond subordinate tasks. They consider the structure of industrial production and the allocation of capital to the various branches and production aggregates as rigid, and do not take into account the necessity of altering this structure in order to adjust it to changes in conditions. What they have in mind is a world in which no further changes occur, and economic history has reached its final stage. They fail to realize that the operations of the corporate officers consist merely in the loyal execution of the tasks entrusted to them by their bosses, the shareholders, and that in performing the orders received they are forced to adjust themselves to the structure of the market prices, ultimately determined by factors other than the various managerial operations. The operations of the managers, their buying and selling, are only a small segment of the totality of market operations. The market of the capitalist society also performs all those operations which allocate the capital goods to the various branches of industry. The entrepreneurs and capitalists establish corporations and other firms, enlarge or reduce their size, dissolve them or merge them with other enterprises. They buy and sell the shares and bonds of already existing and of new corporations. They grant, withdraw, and recover credits. In short, they perform all those acts the totality of which is called the capital and money market. It is these financial transactions of promoters and speculators that direct production into those channels in which it satisfies the most urgent wants of the consumers in the best possible way. These transactions constitute the market as such. If one eliminates them, one does not preserve any part of the market. 
What remains is a fragment that cannot exist alone and cannot function as a market. The role that the loyal corporation manager plays in the conduct of business is much more modest than the authors of these plans assume. His is only a managerial function, a subsidiary assistance granted to the entrepreneurs and capitalists, which refers only to subordinate tasks. It can never become a substitute for the entrepreneurial function. The speculators, promoters, investors, and moneylenders in determining the structure of the stock and commodity exchanges and of the money market circumscribe the orbit within which definite minor tasks can be entrusted to the manager's discretion. In attending to these tasks, the manager must adjust his procedures to the structure of the market created by factors which go far beyond the managerial functions. Our problem does not refer to the managerial activities. It concerns the allocation of capital to the various branches of industry. The question is, in which branches should production be increased or restricted? In which branches should the objective of production be altered? What new branches should be inaugurated? With regard to these issues, it is vain to cite the honest corporation manager and his well-tried efficiency. Those who confuse entrepreneurship and management close their eyes to the economic problem. In labor disputes, the parties are not management and labor, but entrepreneurship, or capital, and the salaried and wage-receiving employees. The capitalist system is not a managerial system. It is an entrepreneurial system. One does not detract from the merits of corporation managers if one establishes the fact that it is not their conduct that determines the allocation of the factors of production to the various lines of industry. Nobody has ever suggested that the socialist commonwealth could invite the promoters and speculators to continue their speculations and then deliver their profits to the common chest. Those suggesting a quasi-market for the socialist system have never wanted to preserve the stock and commodity exchanges, the trading in futures, and the bankers and money lenders as quasi-institutions. One cannot play speculation and investment. The speculators and investors expose their own wealth, their own destiny. This fact makes them responsible to the consumers, the ultimate bosses of the capitalist economy. If one relieves them of this responsibility, one deprives them of their very character, they are no longer businessmen, but just a group of men to whom the director has handed over his main task, the supreme direction of the conduct of affairs. Then they, and not the nominal director, become the true directors, and have to face the same problem the nominal director could not solve, the problem of calculation. In recognition of the fact that such an idea would be simply nonsensical, the advocates of the quasi-market plan sometimes vaguely recommend another way out. The director should act as a bank, lending the available funds to the highest bidder. This, again, is an abortive idea. 
All those who can bid for these funds have, as is self-evident in a socialist order of society, no property of their own. In bidding, they are not restrained by any financial dangers they themselves run in promising too high a rate of interest for the funds borrowed. They do not in the least alleviate the burden of responsibility incumbent upon the director. The insecurity of the funds lent to them is in no way restricted by the partial guarantee which the borrower's own means provide in credit transactions under capitalism. All the hazards of this insecurity fall only upon society, the exclusive owner of all resources available. If the director were without hesitation to allocate the funds available to those who bid most, he would simply put a premium upon audacity, carelessness, and unreasonable optimism. He would abdicate in favor of the least scrupulous visionaries or scoundrels. He must reserve to himself the decision on how society's funds should be utilized. But then we are back again where we started. The director, in his endeavors to direct production activities, is not aided by the division of intellectual labor, which, under capitalism, provides a practicable method for economic calculation. The employment of the means of production can be controlled either by private owners or by the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion. In the first case, there is a market. There are market prices for all factors of production, and economic calculation is possible. In the second case, all these things are absent. It is vain to comfort oneself with the hope that the organs of the collective economy will be omnipresent and omniscient. We do not deal in praxeology with the acts of the omnipresent and omniscient deity, but with the actions of men endowed with a human mind only. Such a mind cannot plan without economic calculation. A socialist system with a market and market prices is as self-contradictory as is the notion of a triangular square. Production is directed either by profit-seeking businessmen or by the decisions of a director to whom supreme and exclusive power is entrusted. There are produced either those things from the sale of which the entrepreneurs expect the highest profits, or those things which the director wants to be produced. The question is, who should be master, the consumers or the director? With whom should the ultimate decision rest whether a concrete supply of factors of production should be employed for the production of the consumer's good A or the consumer's good B? Such a question does not allow of any evasive answer. It must be answered in a straightforward and unambiguous way. 6. The Differential Equations of Mathematical Economics in order to appraise adequately the idea that the differential equations of mathematical economics could be utilized for socialist economic calculation, we must remember what these equations really mean. 
In devising the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, we assume that all the factors of production are employed in such a way that each of them renders the most highly valued services it can possibly render. No further change in the employment of any of these factors could improve the state of want satisfaction under prevailing conditions. This situation, in which no further changes in the disposition of the factors of production are resorted to, is described by means of differential equations. However, these equations do not provide any information about the human actions by means of which the hypothetical state of equilibrium has been reached. All they say is this. If in this state of static equilibrium, M units of A are employed for the production of P, and N units of A for the production of Q, no further change in the employment of the available units of A could result in an increment in want satisfaction. Even if we assume that A is perfectly divisible and take the unit of A as infinitesimal, it would be a serious blunder to assert that the marginal utility of A is the same in both employments. This state of equilibrium is a purely imaginary construction. In a changing world, it can never be realized. It differs from today's state as well as from any other realizable state of affairs. In the market economy, it is entrepreneurial action that again and again reshuffles exchange ratios and the allocation of the factors of production. An enterprising man discovers a discrepancy between the prices of the complementary factors of production and the future prices of the products as he anticipates them, and tries to take advantage of this discrepancy for his own profit. The future price which he has in mind is, to be sure, not the hypothetical equilibrium price. No actor has anything to do with equilibrium and equilibrium prices. These notions are foreign to real life and action. They are auxiliary tools of praxeological reasoning for which there is no mental means to conceive the ceaseless restlessness of action other than to contrast it with the notion of perfect quiet. For the theorist's reasoning, every change is a step forward on a road which, provided no further new data appear, finally leads to a state of equilibrium. Neither the theorists, nor the capitalists and entrepreneurs, nor the consumers are in a position to form on the ground of their familiarity with present conditions an opinion about the height of such an equilibrium price. There is no need for such an opinion. What impels a man toward change and innovation is not the vision of equilibrium prices, but the anticipation of the height of the prices of a limited number of articles as they will prevail on the market on the date at which he plans to sell. What the entrepreneur, in embarking upon a definite project, has in mind is only the first steps of a transformation which, provided no changes in the data occur other than those induced by his project, would result in establishing the state of equilibrium.
But for a utilization of the equations describing the state of equilibrium, a knowledge of the gradation of the values of consumers' goods in this state of equilibrium is required. This gradation is one of the elements of these equations assumed as known. Yet the director knows only his present valuations, not also his valuations under the hypothetical state of equilibrium. He believes that with regard to his present valuations, the allocation of the factors of production is unsatisfactory and wants to change it. But he knows nothing about how he himself will value on the day the equilibrium will be reached. These valuations will reflect the conditions resulting from the successive changes in production he himself inaugurates. We call the present day D1, and the day the equilibrium will be established Dn. Accordingly, we name the following magnitudes corresponding to these two days. The scale of valuation of the goods of the first order, V1 and Vn. The total supply of all original factors of production, O1 and On the total supply of all produced factors of production, P1 and Pn. And summarize, O1 plus P1 as M1 and On plus Pn as Mn. Finally, we call the state of technological knowledge T1 and Tn. For the solution of the equations, a knowledge of Vn ON plus PN equals MN and TN is required. But what we know today is merely V1, O1 plus P1 equals M1 and T1. It would be impermissible to assume that these magnitudes for D1 are equal to those for DN because the state of equilibrium cannot be attained if further changes in the data occur. The absence of further changes in the data, which is the condition required for the establishment of equilibrium, refers only to such changes as could derange the adjustment of conditions to the operation of those elements which are already operating today. The system cannot attain the state of equilibrium if new elements, penetrating from without, divert it from those movements which tend toward the establishment of equilibrium. But as long as the equilibrium is not yet attained, the system is in a continuous movement which changes the data. The tendency toward the establishment of equilibrium, not interrupted by the emergence of any changes in the data coming from without, is in itself a succession of changes in the data. P1 is a set of magnitudes that do not correspond to today's valuations. It is the outcome of actions which were guided by past valuations and faced a state of technological knowledge and of information about available resources of primary factors of production, which was different from the present state. One of the reasons why the system is not in equilibrium is precisely the fact that P1 is not adjusted to present conditions. There are plants, tools, and supplies of other factors of production which would not exist under equilibrium, 
and other plants, tools, and supplies must be produced in order to establish equilibrium. Equilibrium will emerge only when these disturbing parts of P1, as far as they are still utilizable, will be worn out and replaced by items which correspond to the state of the other synchronous data, namely V, O, and T. What acting man needs to know is not the state of affairs under equilibrium, but information about the most appropriate method of transforming, by successive steps, P1 into Pn. With regard to this task, the equations are useless. One cannot master these problems by eliminating P and relying only upon O. It is true that the mode of utilizing the original factors of production uniquely determines the quality and quantity of the produced factors of production, the intermediary products. But the information that could be won in this way refers only to the conditions of equilibrium. It does not tell us anything about the methods and procedures to be resorted to for the realization of equilibrium. Today we are confronted with a supply of P1 which differs from the state of equilibrium. We must take into account real conditions, that is, P1, and not the hypothetical conditions of Pn. This hypothetical future state of equilibrium will appear when all methods of production have been adjusted to the valuations of the actors and to the state of technological knowledge. Then one will work in the most appropriate locations with the most adequate technological methods. Today's economy is different. It operates with other means, which do not correspond to the equilibrium state and cannot be taken into account in a system of equations describing this state in mathematical symbols. The knowledge of conditions which will prevail under equilibrium is useless for the director whose task it is to act today under present conditions. What he must learn is how to proceed in the most economical way with the means available today, which are the inheritance of an age with different valuations, a different technological knowledge, and different information about problems of location. He must know which step is the next he must make. In this dilemma, the equations provide no help. Let us assume that an isolated country whose economic conditions are those of Central Europe in the middle of the 19th century is ruled by a director who is perfectly familiar with the American technology of our day. This director knows by and large to what goal he should lead the economy of the country entrusted to his care. Yet even a full knowledge of today's American conditions could not be of use to him in regard to the problem of transforming by successive steps, in the most appropriate and expedient way, the given economic system into the system aimed at. Even if, for the sake of argument, we assume that a miraculous inspiration has enabled the director, without economic calculation, to solve all problems concerning the most advantageous arrangement of all production activities, 
and that the precise image of the final goal he must aim at is present to his mind. There remain essential problems which cannot be dealt with without economic calculation. For the director's task is not to begin from the very bottom of civilization and to start economic history from scratch. The elements with the aid of which he must operate are not only natural resources untouched by previous utilization. There are also the capital goods produced in the past and not convertible or not perfectly convertible for new projects. It is in precisely these artifacts, produced under a constellation in which valuations, technological knowledge, and many other things were different from what they are today, that our wealth is embodied. Their structure, quality, quantity, and location is of primary importance in the choice of all further economic operations. Some of them may be absolutely useless for any further employment. They must remain unused capacity. But the greater part of them must be utilized if we do not want to start anew from the extreme poverty and destitution of primitive man, and want to survive the period which separates us from the day on which the reconstruction of the apparatus of production according to the new plans will be accomplished. The director cannot merely erect a new construction without bothering about his ward's fate in the waiting period. He must try to take advantage of every piece of the already available capital goods in the best possible way. Not only the technocrats, but socialists of all shades of opinion, repeat again and again that what makes the achievement of their ambitious plans realizable is the enormous wealth hitherto accumulated. But in the same breath, they disregard the fact that this wealth consists to a great extent in capital goods produced in the past, and more or less antiquated from the point of view of our present valuations and technological knowledge. As they see it, the only aim of production is to transform the industrial apparatus in such a way as to make life more abundant for later generations. In their eyes, contemporaries are simply a lost generation, people whose only purpose it must be to toil and trouble for the benefit of the unborn. However, real men are different. They want not only to create a better world for their grandsons to live in, they themselves also want to enjoy life. They want to utilize in the most efficient way those capital goods which are now available. They aim at a better future, but they want to attain this goal in the most economical way. For the realization of this desire, too, they cannot do without economic calculation. It was a serious mistake to believe that the state of equilibrium could be computed by means of mathematical operations on the basis of the knowledge of conditions in a non-equilibrium state. It was no less erroneous to believe that such a knowledge of the conditions under a hypothetical state of equilibrium could be of any use for acting man in his search for the best possible solution of the problems with which he is faced in his daily choices and activities. 
There is, therefore, no need to stress the point that the fabulous number of equations which one would have to solve each day anew for a practical utilization of the method would make the whole idea absurd even if it were really a reasonable substitute for the market's economic calculation. Part 6. The Hampered Market Economy Chapter 27. The Government and the Market 1. The Idea of a Third System Private ownership of the means of production, market economy or capitalism, and public ownership of the means of production, socialism or communism or planning, can be neatly distinguished. Each of these two systems of society's economic organization is open to a precise and unambiguous description and definition. They can never be confounded with one another. They cannot be mixed or combined. No gradual transition leads from one of them to the other. Their obversion is contradictory. With regard to the same factors of production, there can only exist private control or public control. If, in the frame of a system of social cooperation, only some means of production are subject to public ownership, while the rest are controlled by private individuals, this does not make for a mixed system combining socialism and private ownership. The system remains a market society, provided the socialized sector does not become entirely separated from the non-socialized sector and lead a strictly autarkic existence. In this latter case, there are two systems independently coexisting side by side, a capitalist and a socialist. Publicly owned enterprises operating within a system in which there are privately owned enterprises and a market, and socialized countries exchanging goods and services with non-socialist countries, are integrated into a system of market economy. They are subject to the law of the market and have the opportunity of resorting to economic calculation. If one considers the idea of placing by the side of these two systems, or between them, a third system of human cooperation under the division of labor, one can always start only from the notion of the market economy, never from that of socialism. The notion of socialism, with its rigid monism and centralism that vests the power to choose and to act in one will exclusively, does not allow of any compromise or concession. This construction is not amenable to any adjustment or alteration. But it is different with the scheme of the market economy. Here the dualism of the market and the government's power of coercion and compulsion suggests various ideas. Is it really peremptory or expedient, people ask, that the government keep itself out of the market? Should it not be a task of government to interfere and to correct the operation of the market? Is it necessary to put up with the alternative of capitalism or socialism? Are there not perhaps still other realizable systems of social organization which are neither communism nor pure and unhampered market economy?
Thus people have contrived a variety of third solutions, of systems which, it is claimed, are as far from socialism as they are from capitalism. Their authors allege that these systems are non-socialist because they aim to preserve private ownership of the means of production, and that they are not capitalistic because they eliminate the deficiencies of the market economy. For a scientific treatment of the problems involved, which by necessity is neutral with regard to all value judgments, and therefore does not condemn any features of capitalism as faulty, detrimental, or unjust, this emotional recommendation of interventionism is of no avail. The task of economics is to analyze and to search for truth. It is not called upon to praise or to disapprove from any standard of preconceived postulates and prejudices. With regard to interventionism, it has only one question to ask and to answer. How does it work? 2. The Intervention There are two patterns for the realization of socialism. The first pattern, we may call it the Lenin or the Russian pattern, is purely bureaucratic. All plants, shops, and farms are formally nationalized, verstaatlicht. They are departments of the government, operated by civil servants. Every unit of the apparatus of production stands in the same relation to the superior central organization as does a post office to the office of the postmaster general. The second pattern, we may call it the Hindenburg or German pattern, nominally and seemingly preserves private ownership of the means of production and keeps the appearance of ordinary markets, prices, wages, and interest rates. There are, however, no longer entrepreneurs, but only shop managers, Betriebsführer in the terminology of the Nazi legislation. These shop managers are seemingly instrumental in the conduct of the enterprises entrusted to them. They buy and sell, hire and discharge workers, and remunerate their services, contract debts, and pay interest and amortization. But in all their activities they are bound to obey unconditionally the orders issued by the government's supreme office of production management. This office, the Reichswirtschaft Ministerium in Nazi Germany, tells the shop managers what and how to produce, at what prices, and from whom to buy, at what prices, and to whom to sell. It assigns every worker to his job and fixes his wages. It decrees to whom and on what terms the capitalist must entrust their funds. Market exchange is merely a sham. All the wages, prices, and interest rates are fixed by the government. They are wages, prices, and interest rates in appearance only. In fact, they are merely quantitative terms in the government's orders determining each citizen's job, income, consumption, and standard of living. The government directs all production activities. The shop managers are subject to the government, not to the consumer's demand and the market's price structure. This is socialism under the outward guise of the terminology of capitalism. 
Some labels of the capitalistic market economy are retained, but they signify something entirely different from what they mean in the market economy. It is necessary to point out this fact in order to prevent a confusion of socialism and interventionism. The system of interventionism, or of the hampered market economy, differs from the German pattern of socialism by the very fact that it is still a market economy. The authority interferes with the operation of the market economy, but does not want to eliminate the market altogether. It wants production and consumption to develop along lines different from those prescribed by an unhampered market, and it wants to achieve its aim by injecting into the working of the market orders, commands, and prohibitions for whose enforcement the police power and its apparatus of violent compulsion and coercion stand ready. But these are isolated acts of intervention. It is not the aim of the government to combine them into an integrated system which determines all prices, wages, and interest rates, and thus places full control of production and consumption into the hands of the authorities. The system of the hampered market economy, or interventionism, aims at preserving the dualism of the distinct spheres of government activities on the one hand, and economic freedom under the market system on the other hand. What characterizes it as such is the fact that the government does not limit its activities to the preservation of private ownership of the means of production, and its protection against violent encroachments. The government interferes with the operation of business by means of orders and prohibitions. The intervention is a decree issued, directly or indirectly, by the authority in charge of the administrative apparatus of coercion and compulsion, which forces the entrepreneurs and capitalists to employ some of the factors of production in a way different from what they would have resorted to if they were only obeying the dictates of the market. Such a decree can be either an order to do something or an order not to do something. It is not required that the decree be issued directly by the established and generally recognized authority itself. It may happen that some other agencies arrogate to themselves the power to issue such orders or prohibitions, and to enforce them by an apparatus of violent coercion and oppression of their own. If the recognized government tolerates such procedures, or even supports them by the employment of its governmental police apparatus, matters stand as if the government itself had acted. If the government is opposed to other agencies' violent action, but does not succeed in suppressing it by means of its own armed forces, although it would like to suppress it, anarchy results. It is important to remember that government interference always means either violent action or the threat of such action. Government is, in the last resort, the employment of armed men, of policemen, gendarmes, soldiers, prison guards, and hangmen. The essential feature of government is the enforcement of its decrees by beating, killing, and imprisoning. Those who are asking for more government interference are asking ultimately for more compulsion and less freedom. 
To draw attention to this fact does not imply any reflection upon government activities. In stark reality, peaceful social cooperation is impossible if no provision is made for violent prevention and suppression of antisocial action on the part of refractory individuals and groups of individuals. One must take exception to the often repeated phrase that government is an evil, although a necessary and indispensable evil. What is required for the attainment of an end aimed at is a means, the cost to be expended for its successful realization. It is an arbitrary value judgment to describe it as an evil in the moral connotation of the term. However, in face of the modern tendencies toward a deification of government and state, it is good to remind ourselves that the old Romans were more realistic in symbolizing the state by a bundle of rods with an axe in the middle than are our contemporaries in ascribing to the state all the attributes of God. 3. The Delimitation of Governmental Functions Various schools of thought parading under the pompous names of philosophy of law and political science indulge in futile and empty brooding over the delimitation of the functions of government. Starting from purely arbitrary assumptions concerning allegedly eternal and absolute values and perennial justice, they arrogate to themselves the office of the supreme judge of earthly affairs, they misconstrue their own arbitrary value judgments derived from intuition as the voice of the Almighty, or the nature of things. There is, however, no such thing as natural law and a perennial standard of what is just and what is unjust. Nature is alien to the idea of right and wrong. Thou shalt not kill is certainly not part of natural law. The characteristic feature of natural conditions is that one animal is intent upon killing other animals, and that many species cannot preserve their own life except by killing others. The notion of right and wrong is a human device, a utilitarian precept designed to make social cooperation under the division of labor possible. All moral rules and human laws are means for the realization of definite ends. There is no method available for the appreciation of their goodness or badness other than to scrutinize their usefulness for the attainment of the ends chosen and aimed at. From the notion of natural law, some people deduce the justice of the institution of private property in the means of production. Other people resort to natural law for the justification of the abolition of private property in the means of production. As the idea of natural law is quite arbitrary, such discussions are not open to settlement. State and government are not ends, but means. Inflicting evil upon other people is a source of direct pleasure only to sadists. Established authorities resort to coercion and compulsion in order to safeguard the smooth operation of a definite system of social organization. The sphere in which coercion and compulsion is applied, and the content of the laws which are to be enforced by the police apparatus, are conditioned by the social order adopted. 
As state and government are designed to make this social system operate safely, the delimitation of governmental functions must be adjusted to its requirements. The only standard for the appreciation of the laws and the methods for their enforcement is whether or not they are efficient in safeguarding the social order which it is desired to preserve. The notion of justice makes sense only when referring to a definite system of norms, which in itself is assumed to be uncontested and safe against any criticism. Many peoples have clung to the doctrine that what is right and what is wrong is established from the dawn of the remotest ages and for eternity. The task of legislators and courts was not to make the laws, but to find out what is right by virtue of the unchanging idea of justice. This doctrine, which resulted in an adamant conservatism and a petrification of old customs and institutions, was challenged by the doctrine of natural right. To the positive laws of the country, the notion of a higher law, the law of nature, was opposed. From the arbitrary standard of natural law, the valid statutes and institutions were called just or unjust. To the good legislator was assigned the task of making the positive laws agree with the natural law. The fundamental errors involved in these two doctrines have long since been unmasked. For those not deluded by them, it is obvious that the appeal to justice in a debate concerning the drafting of new laws is an instance of circular reasoning. De lege ferenda, there is no such thing as justice. The notion of justice can logically only be resorted to de lege lata. It makes sense only when approving or disapproving concrete conduct from the point of view of the valid laws of the country. In considering changes in the nation's legal system, in rewriting or repealing existing laws and writing new laws, the issue is not justice, but social expediency and social welfare. There is no such thing as an absolute notion of justice not referring to a definite system of social organization. It is not justice that determines the decision in favor of a definite social system. It is, on the contrary, the social system which determines what should be deemed right and what wrong. There is neither right nor wrong outside the social nexus. For the hypothetical, isolated, and self-sufficient individual, the notions of just and unjust are empty. Such an individual can merely distinguish between what is more expedient and what is less expedient for himself. The idea of justice refers always to social cooperation. It is nonsensical to justify or to reject interventionism from the point of view of a fictitious and arbitrary idea of absolute justice. It is vain to ponder over the just delimitation of the tasks of government from any preconceived standard of perennial values. It is no less impermissible to deduce the proper tasks of government from the very notions of government, state, law, and justice. It was precisely this that was absurd in the speculations of medieval scholasticism, of Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, 
and of German Begriffsjurisprudence. Concepts are tools of reasoning. They must never be considered as regulative principles dictating modes of conduct. It is a display of supererogatory mental gymnastics to emphasize that the notions of state and sovereignty logically imply absolute supremacy and thus preclude the idea of any limitations on the state's activities. Nobody questions the fact that a state has the power to establish totalitarianism within the territory in which it is sovereign. The problem is whether or not such a mode of government is expedient from the point of view of the preservation and functioning of social cooperation. With regard to this problem, no sophisticated exegesis of concepts and notions can be of any use. It must be decided by praxeology, not by a spurious metaphysics of state and right. The philosophy of law and political science are at a loss to discover any reason why government should not control prices and not punish those defying the price ceilings decreed, in the same way as it punishes murderers and thieves. As they see it, the institution of private property is merely a revocable favor graciously granted by the Almighty Sovereign to the wretched individuals. There cannot be any wrong in repealing totally or partially the laws that granted this favor. No reasonable objection can be raised against expropriation and confiscation. The legislator is free to substitute any social system for that of the private ownership of the means of production, just as he is free to substitute another national anthem for that adopted in the past. The formula cartel est notre bon plaisir, for such is our good pleasure, is the only maxim of the sovereign lawgiver's conduct. As against all this formalism and legal dogmatism, there is need to emphasize again that the only purpose of the laws and the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion is to safeguard the smooth functioning of social cooperation. It is obvious that the government has the power to decree maximum prices and to imprison or to execute those selling or buying at a higher price. But the question is whether such a policy can or cannot attain the ends which the government wants to attain by resorting to it. This is a purely praxeological and economic problem. Neither the philosophy of law nor political science can contribute anything to its solution. The problem of interventionism is not a problem of the correct delimitation of the natural, just, and adequate tasks of state and government. The issue is, how does a system of interventionism work? Can it realize those ends which people, in resorting to it, want to attain? The confusion and lack of judgment displayed in dealing with the problems of interventionism are amazing indeed. There are, for instance, people who argue thus. It is obvious that traffic regulations on the public roads are necessary. Nobody objects to the government's interference with the car driver's conduct. The advocates of laissez-faire contradict themselves in fighting government interference with market prices and yet not advocating the abolition of government traffic regulation.
The fallacy of this argument is manifest. The regulation of traffic on a road is one of the tasks incumbent upon the agency that operates the road. If this agency is the government or the municipality, it is bound to attend to this task. It is the task of a railroad's management to fix the timetable of the trains, and it is the task of a hotel's management to decide whether or not there should be music in the dining room. If the government operates a railroad or a hotel, it is the government's task to regulate these things. It is not an instance of government interference with the operation of the market economy that the postmaster general chooses the pattern and the color of the postage stamps. With a state opera, the government decides which operas should be produced and which not. It is a non-sequitur to deduce from this fact that it is also a task of the government to decide these things for a non-governmental opera. 4. Righteousness as the Ultimate Standard of the Individual's Actions According to a widespread opinion, it is possible, even in the absence of government interference with business, to divert the operation of the market economy from those lines along which it would develop if left to exclusive control by the profit motive. Advocates of a social reform to be accomplished by compliance with the principles of Christianity or with the demands of true morality maintain that conscience should also guide well-intentioned people in their dealings on the market. If all people were prepared not only to concern themselves selfishly about profit, but no less about their religious and moral obligations, no government compulsion and coercion would be required in order to put things right. What is needed is not a reform of government and the laws of the country, but the moral purification of man, a return to the Lord's commandments and to the precepts of the moral code, a turning away from the vices of greed and selfishness. Then it will be easy to reconcile private ownership of the means of production with justice, righteousness, and fairness. The disastrous effects of capitalism will be eliminated without prejudice to the individual's freedom and initiative. People will dethrone the Moloch capitalism without enthroning the Moloch state. The arbitrary value judgments which are at the bottom of these opinions need not concern us here. What these critics blame capitalism for is irrelevant. Their errors and fallacies are beside the point. What does matter is the idea of erecting a social system on the twofold basis of private property and of moral principles restricting the utilization of private property. The system recommended, say its advocates, will be neither socialism nor capitalism nor interventionism. Not socialism, because it will preserve private ownership of the means of production. Not capitalism, because conscience will be supreme and not the urge for profit. Not interventionism, because there will be no need for government interference with the market. In the market economy, the individual is free to act within the orbit of private property and the market. His choices are final. For his fellow men, his actions are data which they must take into account in their own acting. 
The coordination of the autonomous actions of all individuals is accomplished by the operation of the market. Society does not tell a man what to do and what not to do. There is no need to enforce cooperation by special orders or prohibitions. Non-cooperation penalizes itself. Adjustment to the requirements of society's productive effort and the pursuit of the individual's own concerns are not in conflict. Consequently, no agency is required to settle such conflicts. The system can work and accomplish its tasks without the interference of an authority issuing special orders and prohibitions and punishing those who do not comply. Beyond the sphere of private property and the market lies the sphere of compulsion and coercion. Here are the dams which organized society has built for the protection of private property and the market against violence, malice, and fraud. This is the realm of constraint as distinguished from the realm of freedom. Here are rules discriminating between what is legal and what is illegal, what is permitted and what is prohibited, and here is a grim machine of arms, prisons, and gallows, and the men operating it, ready to crush those who dare to disobey. Now the reformers with whose plans we are concerned suggest that along with the norms designed for the protection and preservation of private property, further ethical rules should be ordained. They want to realize in production and consumption things other than those realized under the social order in which the individuals are not checked by any obligation other than that of not infringing upon the persons of their fellow men and upon the right of private property. They want to ban those motives that direct the individual's action in the market economy. They call them selfishness, acquisitiveness, profit-seeking, and to replace them with other impulses. They call them conscientiousness, righteousness, altruism, fear of God, charity. They are convinced that such a moral reform would in itself be sufficient to safeguard a mode of operation of the economic system, more satisfactory from their point of view than that of unhampered capitalism, without any of those special governmental measures which interventionism and socialism require. The supporters of these doctrines fail to recognize the role which those springs of action they condemn as vicious play in the operation of the market economy. The only reason why the market economy can operate without government orders telling everybody precisely what he should do and how he should do it is that it does not ask anybody to deviate from those lines of conduct which best serve his own interests. What integrates the individual's actions into the whole of the social system of production is the pursuit of his own purposes. In indulging in his acquisitiveness, each actor contributes his share to the best possible arrangement of production activities. Thus, within the sphere of private property and the laws protecting it against encroachments on the part of violent or fraudulent action, there is no antagonism between the interests of the individual and those of society.
The market economy becomes a chaotic muddle if this predominance of private property, which the reformers disparage as selfishness, is eliminated. In urging people to listen to the voice of their conscience and to substitute considerations of public welfare for those of private profit, one does not create a working and satisfactory social order. It is not enough to tell a man not to buy on the cheapest market and not to sell on the dearest market. It is not enough to tell him not to strive after profit and not to avoid losses. One must establish unambiguous rules for the guidance of conduct in each concrete situation. Says the Reformer, The entrepreneur is rugged and selfish when, taking advantage of his own superiority, he underbids the prices asked by a less efficient competitor, and thus forces the man to go out of business. But how should the altruistic entrepreneur proceed? Should he, under no circumstances, sell at a price lower than any competitor? Or are there certain conditions which justify underbidding the competitor's prices? Says the reformer, on the other hand, the entrepreneur is rugged and selfish when taking advantage of the structure of the market. He asks a price so high that poor people are excluded from purchasing the merchandise. But what should the good entrepreneur do? Should he give away the merchandise free of charge? If he charges any price, however low, there will always be people who cannot buy at all, or not so much as they would buy if the price were still lower. What group of those eager to buy is the entrepreneur free to exclude from getting the merchandise? There is no need to deal at this point of our investigation with the consequences resulting from any deviation from the height of prices as determined on an unhampered market. If the seller avoids underbidding his less efficient competitor, a part at least of his supply remains unsold. If the seller offers the merchandise at a price lower than that determined on an unhampered market, the supply available is insufficient to enable all those ready to expend this lower price to get what they are asking for. We will analyze later these as well as other consequences of any deviation from the market prices. What we must recognize even at this point is that one cannot content oneself simply by telling the entrepreneur that he should not let himself be guided by the state of the market. It is imperative to tell him how far he must go in asking and paying prices. If it is no longer profit-seeking that directs the entrepreneur's actions and determines what they produce and in what quantities, if the entrepreneurs are no longer bound by the instrumentality of the profit motive to serve the consumers to the best of their abilities, it is necessary to give them definite instructions. One cannot avoid guiding their conduct by specified orders and prohibitions, precisely such decrees as are the mark of government interference with business. Any attempt to render such interference superfluous by attributing primacy to the voice of conscience, to charity and brotherly love, is vain. 
The advocates of a Christian social reform pretend that their ideal of greed and profit-seeking, tamed and restrained by conscientiousness and compliance with the moral law, worked rather well in the past. All the evils of our day are caused by defection from the precepts of the church. If people had not defied the commandments and had not coveted unjust profit, mankind would still enjoy the bliss experienced in the Middle Ages, when at least the elite lived up to the principles of the Gospels. What is needed is to bring back those good old days, and then to see that no new apostasy deprives men of their beneficent effects. There is no need to enter into an analysis of the social and economic conditions of the thirteenth century, which these reformers praise as the greatest of all periods of history. We are concerned merely with the notion of just prices and wage rates, which was essential in the social teachings of the doctors of the church, and which the reformers want to raise to the position of the ultimate standard of economic conduct. It is obvious that with theorists, this notion of just prices and wage rates always refers and always referred to a definite social order which they considered the best possible order. They recommend the adoption of their ideal scheme and its preservation forever. No further changes are to be tolerated. Any alteration of the best possible state of social affairs can only mean deterioration. The worldview of these philosophers does not take into account man's ceaseless striving for improvement of the material conditions of well-being. Historical change and a rise in the general standard of living are notions foreign to them. They call just that mode of conduct that is compatible with the undisturbed preservation of their utopia, and everything else, unjust. However, the notion of just prices and wage rates as present to the mind of people other than philosophers is very different. When the non-philosopher calls a price just, what he means is that the preservation of this price improves, or at least does not impair, his own revenues and station in society. He calls unjust any price that jeopardizes his own wealth and station. It is just that the prices of those goods and services which he sells rise more and more, and that the prices of those goods and services he buys drop more and more. To the farmer, no price of wheat, however high, appears unjust. To the wage earner, no wage rates, however high, appear unfair. But the farmer is quick to denounce every drop in the price of wheat as a violation of divine and human laws, and the wage earners rise in rebellion when their wages drop. Yet the market society has no means of adjusting production to changing conditions other than the operation of the market. By means of price changes, it forces people to restrict the production of articles less urgently asked for and to expand the production of those articles for which consumers' demand is more urgent. 
The absurdity of all endeavors to stabilize prices consists precisely in the fact that stabilization would prevent any further improvement and result in rigidity and stagnation. The flexibility of commodity prices and wage rates is the vehicle of adjustment, improvement, and progress. Those who condemn changes in prices and wage rates as unjust, and who ask for the preservation of what they call just, are in fact combating endeavors to make economic conditions more satisfactory. It is not unjust that there has long prevailed a tendency toward such a determination of the prices of agricultural products that the greater part of the population abandoned farming and moved toward the processing industries. But for this tendency, 90% or more of the population would still be occupied in agriculture, and the processing industries would have been stunted in their growth. All strata of the population, including the farmers, would be worse off. If Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of the just price had been put into practice, the 13th century's economic conditions would still prevail. Population figures would be much smaller than they are today, and the standard of living much lower. Both varieties of the just price doctrine, the philosophical and the popular, agree in their condemnation of the prices and wage rates as determined on the unhampered market. But this negativism does not in itself provide any answer to the question of what height the just prices and wage rates should attain. If righteousness is to be elevated to the position of the ultimate standard of economic action, one must unambiguously tell every actor what he should do, what prices he should ask, and what prices he should pay in each concrete case, and one must force, by recourse to an apparatus of violent compulsion and coercion, all those venturing disobedience to comply with these orders. One must establish a supreme authority issuing norms and regulating conduct in every respect, altering these norms if need be, interpreting them authentically, and enforcing them. Thus the substitution of social justice and righteousness for selfish profit-seeking requires for its realization precisely those policies of government interference with business which the advocates of the moral purification of mankind want to make superfluous. No deviation from the unhampered market economy is thinkable without authoritarian regimentation. Whether the authority in which these powers are vested is called lay government or theocratical priesthood makes no difference. The reformers, in exhorting people to turn away from selfishness, address themselves to capitalists and entrepreneurs, and sometimes, although only timidly, to wage earners as well. However, the market economy is a system of consumers' supremacy, the sermonizers should appeal to consumers, not to producers. They should persuade the consumers to renounce preferring better and cheaper merchandise to poorer and dearer merchandise, lest they hurt the less efficient producer. 
they should persuade them to restrict their own purchases in order to provide poorer people with the opportunity to buy more. If one wants the consumers to act in this way, one must tell them plainly what to buy, in what quantity, from whom, and at what prices. And one must provide for enforcing such orders by coercion and compulsion. But then one has adopted exactly that system of authoritarian control which moral reform wants to make unnecessary. Whatever freedom individuals can enjoy within the framework of social cooperation is conditional upon the concord of private gain and public weal. Within the orbit in which the individual, in pursuing his own well-being, advances also, or at least does not impair, the well-being of his fellow men, people going their own ways jeopardize neither the preservation of society nor the concerns of other people. A realm of freedom and individual initiative emerges, a realm in which man is allowed to choose and to act of his own accord. This sphere of economic freedom is the basis of all the other freedoms compatible with cooperation under the division of labor. It is the market economy, or capitalism, with its political corollary, the Marxians would have to say, with its superstructure, representative government. Those who contend that there is a conflict between the acquisitiveness of various individuals, or between the acquisitiveness of individuals on the one hand and the commonweal on the other, cannot avoid advocating the suppression of the individual's right to choose and to act. They must substitute the supremacy of a central board of production management for the discretion of the citizens. In their scheme of the good society, there is no room left for private initiative. The authority issues orders, and everybody is forced to obey. 5. THE MEANING OF LAISSEZ-FAIRE In 18th century France, the saying, LAISSEZ-FAIRE, LAISSEZ-PASSE, was the formula into which some of the champions of the cause of liberty compressed their program. Their aim was the establishment of the unhampered market society. In order to attain this end, they advocated the abolition of all laws preventing more industrious and more efficient people from outdoing less industrious and less efficient competitors, and restricting the mobility of commodities and of men. It was this that the famous maxim was designed to express. In our age of passionate longing for government omnipotence, the formula laissez-faire is in disrepute. Public opinion now considers it a manifestation both of moral depravity and of the utmost ignorance. As the interventionist sees things, the alternative is automatic forces or conscious planning. It is obvious, he implies, that to rely upon automatic processes is sheer stupidity. No reasonable man can seriously recommend doing nothing and letting things go as they do without interference on the part of purposive action. A plan, by the very fact that it is a display of conscious action, is incomparably superior to the absence of any planning. 
Laissez-faire is said to mean, let the evils last, do not try to improve the lot of mankind by reasonable action. This is utterly fallacious talk. The argument advanced for planning is entirely derived from an impermissible interpretation of a metaphor. It has no foundation other than the connotations implied in the term automatic, which it is customary to apply in a metaphorical sense for the description of the market process. Automatic, says the concise Oxford Dictionary, means unconscious, unintelligent, merely mechanical. Automatic, says Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, means not subject to the control of the will, performed without active thought and without conscious intention or direction. What a triumph for the champion of planning to play this trump card! The truth is that the alternative is not between a dead mechanism or a rigid automatism on one hand and conscious planning on the other hand. The alternative is not plan or no plan. The question is, who's planning? Should each member of society plan for himself, or should a benevolent government alone plan for them all? The issue is not automatism versus conscious action. It is autonomous action of each individual versus the exclusive action of the government. It is freedom versus government omnipotence. Laissez-faire does not mean let soulless mechanical forces operate. It means let each individual choose how he wants to cooperate in the social division of labor. Let the consumers determine what the entrepreneurs should produce. Planning means let the government alone choose and enforce its rulings by the apparatus of coercion and compulsion. Under laissez-faire, says the planner, it is not those goods which people really need that are produced, but those goods from the sale of which the highest returns are expected. It is the objective of planning to direct production toward the satisfaction of the true needs. But who is to decide what the true needs are? Thus, for instance, Professor Harold Lasky, the former chairman of the British Labour Party, would determine as the objective of the planned direction of investment that the use of the investors' savings will be in housing rather than in cinemas. It is beside the point whether or not one agrees with the professor's view that better houses are more important than moving pictures. It is a fact that the consumers, in spending part of their money for admission to the movies, have made another choice. If the masses of Great Britain, the same people whose votes swept the Labour Party into power, were to stop patronizing the moving pictures and to spend more for comfortable homes and apartments, profit-seeking business would be forced to invest more in building homes and apartment houses and less in the production of expensive pictures. It is Mr. Lasky's desire to defy the wishes of the consumers and to substitute his own will for that of the consumers. He wants to do away with the democracy of the market and to establish the absolute rule of a production czar. 
he may believe that he is right from a higher point of view, and that as a superman he is called upon to impose his own valuations on the masses of inferior men. But then he should be frank enough to say so plainly. All this passionate praise of the supereminence of government action is but a poor disguise for the individual interventionist's self-deification. The great God-state is a great God only because it is expected to do exclusively what the individual advocate of interventionism wants to see achieved. Only that plan is genuine which the individual planner fully approves. All other plans are simply counterfeit. In saying plan, what the author of a book on the benefits of planning has in mind is, of course, his own plan alone. He does not take into account the possibility that the plan which the government puts into practice may differ from his own plan. The various planners agree only with regard to their rejection of laissez-faire, that is, the individual's discretion to choose and to act. They entirely disagree with regard to the choice of the unique plan to be adopted. To every exposure of the manifest and incontestable defects of interventionist policies, the champions of interventionism react in the same way. These faults, they say, were the results of spurious interventionism. What we are advocating is good interventionism, not bad interventionism. And, of course, good interventionism is the professor's own brand. Laissez-faire means, let the common man choose and act. Do not force him to yield to a dictator. 6. Direct Government Interference with Consumption in investigating the economic problems of interventionism, we do not have to deal with those actions of the government whose aim it is to influence immediately the consumer's choice of consumer's goods. Every act of government interference with business must indirectly affect consumption. As the government's interference alters the market data, it must also alter the valuations and the conduct of the consumers. But if the aim of the government is merely to force the consumers directly to consume goods other than what they would have consumed in the absence of the government's decree, no special problems emerge to be scrutinized by economics. It is beyond doubt that a strong and ruthless police apparatus has the power to enforce such decrees. In dealing with the choices of the consumers, we do not ask what motives induced a man to buy A and not to buy B. We merely investigate what effects on the determination of market prices, and thereby on production, were brought about by the concrete conduct of the consumers. These effects do not depend on the considerations which led individuals to buy A and not to buy B. They depend only on the real acts of buying and abstention from buying. It is immaterial for the determination of the prices of gas masks, whether people buy them of their own accord or because the government forces everybody to have a gas mask. What alone counts is the size of the demand.
Governments which are eager to keep up the outward appearance of freedom, even when curtailing freedom, disguise their direct interference with consumption under the cloak of interference with business. The aim of American prohibition was to prevent the individual residents of the country from drinking alcoholic beverages. But the law, hypocritically, did not make drinking as such illegal, and did not penalize it. It merely prohibited the manufacture, the sale, and the transportation of intoxicating liquors, the business transactions which precede the act of drinking. The idea was that people indulge in the vice of drinking only because unscrupulous businessmen prevail upon them. It was, however, manifest that the objective of prohibition was to encroach upon the individual's freedom to spend their dollars and to enjoy their lives according to their own fashion. The restrictions imposed upon business were only subservient to this ultimate end. The problems involved in direct government interference with consumption are not catalactic problems. They go far beyond the scope of catalactics and concern the fundamental issues of human life and social organization. If it is true that government derives its authority from God and is entrusted by providence to act as the guardian of the ignorant and stupid populace, then it is certainly its task to regiment every aspect of the subject's conduct. The God-sent ruler knows better what is good for his wards than they do themselves. It is his duty to guard them against the harm they would inflict upon themselves if left alone. Self-styled realistic people fail to recognize the immense importance of the principles implied. They contend that they do not want to deal with the matter from what, they say, is a philosophic and academic point of view. Their approach is, they argue, exclusively guided by practical considerations. It is a fact, they say, that some people harm themselves and their innocent families by consuming narcotic drugs. Only doctrinaires could be so dogmatic as to object to the government's regulation of the drug traffic. Its beneficent effects cannot be contested. However, the case is not so simple as that. Opium and morphine are certainly dangerous habit-forming drugs, but once the principle is admitted that it is the duty of government to protect the individual against his own foolishness, no serious objections can be advanced against further encroachments. A good case could be made out in favor of the prohibition of alcohol and nicotine, and why limit the government's benevolent providence to the protection of the individual's body only? Is not the harm a man can inflict on his mind and soul even more disastrous than any bodily evils? Why not prevent him from reading bad books and seeing bad plays, from looking at bad paintings and statues, and from hearing bad music? The mischief done by bad ideologies surely is much more pernicious, both for the individual and for the whole society, than that done by narcotic drugs. These fears are not merely imaginary specters terrifying secluded doctrinaires. It is a fact that no paternal government, whether ancient or modern, ever shrank from regimenting its subjects' minds, beliefs, and opinions. 
If one abolishes man's freedom to determine his own consumption, one takes all freedoms away. The naive advocates of government interference with consumption delude themselves when they neglect what they disdainfully call the philosophical aspect of the problem. They unwittingly support the case of censorship, inquisition, religious intolerance, and the persecution of dissenters. In dealing with the catalactics of interventionism, we do not discuss these political consequences of direct government interference with the citizen's consumption. We are exclusively concerned with those acts of interference which aim at forcing the entrepreneurs and capitalists to employ the factors of production in a way different from what they would have done if they merely obeyed the dictates of the market. In doing this, we do not raise the question of whether such interference is good or bad from any preconceived point of view. We merely ask whether or not it can attain those ends which those advocating and resorting to it are trying to attain. Chapter 28 Interference by Taxation 1. The Neutral Tax To keep the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion running requires expenditure of labor and commodities. Under a liberal system of government, these expenditures are small compared with the sum of the individual's incomes. The more the government expands the sphere of its activities, the more its budget increases. If the government itself owns and operates plants, farms, forests, and mines, it might consider covering a part or the whole of its financial needs from interest and profit earned. But government operation of business enterprises, as a rule, is so inefficient that it results in losses rather than in profits. Governments must resort to taxation. That is, they must raise revenues by forcing the subjects to surrender a part of their wealth or income. A neutral mode of taxation is conceivable that would not divert the operation of the market from the lines in which it would develop in the absence of any taxation. However, the vast literature on problems of taxation, as well as the policies of governments, have hardly ever given thought to the problem of the neutral tax. They have been more eager to find the just tax. The neutral tax would affect the conditions of the citizens only to the extent required by the fact that a part of the labor and material goods available is absorbed by the government apparatus. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, the treasury continually levies taxes and spends the whole amount raised, neither more nor less, for defraying the costs incurred by the activities of the government's officers. A part of each citizen's income is spent for public expenditure. If we assume that in such an evenly rotating economy there prevails perfect income equality in such a way that every household's income is proportional to the number of its members, both a head tax and a proportional income tax would be neutral taxes. Under these assumptions there would be no difference between them. 
A part of each citizen's income would be absorbed by public expenditure, and no secondary effects of taxation would emerge. The changing economy is entirely different from this imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy with income equality. Continuous change and the inequality of wealth and income are essential and necessary features of the changing market economy, the only real and working system of the market economy. In the frame of such a system, no tax can be neutral. The very idea of a neutral tax is as unrealizable as that of neutral money. But, of course, the reasons for this inescapable non-neutrality are different in the case of taxes from what they are in the case of money. A head tax that taxes every citizen equally and uniformly without any regard to the size of his income and wealth falls more heavily upon those with more moderate means than upon those with more ample means. It restricts the production of the articles consumed by the masses more sharply than that of the articles mainly consumed by the wealthier citizens. On the other hand, it curtails saving and capital accumulation less than a more burdensome taxation of the wealthier citizens does. It does not slow down the tendency toward a drop in the marginal productivity of capital goods as against the marginal productivity of labor to the same extent as does taxation discriminating against those with higher income and wealth, and consequently it does not to the same extent retard the tendency toward a rise in wage rates. The actual fiscal policies of all countries are today exclusively guided by the idea that taxes should be apportioned according to each citizen's ability to pay. In the considerations which finally resulted in the general acceptance of the ability-to-pay principle, there was some dim conception that taxing the well-to-do more heavily than those with moderate means renders a tax somewhat more neutral. However this may be, it is certain that any reference to tax neutrality was very soon entirely discarded. The ability-to-pay principle has been raised to the dignity of a postulate of social justice. As people see it today, the fiscal and budgetary objectives of taxation are of secondary importance only. The primary function of taxation is to reform social conditions according to justice. Taxation is a method of government interference with business. A tax is the more satisfactory, the less neutral it is, and the more it serves as a device for diverting production and consumption from those lines into which the unhampered market would have directed them. 2. The Total Tax The idea of social justice implied in the ability-to-pay principle is that of perfect financial equality of all citizens. As long as any inequality of income or wealth remains, it can as plausibly be argued that these larger incomes and fortunes, however small their absolute amount, indicate some excess of ability to be levied upon as it can be argued that any existing inequalities of income and wealth indicate differences in ability. 
The only logical stopping place of the ability-to-pay doctrine is at the complete equalization of incomes and wealth by confiscation of all incomes and fortunes above the lowest amount in the hands of anyone. The notion of the total tax is the antithesis of the notion of the neutral tax. The total tax completely taxes away, confiscates all incomes and estates. Then the government, out of the community chest thus filled, gives to everybody an allowance for defraying the costs of his sustenance. Or, what comes to the same thing, the government in taxing leaves free that amount which it considers everybody's fair share, and completes the shares of those who have less up to the amount of their fair share. The idea of the total tax cannot be thought out to its ultimate logical consequences. If the entrepreneurs and capitalists do not derive any personal benefit or damage from their utilization of the means of production, they become indifferent with regard to the choice between various modes of conduct. Their social function fades away, and they become disinterested, irresponsible administrators of public property. They are no longer bound to adjust production to the wishes of the consumers. If only the income is taxed away while the capital stock itself is left free, an incentive is offered to the owners to consume parts of their wealth and thus to hurt the interests of everyone. A total income tax would be a very inept means for the realization of socialism. If the total tax affects wealth no less than income, it is no longer a tax, that is, a device for collecting government revenue within a market economy. It becomes a measure for the transition to socialism. As soon as it is consummated, socialism has been substituted for capitalism. Even when looked upon as a method for the realization of socialism, the total tax is disputable, some socialists launched plans for a pro-socialist tax reform. They recommended either a 100% estate and gift tax, or taxing away totally the rent of land, or all unearned income, that is, in the socialist terminology, all revenue not derived from labor performed. The examination of these projects is superfluous. It is enough to know that they are utterly incompatible with the preservation of the market economy. 3. Fiscal and Non-Fiscal Objectives of Taxation The fiscal and non-fiscal objectives of taxation do not agree with one another. Consider, for instance, excise duties on liquor. If one considers them as a source of government revenue, the more they yield, the better they appear. Of course, as the duty must enhance the price of the beverage, it restricts sales and consumption. It is necessary to find out by testing under what rate of duty the yield becomes highest. But if one looks at liquor taxes as a means of reducing the consumption of liquor as much as possible, the rate is better, the higher it is. Pushed beyond a certain limit, the tax makes consumption drop considerably, and also the revenue concomitantly. 
If the tax fully attains its non-fiscal objective of weaning people entirely from drinking alcoholic beverages, the revenue is zero. It no longer serves any fiscal purpose. Its effects are merely prohibitive. The same is valid not only with regard to all kinds of indirect taxation, but no less for direct taxation. Discriminating taxes levied upon corporations and big business would, if raised above a certain limit, result in the total disappearance of corporations and big business. Capital levies, inheritance and estate taxes, and income taxes are similarly self-defeating if carried to extremes. There is no solution for the irreconcilable conflict between the fiscal and the non-fiscal ends of taxation. The power to tax is, as Chief Justice Marshall pertinently observed, the power to destroy. This power can be used for the destruction of the market economy, and it is the firm resolution of many governments and parties to use it for this purpose. With the substitution of socialism for capitalism, the dualism of the coexistence of two distinct spheres of action disappears. The government swallows the whole orbit of the individual's autonomous actions and becomes totalitarian. It no longer depends for its financial support on the means exacted from the citizens. There is no longer any such thing as a separation of public funds and private funds. Taxation is a matter of the market economy. It is one of the characteristic features of the market economy that the government does not interfere with the market phenomena, and that its technical apparatus is so small that its maintenance absorbs only a modest fraction of the total sum of the individual citizen's incomes. Then, taxes are an appropriate vehicle for providing the funds needed by the government. They are appropriate because they are low and do not perceptibly disarrange production and consumption. If taxes grow beyond a moderate limit, they cease to be taxes and turn into devices for the destruction of the market economy. This metamorphosis of taxes into weapons of destruction is the mark of present-day public finance. We do not deal with the quite arbitrary value judgments concerning the problems of whether heavy taxation is a curse or a benefit, and whether the expenditures financed by the tax yield are or are not wise and beneficial. What matters is that the heavier taxation becomes, the less compatible it is with the preservation of the market economy. There is no need to raise the question of whether or not it is true that no country was ever yet ruined by large expenditures of money by the public and for the public. It cannot be denied that the market economy can be ruined by large public expenditures and that it is the intention of many people to ruin it in this way. Businessmen complain about the oppressiveness of heavy taxes. Statesmen are alarmed about the danger of eating the seed corn. Yet the true crux of the taxation issue is to be seen in the paradox that the more taxes increase, the more they undermine the market economy, and, concomitantly, the system of taxation itself. 
Thus the fact becomes manifest that ultimately the preservation of private property and confiscatory measures are incompatible. Every specific tax, as well as a nation's whole tax system, becomes self-defeating above a certain height of the rates. 4. The Three Classes of Tax Interventionism The various methods of taxation which can be used for the regulation of the economy, that is, as instruments of an interventionist policy, can be classified in three groups. 1. The tax aims at totally suppressing or at restricting the production of definite commodities. It thus indirectly interferes with consumption, too. It does not matter whether this end is aimed at by the imposition of special taxes or by exempting certain products from a general tax imposed upon all other products, or upon those products which the consumers would have preferred in the absence of fiscal discrimination. Tax exemption is employed as an instrument of interventionism in the case of customs duties. The domestic product is not burdened by the tariff which affects only the merchandise imported from abroad. Many countries resort to tax discrimination in regulating domestic production. They try, for instance, to encourage the production of wine, a product of small or medium-sized grape growers, as against the production of beer, a product of big-sized breweries, by submitting beer to a more burdensome excise tax than wine. 2. The tax expropriates a part of income or wealth. 3. The tax expropriates income and wealth entirely. We do not have to deal with the third class, as it is merely a means for the realization of socialism, and as such is outside the scope of interventionism. The first class is, in its effects, not different from the restrictive measures dealt with in the following chapter. The second class encompasses confiscatory measures dealt with in Chapter 32. Chapter 29. Restriction of Production 1. The Nature of Restriction We shall deal in this chapter with those measures which are directly and primarily intended to divert production, in the broadest meaning of the word, including commerce and transportation, from the ways it would take in the unhampered market economy. Each authoritarian interference with business diverts production, of course, from the lines it would take if it were only directed by the demand of the consumers as manifested on the market. The characteristic mark of restrictive interference with production is that the diversion of production is not merely an unavoidable and unintentional secondary effect, but precisely what the authority wants to bring about. Like any other act of intervention, such restrictive measures affect consumption also. But this again, in the case of the restrictive measures we are dealing with in this chapter, is not the primary end the authority aims at. The government wants to interfere with production. 
The fact that its measure influences the ways of consumption also is, from its point of view, either altogether contrary to its intentions, or at least an unwelcome consequence with which it puts up because it is unavoidable, and is considered as a minor evil when compared with the consequences of non-intervention. Restriction of production means that the government either forbids or makes more difficult or more expensive the production, transportation, or distribution of definite articles, or the application of definite modes of production, transportation, or distribution. The authority thus eliminates some of the means available for the satisfaction of human wants. The effect of its interference is that people are prevented from using their knowledge and abilities, their labor and their material means of production, in the way in which they would earn the highest returns and satisfy their needs as much as possible. Such interference makes people poorer and less satisfied. This is the crux of the matter. All the subtlety and hair-splitting wasted in the effort to invalidate this fundamental thesis are vain. On the unhampered market there prevails an irresistible tendency to employ every factor of production for the best possible satisfaction of the most urgent needs of the consumers. If the government interferes with this process, it can only impair satisfaction. It can never improve it. The correctness of this thesis has been proved in an excellent and irrefutable manner with regard to the historically most important class of government interference with production, the barriers to international trade. In this field, the teachings of the classical economists, especially those of Ricardo, are final and settle the issue forever. All that a tariff can achieve is to divert production from those locations in which the output per unit of input is higher to locations in which it is lower. It does not increase production. It curtails it. People expatiate on alleged government encouragement of production. However, government does not have the power to encourage one branch of production except by curtailing other branches. It withdraws the factors of production from those branches in which the unhampered market would employ them and directs them into other branches. It little matters what kind of administrative procedures the government resorts to for the realization of this effect. It may subsidize openly or disguise the subsidy in enacting tariffs and thus forcing its subjects to defray the costs. What alone counts is the fact that people are forced to forego some satisfactions which they value more highly and are compensated only by satisfactions which they value less. At the bottom of the interventionist argument, there is always the idea that the government or the state is an entity outside and above the social process of production, that it owns something which is not derived from taxing its subjects, and that it can spend this mythical something for definite purposes. This is the Santa Claus fable raised by Lord Keynes to the dignity of an economic doctrine, and enthusiastically endorsed by all those who expect personal advantage from government spending. 
As against these popular fallacies, there is need to emphasize the truism that a government can spend or invest only what it takes away from its citizens, and that its additional spending and investment curtails the citizens' spending and investment to the full extent of its quantity. While government has no power to make people more prosperous by interference with business, it certainly does have the power to make them less satisfied by restriction of production. 2. The Prize of Restriction The fact that restricting production invariably involves a curtailment of the individual citizen's satisfaction does not mean that such restriction is necessarily to be regarded as a damage. A government does not wantonly resort to restrictive measures. It wants to attain certain ends, and considers the restriction as the appropriate means for the realization of its plan. The appraisal of restrictive policies depends, therefore, on the answer to two questions. Is the means chosen by the government fitted to attain the end sought? Is the realization of this end a compensation for the individual citizen's privation? In raising these questions, we look upon restriction of production as we look upon taxes. Payment of taxes also directly curtails the taxpayer's satisfaction, but it is the price he pays for the services which government renders to society and to each of its members. As far as the government fulfills its social functions and the taxes do not exceed the amount required for securing the smooth operation of the government apparatus, they are necessary costs and repay themselves. The adequacy of this mode of dealing with restrictive measures is especially manifest in all those cases in which restriction is resorted to as a substitute for taxation. The bulk of expenditure for national defense is defrayed by the Treasury out of the public revenue. But occasionally another procedure is chosen. It happens sometimes that the nation's preparedness to repel aggression depends on the existence of certain branches of industry which would be absent in the unhampered market. These industries must be subsidized, and the subsidies granted are to be considered as any other armaments expenditure. Their character remains the same if the government grants them indirectly by the imposition of an import duty for the products concerned. The difference is only that then the consumers are directly burdened with the costs incurred, while in the case of a government subsidy they defray these costs indirectly in paying higher taxes. In enacting restrictive measures, governments and parliaments have hardly ever been aware of the consequences of their meddling with business. Thus they have blithely assumed that protective tariffs are capable of raising the nation's standard of living, and they have stubbornly refused to admit the correctness of the economic teachings concerning the effects of protectionism. The economists' condemnation of protectionism is irrefutable and free of any party bias. For the economists do not say that protection is bad from any preconceived point of view. They show that protection cannot attain those ends which the governments as a rule want to attain by resorting to it. 
They do not question the ultimate end of the government's action. They merely reject the means chosen as inappropriate to realize the ends aimed at. Most popular among all restrictive measures are those styled pro-labor legislation. Here, too, the governments and public opinion badly misjudge the effects. They believe that restricting the hours of work and prohibiting child labor exclusively burdens the employers and is a social gain for the wage earners. However, this is true only to the extent that such laws reduce the supply of labor and thus raise the marginal productivity of labor as against the marginal productivity of capital. But the drop in the supply of labor results also in a decrease in the total amount of goods produced, and thereby in the average per capita consumption. The total cake shrinks, but the portion of the smaller cake which goes to the wage earners is proportionately higher than what they received from the bigger cake. Concomitantly, the portion of the capitalists drops. Entrepreneurial profits and losses are not affected by pro-labor legislation as they entirely depend on the more or less successful adjustment of production to the changing conditions of the market. With regard to these, labor legislation counts only as a factor producing change. It depends on the concrete data of each case whether or not this outcome improves or impairs the real wage rates of the various groups of wage earners. The popular appraisal of pro-labor legislation was based on the error that wage rates have no causal relation whatever to the value that the worker's labor adds to the material. Wage rates, says the iron law, are determined by the minimum amount of indispensable necessities of life. They can never rise above the subsistence level. The difference between the value produced by the worker and the wages paid to him goes to the exploiting employer. If this surplus is curtailed by restricting the working hours, the wage earner is relieved of a part of his toil and trouble. His wages remain unchanged, and the employer is deprived of a part of his unfair profit. The restriction of total output curtails only the income of the exploiting bourgeois. It has been pointed out already that the role which pro-labor legislation played in the evolution of Western capitalism was, until a few years ago, much less important than would be suggested by the vehemence with which the problems involved have been publicly discussed. Labor legislation, for the most part, merely provided a legal recognition of changes in conditions already consummated by the rapid evolution of business. But in the countries which were slow in adopting capitalistic modes of production and are backward in developing modern methods of processing and manufacturing, the problem of labor legislation is crucial. Deluded by the spurious doctrines of interventionism, the politicians of these nations believe that they can improve the lot of the destitute masses by copying the labor legislation of the most advanced capitalistic countries. They look upon the problems involved as if they were merely to be treated from what is erroneously called the human angle, and fail to recognize the real issue. 
It is a sad fact indeed that in Asia many millions of tender children are destitute and starving, that wages are extremely low when compared with American or Western European standards, that hours of work are long, and that sanitary conditions in the workshops are deplorable. But there is no means of eliminating these evils other than to work, to produce, and to save more, and thus to accumulate more capital. This is indispensable for any lasting improvement. The restrictive measures advocated by self-styled philanthropists and humanitarians would be futile. They would not only fail to improve conditions, they would make things a good deal worse. If the parents are too poor to feed their children adequately, prohibition of child labor condemns the children to starvation. If the marginal productivity of labor is so low that a worker can only earn in ten hours wages which are substandard when compared with American wages, one does not benefit the laborer by decreeing the eight-hour day. The problem under discussion is not the desirability of improving the wage earner's material well-being. The advocates of what are miscalled pro-labor laws intentionally confuse the issue in repeating again and again that more leisure, higher real wages, and freeing children and married women from the necessity of seeking jobs would make the families of the workers happier. They resort to falsehood and mean calumny in calling those who oppose such laws as detrimental to the vital interests of the wage earners, labor baiters, and enemies of labor. The disagreement does not refer to the end sought. It concerns solely the means to be applied for their realization. The question is not whether or not improvement of the masses' welfare is desirable. It is exclusively whether or not government decrees restricting the hours of work and the employment of women and children are the right means for raising the workers' standard of living. This is a purely catalactic problem to be solved by economics. Emotional talk is beside the point. It is a poor disguise for the fact that these self-righteous advocates of restriction are unable to advance any tenable objections to the economists' well-founded argumentation. The fact that the standard of living of the average American worker is incomparably more satisfactory than that of the average Chinese worker, that in the United States hours of work are shorter and that the children are sent to school and not to the factories, is not an achievement of the government and the laws of the country. It is the outcome of the fact that the capital invested per head of the employees is much greater than in China, and that consequently the marginal productivity of labor is much higher. This is not the merit of social policies. It is the result of the laissez-faire methods of the past which abstained from sabotaging the evolution of capitalism. It is this laissez-faire that the Asiatics must adopt if they want to improve the lot of their peoples. The poverty of Asia and other backward countries is due to the same causes which made conditions unsatisfactory in the early periods of Western capitalism. 
While population figures increased rapidly, restrictive policies delayed the adjustment of production methods to the needs of the growing number of mouths. It is to the imperishable credit of the laissez-faire economists, whom the typical textbooks of our universities dismiss as pessimists and apologists of the unfair greed of exploiting bourgeois, that they paved the way for economic freedom, which raised the average standard of living to an unprecedented height. Economics is not dogmatic as the self-styled, unorthodox advocates of government omnipotence and totalitarian dictatorship contend. Economics neither approves nor disapproves of government measures restricting production and output. It merely considers it its duty to clarify the consequences of such measures. The choice of policies to be adopted devolves upon the people, but in choosing, they must not disregard the teachings of economics if they want to attain the end sought. There are certainly cases in which people may consider definite restrictive measures as justified. Regulations concerning fire prevention are restrictive and raise the cost of production, but the curtailment of total output they bring about is the price to be paid for avoidance of greater disaster. The decision about each restrictive measure is to be made on the ground of a meticulous weighing of the costs to be incurred and the prize to be obtained. No reasonable man could possibly question this rule. 3. Restriction as a Privilege Every disarrangement of the market data affects various individuals and groups of individuals in a different way. For some people it is a boon, for others a blow. Only after a while, when production is adjusted to the emergence of the new datum, are these effects exhausted. Thus a restrictive measure, while placing the immense majority at a disadvantage, may temporarily improve some people's position. For those favored, the measure is tantamount to the acquisition of a privilege. They are asking for such measures because they want to be privileged. Here again, the most striking example is provided by protectionism. The imposition of a duty on the importation of a commodity burdens the consumers. But to the domestic producers, it is a boon. From their point of view, decreeing new tariffs and raising already existing tariffs is an excellent thing. The same is valid with regard to many other restrictive measures. If the government restricts, either by direct restriction or by fiscal discrimination, big business and corporations, the competitive position of small-size enterprises is strengthened. If it restricts the operation of big stores and chain stores, the small shopkeepers rejoice. It is important to realize that what those benefited by these measures consider an advantage for themselves lasts only for a limited time. In the long run, the privilege accorded to a definite class of producers loses its power to create specific gains. The privileged branch attracts newcomers, and their competition tends to eliminate the specific gains derived from the privilege. Thus the eagerness of the law's pet children to acquire privileges is insatiable, 
They continue to ask for new privileges because the old ones lose their power. On the other hand, the repeal of a restrictive measure to the existence of which the structure of production has already been adjusted means a new disarrangement of the market data, favors the short-run interests of some people, and hurts the short-run interests of other people. Let us illustrate the issue by referring to a tariff item. Ruritania years ago, let us say in 1920, decreed a tariff on the importation of leather. This was a boon for the enterprises which, at the moment, happened to be engaged in the tanning industry. But then, later, the size of the industry expanded, and the windfall gains which the tanners enjoyed in 1920 and in the following years petered out. What remains is merely the fact that a part of the world's leather production is shifted from locations in which the output per unit of input is higher to locations in Ruritania in which production requires higher costs. The residents of Ruritania pay higher prices for leather than they would pay in the absence of the tariff. As a greater part of Ruritania's capital and labor is employed in the tanneries than would be the case under free trade for leather, some other domestic industries shrank, or were at least prevented from growing. Less leather is imported from abroad, and a smaller amount of Ruritanian products is exported as payment for leather imported. The volume of Ruritania's foreign trade is curtailed. Not a single soul in the whole world derives any advantage from the preservation of the old tariff. On the contrary, everyone is hurt by the drop in the total output of mankind's industrial effort. If the policy adopted by Ruritania with regard to leather were to be adopted by all nations, and with regard to every kind of merchandise in the most rigid way, so as to abolish international trade altogether, and to make every nation perfectly autarkic, all people would have to forego entirely the advantages which the international division of labor gives them. It is obvious that the repeal of the Ruritanian tariff on leather must, in the long run, benefit everybody, Ruritanians as well as foreigners. However, in the short run it would hurt the interests of the capitalists who have invested in Ruritanian tanneries. It would no less hurt the short-run interests of the Ruritanian workers, specialized in tannery work. A part of them would have either to emigrate or to change their occupation. These capitalists and workers passionately fight all attempts to lower the leather tariff or to abolish it altogether. This shows clearly why it is politically extremely difficult to brush away measures restricting production once the structure of business has been adjusted to their existence. Although their effects are pernicious to everybody, their disappearance is, in the short run, disadvantageous to special groups. These special groups, interested in the preservation of the restrictive measures, are, of course, only minorities. In Ruritania, only the small fraction of the population engaged in the tanneries can suffer from the abolition of the tariff on leather. The immense majority are buyers of leather and leather goods, and would be benefited by a drop in their prices. 
Outside the boundaries of Ruritania, only those people would be hurt who are engaged in those industries which will shrink because the leather industry will expand. The last objection advanced by the opponents of free trade runs this way. Granted that only those Ruritanians engaged in tanning hides are immediately interested in the preservation of the tariff on leather, but every Ruritanian belongs to one of the many branches of production. If each domestic product is protected by the tariff, the transition to free trade hurts the interests of each industry, and thereby those of all specialized groups of capital and labor, the sum of which is the whole nation. It follows that repealing the tariff would in the short run be prejudicial to all citizens, and it is short-run interests only that count. This argument involves a threefold error. First, it is not true that all branches of industry would be hurt by the transition to free trade. On the contrary, those branches in which the comparative costs of production are lowest will expand under free trade. Their short-run interests would be favored by the abolition of the tariff. The tariff on those products they themselves turn out is of no advantage for them, as they could not only survive but expand under free trade. The tariff on those products for which the comparative cost is higher in Ruritania than abroad hurts them by directing capital and labor, which otherwise would have fertilized them, into those other branches. Second, the short-run principle is entirely fallacious. In the short run, every change in the market data hurts those who did not anticipate it in time. A consistent champion of the short-run principle must advocate perfect rigidity and immutability of all data and oppose any change, including any therapeutical and technological improvement. If, in acting, people were always to prefer the avoidance of an evil in the nearer future to the avoidance of an evil in the remoter future, they would come down to the animal level. It is the very essence of human action, as distinct from animal behavior, that it consciously renounces some temporally nearer satisfaction in order to reap some greater but temporally remoter satisfaction. Time preference is not absolute with man. It is only one of the items entering into the weighing and balancing of pros and cons. Man swallows bitter pills for the sake of beneficent effects to be reaped at a later date. There cannot be any question of unconditionally preferring what is good in the short run to what is good in the long run. The intensity of the satisfaction expected from each of the alternatives must be taken into account, too. Finally, if the problem of the abolition of Ruritania's comprehensive tariff system is under discussion, one must not forget the fact that the short-run interests of those engaged in tanning are hurt only by the abolition of one of the items of the tariff while they are favored by the abolition of the other items concerning the products of the industries in which comparative cost is high. It is true that wage rates of the tannery workers will drop for some time, as against those in other branches, 
and that some time will elapse until the appropriate long-run proportion between wage rates in the various branches of Ruritanian production will be established. But, concomitantly with the merely temporary drop in their earnings, these workers will experience a drop in the prices of many articles they are buying. And this tendency toward an improvement in their conditions is not a phenomenon only of the period of transition. It is the consummation of the lasting blessings of free trade, which, in shifting every branch of industry to the location in which comparative cost is lowest, increases the productivity of labor and the total quantity of goods produced. It is the lasting, long-run boom which free trade secures to every member of the market society. The opposition to the abolition of tariff protection would be reasonable from the personal point of view of those engaged in the leather industry if the tariff on leather were the only tariff. Then one could explain their attitude as dictated by status interests, the interests of a caste which would be temporarily hurt by the abolition of a privilege, although its mere preservation no longer confers any benefit on them. But in this hypothetical case, the opposition of the tanners would be hopeless. The majority of the nation would overrule it. What strengthens the ranks of the protectionists is the fact that the tariff on leather is no exception, that many branches of industry are in a similar position and are fighting the abolition of tariff items concerning their own branch. This is, of course, not an alliance based on each group's special group interests. If everybody is protected to the same extent, everybody not only loses as consumer as much as he gains as producer, everybody is harmed by the general drop in the productivity of labor which the shifting of industries from more favorable to less favorable locations brings about. Conversely, the abolition of all tariff items would benefit everybody in the long run, while the short-run harm which the abolition of some special tariff item brings to the special interests of the group concerned is already in the short run at least partly compensated by the consequences of the abolition of the tariff on the products the members of this group are buying and consuming. Many people look upon tariff protection as if it were a privilege accorded to their nation's wage earners procuring them for the full duration of its existence a higher standard of living than they would enjoy under free trade. This argument is advanced not only in the United States, but in every country in the world in which average real wage rates are higher than in some other country. Now, it is true that under perfect mobility of capital and labor, there would prevail all over the world a tendency toward an equalization of the price paid for labor of the same kind and quality. Yet, even if there were free trade for products, this tendency is absent in our real world of migration barriers and institutions hindering foreign investment of capital. The marginal productivity of labor is higher in the United States than it is in China because capital invested per head of the working population is greater, 
and because Chinese workers are prevented from moving to America and competing on the American labor market. There is no need in dealing with the explanation of this difference to investigate whether natural resources are or are not more abundant in America than in China, and whether or not the Chinese worker is racially inferior to the American worker. However this may be, these facts, namely the institutional checks upon the mobility of capital and labor, suffice to account for the absence of the equalization tendency. As the abolition of the American tariff could not affect these two facts, it could not impair the standard of living of the American wage earner in an adverse sense. On the contrary, given a state of affairs in which the mobility of capital and labor is restricted, the transition to free trade for products must necessarily raise the American standard of life. Those industries in which American costs are higher, American productivity is lower, would shrink, and those in which costs are lower, productivity is higher, would expand. It is certainly true that wage rates in Swiss watchmaking and in Chinese embroidering are low when compared with wage rates in the competing American industries. Under free trade, the Swiss and the Chinese would expand their sales on the American market, and the sales of their American competitors would shrink. But this is only a part of the consequences of free trade. Selling and producing more, the Swiss and Chinese would earn and buy more. It does not matter whether they themselves buy more of the products of other American industries or whether they increase their domestic purchases and those in other countries, for instance in France. Whatever happens, the equivalent of the additional dollars they earned must finally go to the United States and increase the sales of some American industries. If the Swiss and Chinese do not give away their products as a gift, they must spend these dollars in buying. The popular opinion to the contrary is due to the illusory idea that America could expand its purchases of imported products by reducing the total sum of its citizens' cash holdings. This is the notorious fallacy according to which people buy without regard to the size of their cash holdings, and according to which the very existence of cash holdings is simply the outcome of the fact that something is left over because there is nothing more to buy. We have already shown why this mercantilist doctrine is entirely wrong. What the tariff really brings about in the field of wage rates and the wage earner's standard of living is something quite different. In a world in which there is free trade for commodities, while the migration of workers and foreign investment are restricted, there prevails a tendency toward an establishment of a definite relation between the wages paid for the same kind and quality of labor in various countries. There cannot prevail a tendency toward an equalization of wage rates, but the final price to be paid for labor in various countries is in a certain numerical relation. 
This final price is characterized by the fact that all those eager to earn wages get a job, and all those eager to employ workers are able to hire as many hands as they want. There is full employment. Let us assume that there are two countries only, Ruritania and Mauritania. In Ruritania, the final wage rate is double what it is in Mauritania. Now the government of Ruritania resorts to one of those measures which are erroneously styled pro-labor. It burdens the employers with an additional expenditure, the size of which is proportional to the number of workers employed. For example, it reduces the hours of work without permitting a corresponding drop in weekly wage rates. The result is a drop in the quantity of goods produced, and a rise in the price of the unit of every good. The individual worker enjoys more leisure, but his standard of living is curtailed. What else could a general decrease in the quantity of goods available bring about? This outcome is an internal event in Ruritania. It would emerge also in the absence of any foreign trade. The fact that Ruritania is not autarkic, but buys from and sells to Mauritania, does not alter its essential features. But it implicates Mauritania. As the Ruritanians produce and consume less, they will buy less from Mauritania. In Mauritania there will not be a general drop in production, but some industries which produced for export to Ruritania will henceforth have to produce for the domestic Mauritanian market. Mauritania will see the volume of its foreign trade drop. It will become, willy-nilly, more autarkic. This is a blessing in the eyes of the protectionists, in truth, it means deterioration in the standard of living. Production at higher costs is substituted for that at lower costs. What Mauritania experiences is the same thing that the residents of an autarkic country would experience if an act of God were to curtail the productivity of one of the country's industries. As far as there is division of labor, Everybody is affected by a drop in the amount other people contribute to supplying the market. However, these inexorable final international consequences of Ruritania's new pro-labor law will not affect the various branches of Mauritania's industry in the same way. A sequence of steps is needed in both countries, until at last a perfect adjustment of production to the new state of data is brought about. These short-run effects are different from the long-run effects. They are more spectacular than the long-run effects. While hardly anybody can fail to notice the short-run effects, the long-run effects are recognized only by economists. While it is not difficult to conceal the long-run effects from the public, something must be done about the easily recognizable short-run effects, lest the enthusiasm for such allegedly pro-labor legislation fade away. The first short-run effect to appear is the weakening of the competitive power of some Ruritanian branches of production as against those of Mauritania. 
As prices rise in Ruritania, it becomes possible for some Mauritanians to expand their sales in Ruritania. This is a temporary effect only. In the end, the total sales of all Mauritanian industries in Ruritania will drop. It is possible that in spite of this general drop in the total amount of Mauritanian exports to Ruritania, some of the Mauritanian industries will expand their sales in the long run. This depends on the new configuration of comparative costs. But there is no necessary interconnection between these short-run and long-run effects. The adjustments of the period of transition create kaleidoscopically changing situations, which may differ entirely from the final outcome. Yet the short-sighted public's attention is completely absorbed by these short-run effects. They hear the businessmen affected complain that the new Ruritanian law gives to Mauritanians the opportunity to undersell both in Ruritania and in Mauritania. They see that some Ruritanian businessmen are forced to restrict their production and to discharge workers, and they begin to suspect that something may be wrong with the teachings of the self-styled unorthodox friends of labor. But the picture is different if there is in Ruritania a tariff high enough to prevent Mauritanians from even temporarily expanding their sales on the Ruritanian market. Then the most spectacular short-run effects of the new measure are masked in such a way that the public does not become aware of them. The long-run effects, of course, cannot be avoided, but they are brought about by another sequence of short-run effects which is less offensive because less visible. The talk about alleged social gains produced by the shortening of the hours of work is not exploded by the immediate emergence of effects which everyone, and most of all the discharged workers, consider undesirable. The main function of tariffs and other protectionist devices today is to disguise the real effects of interventionist policies designed to raise the standard of living of the masses. Economic nationalism is the necessary complement of these popular policies, which pretend to improve the wage earner's material well-being, while they are, in fact, impairing it. 4. Restriction as an Economic System There are, as has been shown, cases in which a restrictive measure can attain the end sought by its application. If those resorting to such a measure think that the attainment of this goal is more important than the disadvantages brought about by the restriction, that is, the curtailment in the quantity of material goods available for consumption, the recourse to restriction is justified from the point of view of their value judgments. They incur costs and pay a price in order to get something that they value more than what they had to expend or to forego. Nobody, and certainly not the theorist, is in a position to argue with them about the propriety of their value judgments. The only adequate mode of dealing with measures restricting production is to look at them as sacrifices made for the attainment of a definite end. They are quasi-expenditures and quasi-consumption. 
They are an employment of things that could be produced and consumed in one way for the realization of certain other ends. These things are prevented from coming into existence, but this quasi-consumption is precisely what satisfies the authors of these measures better than the increase in goods available which the omission of the restriction would have produced. With certain restrictive measures, this point of view is universally adopted. If a government decrees that a piece of land should be kept in its natural state as a national park and should be withheld from any other utilization, nobody would classify such a venture as anything else than an expenditure. The government deprives the citizens of the increment in various products which the cultivation of this land could bring about in order to provide them with another satisfaction. It follows that restriction of production can never play any role other than that of an ancillary complement of a system of production. One cannot construct a system of economic action out of such restrictive measures alone. No complex of such measures can be linked together into an integrated economic system. They cannot form a system of production. They belong in the sphere of consumption, not in the sphere of production. In scrutinizing the problems of interventionism, we are intent upon examining the claims of the advocates of government interference with business that their system offers an alternative to other economic systems. No such claim can reasonably be raised with regard to measures restricting production. The best they can attain is curtailment of output and satisfaction. Wealth is produced by expending a certain quantity of factors of production. Curtailing this quantity does not increase, but decreases the amount of goods produced. Even if the ends aimed at by shortening the hours of work could be attained by such a decree, it would not be a measure of production. It is invariably a way of cutting down output. Capitalism is a system of social production. Socialism, say the socialists, is also a system of social production. But with regard to measures restricting production, even the interventionists cannot raise a similar claim. They can only say that under capitalism too much is produced, and that they want to prevent the production of this surplus in order to realize other ends. They themselves must confess that there are limits to the application of restriction. Economics does not contend that restriction is a bad system of production. It asserts that it is not a system of production at all, but rather a system of quasi-consumption. Most of the ends the interventionists want to attain by restriction cannot be attained this way. But even where restrictive measures are fit to attain the ends sought, they are only restrictive. The enormous popularity which restriction enjoys in our day is due to the fact that people do not recognize its consequences. In dealing with the problem of shortening the hours of work by government decree, the public is not aware of the fact that total output must drop, and that it is very probable that the wage earner's standard of living will be potentially lowered too. 
It is a dogma of present-day unorthodoxy that such a pro-labor measure is a social gain for the workers, and that the costs of these gains fall entirely upon the employers. Whoever questions this dogma is branded as a sycophantic apologist of the unfair pretensions of rugged exploiters and pitilessly persecuted. It is insinuated that he wants to reduce the wage earners to the poverty and the long working hours of the early stages of modern industrialism. As against all this slander, it is important to emphasize again that what produces wealth and well-being is production, and not restriction. That in the capitalist countries the average wage earner consumes more goods and can afford to enjoy more leisure than his ancestors, and that he can support his wife and children and need not send them to work, is not an achievement of governments and labor unions. It is the outcome of the fact that profit-seeking business has accumulated and invested more capital and thus increased a thousandfold the productivity of labor. Chapter 30. Interference with the Structure of Prices 1. The Government and the Autonomy of the Market Interference with the structure of the market means that the authority aims at fixing prices for commodities and services and interest rates at a height different from what the unhampered market would have determined. It decrees or empowers, either tacitly or expressly, definite groups of people to decree prices and rates which are to be considered either as maxima or as minima, and it provides for the enforcement of such decrees by coercion and compulsion. In resorting to such measures, the government wants to favor either the buyer, as in the case of maximum prices, or the seller, as in the case of minimum prices. The maximum price is designed to make it possible for the buyer to procure what he wants at a price lower than that of the unhampered market. The minimum price is designed to make it possible for the seller to dispose of his merchandise or his services at a price higher than that of the unhampered market. It depends on the political balance of forces which groups the authority wants to favor. At times, governments have resorted to maximum prices, at other times to minimum prices for various commodities. At times they have decreed maximum wage rates, at other times minimum wage rates. It is only with regard to interest that they have never had recourse to minimum rates. When they have interfered, they have always decreed maximum interest rates. They have always looked askance upon saving, investing, and money lending. If this interference with commodity prices, wage rates, and interest rates includes all prices, wage rates, and interest rates, it is tantamount to the full substitution of socialism of the German pattern for the market economy. Then the market, interpersonal exchange, private ownership of the means of production, entrepreneurship, and private initiative virtually disappear altogether. No individual any longer has the opportunity to influence the process of production of his own accord. Every individual is bound to obey the orders of the Supreme Board of Production Management. 
What in the complex of these orders are called prices, wage rates, and interest rates are no longer prices, wage rates, and interest rates in the catalactic sense of these terms. They are merely quantitative determinations fixed by the director without reference to a market process. If the government's resorting to price control and the reformers advocating price control were always intent upon the establishment of socialism of the German pattern, there would be no need for economics to deal with price control separately. All that has to be said with reference to such price control is already contained in the analysis of socialism. Many advocates of government interference with prices have been and are very much confused with regard to this issue. They have failed to recognize the fundamental difference between a market economy and a non-market society. The haziness of their ideas has been reflected in vague and ambiguous language and in a bewildered terminology. They have tried to amalgamate things entirely incompatible with one another. Their main concepts are examples of the inconsistency which logicians call contradictio in adjecto. However, there were and are advocates of price control who have openly declared that they want to preserve the market economy. They are outspoken in their assertion that government fixing of prices, wage rates, and interest rates can attain the ends the government wants to attain by their promulgation without abolishing altogether the market and private ownership of the means of production. They even declare that price control is the best or the only means of preserving the system of private enterprise and of preventing the coming of socialism. They become very indignant if somebody questions the correctness of their doctrine and shows that price control, if it is not to make things worse from the point of view of the governments and the interventionist doctrinaires, must finally result in socialism. They protest that they are neither socialists nor communists, and that they aim at economic freedom and not at totalitarianism. It is the tenets of these interventionists that we have to examine. The problem is whether it is possible for the police power to attain the ends it wants to attain by fixing prices, wage rates, and interest rates at a height different from what the unhampered market would have determined. It is beyond doubt that a strong and resolute government has the power to decree such maximum or minimum rates and to take revenge upon the disobedient. But the question is whether or not the authority can attain those ends which it wants to attain by resorting to such decrees. History is a long record of price ceilings and anti-usury laws. Again and again, emperors, kings, and revolutionary dictators have tried to meddle with the market phenomena. Severe punishment was inflicted on refractory dealers and farmers. Many people fell victim to persecutions, which met with the enthusiastic approval of the masses. Nonetheless, all these endeavors failed. The explanation which the writings of lawyers, theologians, and philosophers provided for the failure was in full agreement with the ideas held by the rulers and the masses. 
Man, they said, is intrinsically selfish and sinful, and the authorities were unfortunately too lax in enforcing the law. What was needed was more firmness and peremptoriness on the part of those in power. Cognizance of the issue involved was first reached with regard to a special problem. Various governments long practiced currency debasement. They substituted baser and cheaper metals for a part of the gold or silver which the coins previously contained, or they reduced the weight and the size of the coins. But they retained for the debased coins the customary names of the old ones, and decreed that they should be given and received at the nominal par. Then, later, the governments tried to enjoin on their subjects analogous constraint with regard to the exchange ratio between gold and silver, and that between metallic money and credit money or fiat money. In searching for the causes which made all such decrees abortive, the forerunners of economic thought had already discovered by the last centuries of the Middle Ages the regularity which was later called Gresham's Law. There was still a long way to go from this isolated insight to the point where the philosophers of the 18th century became aware of the interconnectedness of all market phenomena. In describing the results of their reasoning, the classical economists and their successors sometimes resorted to idiomatic expressions, which could easily be misinterpreted by those who wanted to misinterpret them. They occasionally spoke of the impossibility of price control. What they really meant was not that such decrees are impossible, but that they cannot attain those ends which the governments are trying to attain, and that they make things worse, not better. They concluded that such decrees are contrary to purpose and inexpedient. It is necessary to see clearly that the problem of price control is not merely one of the problems to be dealt with by economics not a problem with regard to which there can arise disagreement among various economists. The issue involved is rather, is there any such thing as economics? Is there any regularity in the sequence and interconnectedness of the market phenomena? He who answers these two questions in the negative denies the very possibility, rationality, and existence of economics as a branch of knowledge. He returns to the beliefs held in the ages which preceded the evolution of economics. He declares to be untrue the assertion that there is any economic law, and that prices, wage rates, and interest rates are uniquely determined by the data of the market. He contends that the police have the power to determine these market phenomena ad libitum, an advocate of socialism need not necessarily negate economics. His postulates do not necessarily imply the indeterminateness of the market phenomena. But the interventionist, in advocating price control, cannot help nullifying the very existence of economics. Nothing is left of economics if one denies the law of the market. The German historical school was consistent in its radical condemnation of economics and in its endeavors to substitute wirtschaftliche Staatswissenschaften, 
the economic aspects of political science for economics. So were many adepts of British Fabianism and American institutionalism. But those authors who do not totally reject economics and yet assert that price control can attain the ends sought lamentably contradict themselves. It is logically impossible to reconcile the point of view of the economist and that of the interventionist. If prices are uniquely determined by the market data, they cannot be freely manipulated by government compulsion. The government's decree is just a new datum, and its effects are determined by the operation of the market. It need not necessarily produce those results which the government wants to realize in resorting to it. It may happen that the final outcome of the interference is, from the point of view of the government's intention, even more undesirable than the previous state of affairs which the government wanted to alter. One does not invalidate these propositions by putting the term economic law in quotation marks and by finding fault with the notion of the law. In speaking of the laws of nature, we have in mind the fact that there prevails an inexorable interconnectedness of physical and biological phenomena, and that acting man must submit to this regularity if he wants to succeed. In speaking of the laws of human action, we refer to the fact that such an inexorable interconnectedness of phenomena is present also in the field of human action as such, and that acting man must recognize this regularity too if he wants to succeed. The reality of the laws of praxeology is revealed to man by the same signs that reveal the reality of natural law namely, the fact that his power to attain his ends is restricted and conditioned. In the absence of laws, man would either be omnipotent and would never feel any uneasiness which he could not remove instantly and totally, or he could not act at all. These laws of the universe must not be confused with the man-made laws of the country and with man-made moral precepts. The laws of the universe about which physics, biology, and praxeology provide knowledge are independent of the human will. They are primary ontological facts rigidly restricting man's power to act. The moral precepts and the laws of the country are means by which men seek to attain certain ends. Whether or not these ends can really be attained this way depends on the laws of the universe. The man-made laws are suitable if they are fit to attain these ends, and contrary to purpose if they are not. They are open to examination from the point of view of their suitableness or unsuitableness. With regard to the laws of the universe, any doubt of their suitableness is supererogatory and vain. They are what they are, and take care of themselves. Their violation penalizes itself. But the man-made laws need to be enforced by special sanctions. Only the insane venture to disregard physical and biological laws. But it is quite common to disdain economic laws. Rulers do not like to admit that their power is restricted by any laws other than those of physics and biology, 
they never ascribe their failures and frustrations to the violation of economic law. Foremost in the repudiation of economic knowledge was the German historical school. It was an unbearable idea to these professors that their lofty idols, the Hohenzollern electors of Brandenburg and kings of Prussia, should have lacked omnipotence. To refute the teachings of the economists, they buried themselves in old documents and compiled numerous volumes dealing with the history of the administration of these glorious princes. This, they wrote, is a realistic approach to the problems of state and government. Here you find unadulterated facts and real life, not the bloodless abstractions and faulty generalizations of the British doctrinaires. In truth, all that these ponderous tomes report is a long record of policies and measures which failed precisely because of their neglect of economic law. No more instructive case history could ever be written than these Acta Borussica. However, economics cannot acquiesce in such exemplification. It must enter into a precise scrutiny of the mode in which the market reacts to government interference with the price structure. 2. The Market's Reaction to Government Interference The characteristic feature of the market price is that it equalizes supply and demand. The size of the demand coincides with the size of supply, not only in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy. The notion of the plain state of rest, as developed by the elementary theory of prices, is a faithful description of what comes to pass in the market at every instant. Any deviation of a market price from the height at which supply and demand are equal is, in the unhampered market, self-liquidating. But if the government fixes prices at a height different from what the market would have fixed if left alone, this equilibrium of demand and supply is disturbed. Then there are, with maximum prices, potential buyers who cannot buy, although they are ready to pay the price fixed by the authority, or even a higher price. Then there are, with minimum prices, potential sellers who cannot sell, although they are ready to sell at the price fixed by the authority, or even at a lower price. The price can no longer segregate those potential buyers and sellers who can buy or sell from those who cannot. A different principle for the allocation of the goods and services concerned, and for the selection of those who are to receive portions of the supply available, necessarily comes into operation. It may be that only those are in a position to buy who come first, or only those to whom particular circumstances, such as personal connections, assign a privileged position, or only those ruthless fellows who chase away their rivals by resorting to intimidation or violence. If the authority does not want chance or violence to determine the allocation of the supply available and conditions to become chaotic, it must itself regulate the amount which each individual is permitted to buy. It must resort to rationing. 
For the sake of simplicity, we deal in the further disquisitions of this section only with maximum prices for commodities, and in the next section only with minimum wage rates. However, our statements are, mutatis mutandis, equally valid for minimum prices for commodities and maximum wage rates. But rationing does not affect the core of the issue. The allocation of portions of the supply already produced and available to the various individuals eager to obtain a quantity of the goods concerned is only a secondary function of the market. Its primary function is the direction of production. It directs the employment of the factors of production into those channels in which they satisfy the most urgent needs of the consumers. If the government's price ceiling refers only to one consumer's good or to a limited amount of consumer's goods, while the prices of the complementary factors of production are left free, production of the consumer's goods concerned will drop. The marginal producers will discontinue producing them, lest they suffer losses. The not absolutely specific factors of production will be employed to a greater extent for the production of other goods not subject to price ceilings. A greater part of the absolutely specific factors of production will remain unused than would have remained in the absence of price ceilings. There emerges a tendency to shift production activities from the production of the goods affected by the maximum prices into the production of other goods. This outcome is, however, manifestly contrary to the intentions of the government. In resorting to price ceilings, the authority wanted to make the commodities concerned more easily accessible to the consumers. It considered precisely those commodities so vital that it singled them out for a special measure in order to make it possible even for poor people to be amply supplied with them. But the result of the government's interference is that production of these commodities drops or stops altogether. It is a complete failure. It would be vain for the government to try to remove these undesired consequences by decreeing maximum prices likewise for the factors of production needed for the production of the consumer's goods, the prices of which it has fixed. Such a measure would be successful only if all factors of production required were absolutely specific. As this can never be the case, the government must add to its first measure fixing the price of only one consumer's good below the potential market price, more and more price ceilings, not only for all other consumer's goods and for all material factors of production, but, no less, for labor. It must compel every entrepreneur, capitalist, and employee to continue producing at the prices, wage rates, and interest rates which the government has fixed, to produce those quantities which the government orders them to produce, and to sell the products to those people, producers or consumers, whom the government determines. If one branch of production were to be exempt from this regimentation, capital and labor would flow into it. 
production would be restricted precisely in those other regimented branches which the government considered so important that it interfered with the conduct of their affairs. Economics does not say that isolated government interference with the prices of only one commodity or a few commodities is unfair, bad, or unfeasible. It says that such interference produces results contrary to its purpose, that it makes conditions worse, not better, from the point of view of the government and those backing its interference. Before the government interfered, the goods concerned were, in the eyes of the government, too dear. As a result of the maximum price, their supply dwindles or disappears altogether. The government interfered because it considered these commodities especially vital, necessary, indispensable. But its action curtailed the supply available. It is, therefore, from the point of view of the government, absurd and nonsensical. If the government is unwilling to acquiesce in this undesired and undesirable outcome, and goes further and further, if it fixes the prices of all goods and services of all orders, and obliges all people to continue producing and working at these prices and wage rates, it eliminates the market altogether. Then the planned economy, socialism of the German Zwangswirtschaft pattern, is substituted for the market economy. The consumers no longer direct production by their buying and abstention from buying. The government alone directs it. There are only two exceptions to the rule that maximum prices restrict supply and thus bring about a state of affairs which is contrary to the aims sought by their imposition. One refers to absolute rent, the other to monopoly prices. The maximum price results in a restriction of supply because the marginal producers suffer losses and must discontinue production. The non-specific factors of production are employed for the production of other products, not subject to price ceilings. The utilization of the absolutely specific factors of production shrinks. Under unhampered market conditions, they would have been utilized up to the limit determined by the absence of an opportunity to use the non-specific among the complementary factors for the satisfaction of more urgent wants. Now, only a smaller part of the available supply of these absolutely specific factors can be utilized. Concomitantly, that part of the supply that remains unused increases. But if the supply of these absolutely specific factors is so scanty that under the prices of the unhampered market their total supply was utilized, a margin is given within which the government's interference does not curtail the supply of the product. The maximum price does not restrict production as long as it has not entirely absorbed the absolute rent of the marginal supplier of the absolutely specific factor. But, at any rate, it results in a discrepancy between the demand for and the supply of the product. 
Thus the amount by which the urban rent of a piece of land exceeds the agricultural rent provides a margin in which rent control can operate without restricting the supply of rental space. If the maximum rents are graduated in such a way as never to take away from any proprietor so much that he prefers to use the land for agriculture rather than for the construction of buildings, they do not affect the supply of apartments and business premises. However, they increase the demand for such apartments and premises, and thus create the very shortage that the governments pretend to fight by their rent ceilings. Whether or not the authorities resort to rationing the space available is catalactically of minor importance. At any rate, their price ceilings do not abolish the catalactic phenomenon of the urban rent. They merely transfer the rent from the landlord's income into the tenant's income. In practice, of course, governments resorting to rent restriction never adjust their ceilings to these considerations. They either rigidly freeze gross rents as they prevailed on the eve of their interference, or allow only a limited addition to these gross rents. As the proportion between the two items included in the gross rent, urban rent proper and price paid for the utilization of the superstructure, varies according to the special circumstances of each dwelling, the effect of the rent ceilings is also very different. In some cases, the expropriation of the owner to the benefit of the renter involves only a fraction of the difference between the urban rent and the agricultural rent. In other cases, it far exceeds this difference. But however this may be, the rent restriction creates a housing shortage. It increases demand without increasing supply. If maximum rents are decreed not only for already available rental space, but also for buildings still to be constructed, the construction of new buildings is no longer remunerative. It either stops altogether or slumps to a low level. The shortage is perpetuated. But even if rents in new buildings are left free, construction of new buildings drops. Prospective investors are deterred because they take into account the danger that the government will at a later date declare a new emergency and expropriate a part of their revenues in the same way as it did with the old buildings. The second exception refers to monopoly prices. The difference between a monopoly price and the competitive price of the commodity in question provides a margin in which maximum prices could be enforced without defeating the ends sought by the government. If the competitive price is P and the lowest among the possible monopoly prices M, a ceiling price of C, C being lower than M, would make it disadvantageous for the seller to raise the price above P. The maximum price would re-establish the competitive price and increase demand, production, and the supply offered for sale. A dim cognizance of this concatenation is at the bottom of some suggestions asking for government interference in order to preserve competition and to make it operate as beneficially as possible. 
We may, for the sake of argument, pass over the fact that all such proposals are unrealistic with regard to all those instances of monopoly prices which are the outcome of government interference. If the government objects to monopoly prices for new inventions, it should stop granting patents. It would be absurd to grant patents and then to deprive them of any value by forcing the patentee to sell at the competitive price. If the government does not approve of cartels, it should rather abstain from all measures, such as import duties, which provide business with the opportunity to erect combines. Things are different in those instances in which monopoly prices come into existence without assistance from the governments. Here, governmental maximum prices could re-establish competitive conditions, if it were possible to find out by academic computation at which height a non-existing competitive market would have determined the price. That all endeavors to construct non-market prices are vain has been shown. The unsatisfactory results of all attempts to determine what the fair or correct price for the services of public utilities should be are well known to all experts. Reference to these two exceptions explains why, in some rare cases, maximum prices, when applied with very great caution within a narrow margin, do not restrict the supply of the commodity or the service concerned. It does not affect the correctness of the general rule that maximum prices bring about a state of affairs which, from the point of view of the government decreeing them, is more undesirable than conditions as they would have been in the absence of price control. Observations on the Causes of the Decline of Ancient Civilization Knowledge of the effects of government interference with market prices makes us comprehend the economic causes of a momentous historical event, the decline of ancient civilization. It may be left undecided whether or not it is correct to call the economic organization of the Roman Empire capitalism. At any rate, it is certain that the Roman Empire in the second century, the age of the Antonines, the good emperors, had reached a high stage of the social division of labor and of interregional commerce. Several metropolitan centers, a considerable number of middle-sized towns, and many small towns were the seats of a refined civilization. The inhabitants of these urban agglomerations were supplied with food and raw materials not only from the neighboring rural districts, but also from distant provinces. A part of these provisions flowed into the cities as revenue of their wealthy residents who owned landed property, but a considerable part was bought in exchange for the rural population's purchases of the products of the city dwellers' processing activities. There was an extensive trade between the various regions of the vast empire, not only in the processing industries, but also in agriculture. There was a tendency toward further specialization. The various parts of the empire were no longer economically self-sufficient. They were mutually interdependent. 
What brought about the decline of the empire and the decay of its civilization was the disintegration of this economic interconnectedness, not the barbarian invasions. The alien aggressors merely took advantage of an opportunity which the internal weakness of the empire offered to them. From a military point of view, the tribes which invaded the empire in the fourth and fifth centuries were not more formidable than the armies which the legions had easily defeated in earlier times. But the empire had changed. Its economic and social structure was already medieval. The freedom that Rome granted to commerce and trade had always been restricted. With regard to the marketing of cereals and other vital necessities, it was even more restricted than with regard to other commodities. It was deemed unfair and immoral to ask for grain, oil, and wine, the staples of these ages, more than the customary prices, and the municipal authorities were quick to check what they considered profiteering. Thus the evolution of an efficient wholesale trade in these commodities was prevented. The policy of the Annona, which was tantamount to a nationalization or municipalization of the grain trade, aimed at filling the gaps. But its effects were rather unsatisfactory. Grain was scarce in the urban agglomerations, and the agriculturists complained about the unremunerativeness of grain growing. The interference of the authorities upset the adjustment of supply to the rising demand. The showdown came when, in the political troubles of the third and fourth centuries, the emperors resorted to currency debasement. With the system of maximum prices, the practice of debasement completely paralyzed both the production and the marketing of the vital foodstuffs, and disintegrated society's economic organization. The more eagerness the authorities displayed in enforcing the maximum prices, the more desperate became the conditions of the urban masses dependent on the purchase of food. Commerce in grain and other necessities vanished altogether. To avoid starving, people deserted the cities, settled on the countryside, and tried to grow grain, oil, wine, and other necessities for themselves. On the other hand, the owners of the big estates restricted their excess production of cereals and began to produce in their farmhouses, the villi, the products of handicraft which they needed. For their big-scale farming, which was already seriously jeopardized because of the inefficiency of slave labor, lost its rationality completely when the opportunity to sell at remunerative prices disappeared. As the owner of the estate could no longer sell in the cities, he could no longer patronize the urban artisans either. He was forced to look for a substitute to meet his needs by employing handicraftsmen on his own account in his villa. He discontinued big-scale farming and became a landlord receiving rents from tenants or sharecroppers. These coloni were either freed slaves or urban proletarians who settled in the villages and turned to tilling the soil. A tendency toward the establishment of autarky of each landlord's estate emerged. The economic function of the cities, of commerce, trade, and urban handicrafts shrank. 
Italy and the provinces of the empire returned to a less advanced state of the social division of labor. The highly developed economic structure of ancient civilization retrograded to what is now known as the manorial organization of the Middle Ages. The emperors were alarmed with that outcome, which undermined the financial and military power of their government. But their counteraction was futile, as it did not affect the root of the evil. The compulsion and coercion to which they resorted could not reverse the trend toward social disintegration, which, on the contrary, was caused precisely by too much compulsion and coercion. No Roman was aware of the fact that the process was induced by the government's interference with prices and by currency debasement. It was vain for the emperors to promulgate laws against the city-dweller, who relicta civitate rus habitare malueret. The system of the liturgia, the public services to be rendered by the wealthy citizens, only accelerated the retrogression of the division of labor. The laws concerning the special obligations of the shipowners, the naviculari, were no more successful in checking the decline of navigation than the laws concerning grain dealing in checking the shrinkage in the city's supply of agricultural products. The marvelous civilization of antiquity perished because it did not adjust its moral code and its legal system to the requirements of the market economy. A social order is doomed if the actions which its normal functioning requires are rejected by the standards of morality, are declared illegal by the laws of the country, and are prosecuted as criminal by the courts and the police. The Roman Empire crumbled to dust because it lacked the spirit of liberalism and free enterprise. The policy of interventionism and its political corollary, the Fuhrer principle, decompose the mighty empire as they will, by necessity, always disintegrate and destroy any social entity. 3. Minimum Wage Rates The very essence of the interventionist politician's wisdom is to raise the price of labor, either by government decree or by violent action on the part of labor unions. To raise wage rates above the height at which the unhampered market would determine them is considered a postulate of the eternal laws of morality, as well as indispensable from the economic point of view. Whoever dares to challenge this ethical and economic dogma is scorned both as depraved and ignorant. Many of our contemporaries look upon people who are foolhardy enough to cross a picket line as primitive tribesmen looked upon those who violated the precepts of taboo conceptions. Millions are jubilant if such scabs receive their well-deserved punishment from the hands of the strikers, while the police, the public attorneys, and the penal courts preserve a lofty neutrality. The market wage rate tends toward a height at which all those eager to earn wages get jobs, and all those eager to employ workers can hire as many as they want. It tends toward the establishment of what is nowadays called full employment. Where there is neither government nor union interference with the labor market, there is only voluntary or catalactic unemployment. 
but as soon as external pressure and compulsion, be it on the part of the government or on the part of the unions, tries to fix wage rates at a higher point, institutional unemployment emerges. While there prevails on the unhampered labor market a tendency for catalactic unemployment to disappear, institutional unemployment cannot disappear as long as the government or the unions are successful in the enforcement of their fiat. If the minimum wage rate refers only to a part of the various occupations while other sectors of the labor market are left free, those losing their jobs on its account enter the free branches of business and increase the supply of labor in them. When unionism was restricted to skilled labor mainly, the wage rise achieved by the unions did not lead to institutional unemployment. It merely lowered the height of wage rates in those branches in which there were no efficient unions or no unions at all. The corollary of the rise in wages for organized workers was a drop in wages for unorganized workers. But with the spread of government interference with wages and with government support of unionism, conditions have changed. Institutional unemployment has become a chronic or permanent mass phenomenon. Writing in 1930, Lord Beveridge, now an enthusiastic advocate of government and union meddling with the labor market, pointed out that the potential effect of a high wages policy in causing unemployment is not denied by any competent authority. In fact, to deny this effect is tantamount to a complete disavowal of any regularity in the sequence and interconnectedness of market phenomena. Those earlier economists who sympathized with the unions were fully aware of the fact that unionization can achieve its ends only when restricted to a minority of workers. They approved of unionism as a device beneficial to the group interests of a privileged labor aristocracy, and did not concern themselves about its consequences for the rest of the wage earners. No one has ever succeeded in the effort to demonstrate that unionism could improve the conditions and raise the standard of living of all those eager to earn wages. It is important to remember also that Karl Marx did not contend that unions could raise the average standard of wages. As he saw it, the general tendency of capitalistic production is not to raise, but to sink the average standard of wages. Such being the tendency of things, all that unionism can achieve with regard to wages is making the best of the occasional chances for their temporary improvement. The unions counted for Marx only as far as they attacked the very system of wage slavery and present-day methods of production. They should understand that instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work, they ought to inscribe on their banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wages system. Consistent Marxians always opposed attempts to impose minimum wage rates as detrimental to the interests of the whole labor class. From the beginning of the modern labor movement, there was always an antagonism between the unions and the revolutionary socialists. 
The older British and American unions were exclusively dedicated to the enforcement of higher wage rates. They looked askance upon socialism, utopian as well as scientific. In Germany there was a rivalry between the adepts of the Marxian creed and the union leaders. Finally, in the last decades preceding the outbreak of the First World War, the unions triumphed. They virtually converted the Social Democratic Party to the principles of interventionism and unionism. In France, Georges Sorel aimed at imbuing the unions with that spirit of ruthless aggression and revolutionary bellicosity which Marx wanted to impart to them. There is today in every non-socialist country a manifest conflict between two irreconcilable factions within the unions. One group considers unionism a device for the improvement of the workers' conditions within the frame of capitalism. The other group wants to drive the unions into the ranks of militant communism and approves of them only as far as they are the pioneers of a violent overthrow of the capitalistic system. The problems of labor unionism have been obfuscated and utterly confused by pseudo-humanitarian blather. The advocates of minimum wage rates, whether decreed and enforced by the government or by violent union action, contend that they are fighting for the improvement of the conditions of the working masses. They do not permit anyone to question their dogma that minimum wage rates are the only appropriate means of raising wage rates permanently and for all those eager to earn wages. They pride themselves on being the only true friends of labor, of the common man, of progress, and of the eternal principles of social justice. However, the problem is precisely whether there is any means for raising the standard of living of all those eager to work, other than raising the marginal productivity of labor, by accelerating the increase of capital as compared with population. The union doctrinaires are intent upon obscuring this primary issue. They never refer to the only point that matters, namely, the relation between the number of workers and the quantity of capital goods available. But certain policies of the unions involve a tacit acknowledgment of the correctness of the catalactic theorems concerning the determination of wage rates. Unions are anxious to cut down the supply of labor by anti-immigration laws and by preventing outsiders and newcomers from competing in the unionized sectors of the labor market. They are opposed to the export of capital. These policies would be nonsensical if it were true that the per capita quota of capital available is of no importance for determination of wage rates. The essence of the union doctrine is implied in the slogan, Exploitation. According to the union variety of the exploitation doctrine, which differs in some points from the Marxian creed, labor is the only source of wealth, and expenditure of labor the only real costs. By rights, all proceeds from the sale of products should belong to the workers, the worker has a fair claim to the whole produce of labor. The wrong that the capitalistic mode of production does to the worker consists in the fact that it permits landowners, capitalists, and entrepreneurs to withhold a part of the worker's portion. 
the share which goes to these parasites is unearned income. It is manifestly a predatory revenue, a theft. The workers are right in their endeavors to raise wage rates step by step to such a height that finally nothing will be left for the support of a class of idle and socially useless exploiters. In aiming at this end, they continue the battle which earlier generations fought for the emancipation of slaves and serfs, and for the abolition of the imposts, tributes, tithes, and unpaid statute labor with which the peasantry was burdened for the benefit of aristocratic landlords. The labor movement is a struggle for freedom and equality, and for the vindication of the inalienable rights of man. Its ultimate victory is beyond doubt, for it is the inevitable trend of historical evolution to wipe out all class privileges and to establish firmly the realm of freedom and equality. The attempts of reactionary employers to halt progress are doomed. Such are the tenets of present-day social doctrine. It is true that some people, although in perfect agreement with its philosophical ideas, support the practical conclusions derived by the radicals only with certain reservations and qualifications. These moderates do not propose to abolish management's share altogether. They would be satisfied with cutting it down to a fair amount. As the opinions concerning the fairness of the revenues of the entrepreneurs and capitalists vary widely, the difference between the point of view of the radicals and that of the moderates is of little moment. The moderates also endorse the principle that real wage rates should always rise and never drop. In both world wars, few voices in the United States disputed the claim of the unions that the wage earners' take-home pay, even in a national emergency, should go up faster than the cost of living. All these sentimental disquisitions leave out of consideration the problems that matter, namely the economic aspects of the issue. They take no notice of institutional unemployment, the inescapable result of raising wage rates above the height determined by the unhampered market. As the union doctrine sees it, there is no harm in confiscating the specific revenue of the capitalists and entrepreneurs, partially or altogether. In dealing with this issue, they speak of profits in the sense in which the classical economists applied this term. They do not distinguish between entrepreneurial profit, interest on the capital employed, and compensation for the technical services rendered by the entrepreneur. We will deal later with the consequences resulting from the confiscation of interest and profits, and with the syndicalist elements involved in the ability-to-pay principle and in profit-sharing schemes. We have examined the purchasing power argument as advanced in favor of a policy of raising wage rates above the potential market rates. What remains is to scrutinize the purport of the alleged Ricardo effect. Ricardo is the author of the proposition that a rise in wages will encourage capitalists to substitute machinery for labor and vice versa. Hence, conclude the union apologists, a policy of raising wage rates, irrespective of what they would have been on the unhampered labor market, is always beneficial. 
It generates technological improvement and raises the productivity of labor. Higher wage rates always pay for themselves. In forcing the reluctant employers to raise wage rates, the unions become the pioneers of progress and prosperity. Many economists approve of the Ricardian proposition, although few of them are consistent enough to endorse the inference the union apologists draw from it. The Ricardo effect is by and large a stock in trade of popular economics. Nonetheless, the theorem involved is one of the worst economic fallacies. The confusion starts with the misinterpretation of the statement that machinery is substituted for labor. What happens is that labor is rendered more efficient by the aid of machinery. The same input of labor leads to a greater quantity or a better quality of products. The employment of machinery itself does not directly result in a reduction of the number of hands employed in the production of the Article A concerned. What brings about this secondary effect is the fact that, other things being equal, an increase in the available supply of A lowers the marginal utility of a unit of A as against that of the units of other articles, and that therefore labor is withdrawn from the production of A and employed in the turning out of other articles. The technological improvement in the production of A makes it possible to realize certain projects which could not be executed before, because the workers required were employed for the production of A, for which consumers' demand was more urgent. The reduction of the number of workers in the A industry is caused by the increased demand of these other branches to which the opportunity to expand is offered. Incidentally, this insight explodes all talk about technological unemployment. Tools and machinery are primarily not labor-saving devices, but means to increase output per unit of input. They appear as labor-saving devices if looked upon exclusively from the point of view of the individual branch of business concerned. Seen from the point of view of the consumers and the whole of society, they appear as instruments that raise the productivity of human effort. They increase supply and make it possible to consume more material goods and to enjoy more leisure. Which goods will be consumed in greater quantity and to what extent people will prefer to enjoy more leisure depends on people's value judgments. The employment of more and better tools is feasible only to the extent that the capital required is available. Saving, that is, a surplus of production over consumption, is the indispensable condition of every further step toward technological improvement. Mere technological knowledge is of no use if the capital needed is lacking. Chinese businessmen are familiar with American ways of production. What prevents them from adopting the American methods is not the lowness of Chinese wages, but lack of capital. On the other hand, capitalist saving necessarily causes employment of additional tools and machinery. The role that plain saving, that is, the piling up of stocks of consumers' goods as a reserve for rainy days, plays in the market economy is negligible. 
Under capitalism, saving is, as a rule, capitalist saving. The excess of production over consumption is invested either directly in the saver's own business or farm, or indirectly in other people's enterprises through the instrumentality of savings deposits, common and preferred stock, bonds, debentures, and mortgages. As we are dealing here with the conditions of the unhampered market economy, we may disregard the capital-consuming effects of government borrowing. To the extent to which people keep their consumption below their net income, additional capital is created, and at the same time employed for the expansion of the capital equipment of the apparatus of production. As has been pointed out, this outcome cannot be affected by any synchronous tendency toward an increase in cash holdings. On one hand, what is unconditionally needed for the employment of more and better tools is additional accumulation of capital. On the other hand, there is no employment available for additional capital other than that provided by the application of more and better tools. Ricardo's proposition and the Union doctrine derived from it turn things upside down. A tendency toward higher wage rates is not the cause, but the effect of technological improvement. Profit-seeking business is compelled to employ the most efficient methods of production. What checks a businessman's endeavors to improve the equipment of his firm is only lack of capital. If the capital required is not available, no meddling with wage rates can provide it. All that minimum wage rates can accomplish with regard to the employment of machinery is to shift additional investment from one branch into another. Let us assume that in an economically backward country, Ruritania, the stevedores' union succeeds in forcing the entrepreneurs to pay wage rates which are comparatively much higher than those paid in the rest of the country's industries. Then it may result that the most profitable employment for additional capital is to utilize mechanical devices in the loading and unloading of ships. But the capital thus employed is withheld from other branches of Ruritania's business, in which, in the absence of the Union's policy, it would have been employed in a more profitable way. The effect of the high wages of the stevedores is not an increase, but a drop in Ruritania's total production. The example is merely hypothetical. Such a powerful union would probably prohibit the employment of mechanical devices in the loading and unloading of ships in order to create more jobs. Real wage rates can rise only to the extent that, other things being equal, capital becomes more plentiful. If the government or the unions succeed in enforcing wage rates which are higher than those the unhampered labor market would have determined, the supply of labor exceeds the demand for labor. Institutional unemployment emerges. Firmly committed to the principles of interventionism, governments try to check this undesired result of their interference by resorting to those measures which are nowadays called full employment policy, 
unemployment doles, arbitration of labor disputes, public works by means of lavish public spending, inflation, and credit expansion. All these remedies are worse than the evil they are designed to remove. Assistance granted to the unemployed does not dispose of unemployment. It makes it easier for the unemployed to remain idle. The nearer the allowance comes to the height at which the unhampered market would have fixed the wage rate, the less incentive it offers to the beneficiary to look for a new job. It is a means of making unemployment last, rather than of making it disappear. The disastrous financial implications of unemployment benefits are manifest. Arbitration is not an appropriate method for the settlement of disputes concerning the height of wage rates. If the arbitrator's award fixes wage rates exactly at the potential market rate or below that rate, it is supererogatory. If it fixes wage rates above the potential market rate, the consequences are the same that any other mode of fixing minimum wage rates above the market height brings about, namely, institutional unemployment. It does not matter to what pretext the arbitrator resorts in order to justify his decision. What matters is not whether wages are fair or unfair by some arbitrary standard, but whether they do or do not bring about an excess of supply of labor over demand for labor. It may seem fair to some people to fix wage rates at such a height that a great part of the potential labor force is doomed to lasting unemployment, but nobody can assert that it is expedient and beneficial to society. If government spending is financed by taxing the citizens or borrowing from them, the citizens' power to spend and invest is curtailed, to the same extent as that of the public treasury expands. No additional jobs are created. But if the government finances its spending program by inflation, by an increase in the quantity of money and by credit expansion, it causes a general cash-induced rise in the prices of all commodities and services. If, in the course of such an inflation, the rise in wage rates sufficiently lags behind the rise in the prices of commodities, institutional unemployment may shrink or disappear altogether. But what makes it shrink or disappear is precisely the fact that such an outcome is tantamount to a drop in real wage rates. Lord Keynes considered credit expansion an efficient method for the abolition of unemployment. He believed that gradual and automatic lowering of real wages as a result of rising prices would not be so strongly resisted by labor as any attempt to lower money wage rates. However, the success of such a cunning plan would require an unlikely degree of ignorance and stupidity on the part of the wage earners. As long as workers believe that minimum wage rates benefit them, they will not let themselves be cheated by such clever tricks. In practice, all these devices of an alleged full employment policy finally lead to the establishment of socialism of the German pattern. As the members of an arbitration court whom the employers have appointed and those whom the unions have appointed never agree with regard to the fairness of a definite rate, 
the decision virtually devolves upon the members appointed by the government. The power to determine the height of wage rates is thus vested in the government. The more public works expand and the more the government undertakes in order to fill the gap left by private enterprises' inability to provide jobs for all, the more the realm of private enterprise shrinks. Thus we are again faced with the alternative of capitalism or socialism. There cannot be any question of a lasting policy of minimum wage rates. The Catalactic Aspects of Labor Unionism The only catalactic problem with regard to labor unions is the question of whether or not it is possible to raise by pressure and compulsion the wage rates of all those eager to earn wages above the height the unhampered market would have determined. In all countries, the labor unions have actually acquired the privilege of violent action. The governments have abandoned in their favor the essential attribute of government, the exclusive power and right to resort to violent coercion and compulsion. Of course, the laws which make it a criminal offense for any citizen to resort, except in case of self-defense, to violent action, have not been formally repealed or amended. However, actually, labor union violence is tolerated within broad limits. The labor unions are practically free to prevent by force anybody from defying their orders concerning wage rates and other labor conditions. They are free to inflict with impunity bodily evils upon strike-breakers and upon entrepreneurs and mandatories of entrepreneurs who employ strike-breakers. They are free to destroy property of such employers and even to injure customers patronizing their shops. The authorities, with the approval of public opinion, condone such acts. The police do not stop such offenders, the state attorneys do not arraign them, and no opportunity is offered to the penal courts to pass judgment on their actions. In excessive cases, if the deeds of violence go too far, some lame and timid attempts at repression and prevention are ventured, but as a rule they fail. Their failure is sometimes due to bureaucratic inefficiency or to the insufficiency of the means at the disposal of the authorities, but more often to the unwillingness of the whole governmental apparatus to interfere successfully. Such has been the state of affairs for a long time in all non-socialist countries. The economist, in establishing these facts, neither blames nor accuses. He merely explains what conditions have given to the unions the power to enforce their minimum wage rates, and what the real meaning of the term collective bargaining is. As union advocates explain the term collective bargaining, it merely means the substitution of a union's bargaining for the individual bargaining of the individual workers. In the fully developed market economy, bargaining concerning those commodities and services of which homogeneous items are frequently bought and sold in great quantities is not effected by the manner in which non-fungible commodities and services are traded. 
the buyer or seller of fungible consumers' goods or of fungible services, fixes a price tentatively and adjusts it later, according to the response his offer meets from those interested, until he is in a position to buy or to sell as much as he plans. Technically, no other procedure is feasible. The department store cannot haggle with its patrons. It fixes the price of an article and waits. If the public does not buy sufficient quantities, it lowers the price. A factory that needs 500 welders fixes a wage rate which, as it expects, will enable it to hire 500 men. If only a minor number turns up, it is forced to allow a higher rate. Every employer must raise the wages he offers up to the point at which no competitor lures the workers away by overbidding. What makes the enforcement of minimum wage rates futile is precisely the fact that with wages raised above this point, competitors do not turn up with a demand for labor big enough to absorb the whole supply. If the unions were really bargaining agencies, their collective bargaining could not raise the height of wage rates above the point of the unhampered market. As long as there still are unemployed workers available, there is no reason for an employer to raise his offer. Real collective bargaining would not differ catalactically from individual bargaining. It would, like individual bargaining, give a virtual voice to those job seekers who have not yet found the jobs they are looking for. However, what is euphemistically called collective bargaining by union leaders and pro-labor legislation is of a quite different character. It is bargaining at the point of a gun. It is bargaining between an armed party ready to use its weapons and an unarmed party under duress. It is not a market transaction. It is a dictate forced upon the employer, and its effects do not differ from those of a government decree for the enforcement of which the police power and the penal courts are used. It produces institutional unemployment. The treatment of the problems involved by public opinion and the vast number of pseudo-economic writings is utterly misleading. The issue is not the right to form associations. It is whether or not any association of private citizens should be granted the privilege of resorting with impunity to violent action. It is the same problem that relates to the activities of the Ku Klux Klan. Neither is it correct to look upon the matter from the point of view of a right to strike. The problem is not the right to strike, but the right, by intimidation or violence, to force other people to strike, and the further right to prevent anybody from working in a shop in which a union has called a strike. When the unions invoke the right to strike in justification of such intimidation and deeds of violence, they are on no better ground than a religious group would be in invoking the right of freedom of conscience as a justification of persecuting dissenters. When in the past the laws of some countries denied to employees the right to form unions, they were guided by the idea that such unions have no objective other than to resort to violent action and intimidation. 
when the authorities in the past sometimes directed their armed forces to protect the employers, their mandatories, and their property against the onslaught of strikers, they were not guilty of acts hostile to labor. They simply did what every government considers its main duty. They tried to preserve their exclusive right to resort to violent action. There is no need for economics to enter into an examination of the problems of jurisdictional strikes and of various laws, especially of the American New Deal, which were admittedly loaded against the employers and which assigned a privileged position to the unions. There is only one point that matters. If a government decree or labor union pressure and compulsion fix wage rates above the height of the potential market rates, institutional unemployment results. Chapter 31. Currency and Credit Manipulation 1. The Government and the Currency Media of exchange and money are market phenomena. What makes a thing a medium of exchange, or money, is the conduct of parties to market transactions. An occasion for dealing with monetary problems appears to the authorities in the same way in which they concern themselves with all other objects exchanged, namely, when they are called upon to decide whether or not the failure of one of the parties to an act of exchange to comply with his contractual obligations justifies compulsion on the part of the government apparatus of violent oppression. If both parties discharge their mutual obligations instantly and synchronously, as a rule, no conflicts arise which would induce one of the parties to apply to the judiciary. But if one or both parties' obligations are temporally deferred, it may happen that the courts are called to decide how the terms of the contract are to be complied with. If payment of a sum of money is involved, this implies the task of determining what meaning is to be attached to the monetary terms used in the contract. Thus it devolves upon the laws of the country and upon the courts to define what the parties to the contract had in mind when speaking of a sum of money and to establish how the obligation to pay such a sum is to be settled in accordance with the terms agreed upon. They have to determine what is and what is not legal tender. In attending to this task, the laws and the courts do not create money. A thing becomes money only by virtue of the fact that those exchanging commodities and services commonly use it as a medium of exchange. In the unhampered market economy, the laws and the judges in attributing legal tender quality to a certain thing merely establish what, according to the usages of trade, was intended by the parties when they referred in their deal to a definite kind of money. They interpret the customs of the trade in the same way in which they proceed when called to determine what is the meaning of any other terms used in contracts. Mintage has long been a prerogative of the rulers of the country. However, this government activity had originally no objective other than the stamping and certifying of weights and measures. 
the authority's stamp placed upon a piece of metal was supposed to certify its weight and fineness. When later princes resorted to substituting baser and cheaper metals for a part of the precious metals while retaining the customary face and name of the coins, they did it furtively and in full awareness of the fact that they were engaged in a fraudulent attempt to cheat the public. As soon as people found out these artifices, the debased coins were dealt with at a discount as against the old, better ones. The governments reacted by resorting to compulsion and coercion. They made it illegal to discriminate in trade and in the settlement of deferred payments between good money and bad money, and decreed maximum prices in terms of bad money. However, the result obtained was not that which the governments aimed at. Their decrees failed to stop the process which adjusted commodity prices in terms of the debased currency to the actual state of the money relation. Moreover, the effects appeared which Gresham's Law describes. The history of government interference with currency is, however, not merely a record of debasement practices and of abortive attempts to avoid their inescapable catalactic consequences. There were governments that did not look upon their mintage prerogative as a means of cheating that part of the public who placed confidence in their ruler's integrity, and who, out of ignorance, were ready to accept the debased coins at their face value. These governments considered the manufacturing of coins not as a source of surreptitious fiscal lucre, but as a public service designed to safeguard a smooth functioning of the market. But even these governments, out of ignorance and dilettantism, often resorted to measures which were tantamount to interference with the price structure, although they were not deliberately planned as such. As two precious metals were used side by side as money, the authorities naively believed that it was their task to unify the currency system by decreeing a rigid exchange ratio between gold and silver. The bimetallic system proved a complete failure. It did not bring about bimetallism, but an alternating standard. That metal which, compared with the instantaneous state of the fluctuating market exchange rate between gold and silver, was overvalued in the legally fixed ratio, predominated in domestic circulation, while the other metal disappeared. Finally, the governments abandoned their vain attempts and acquiesced to monometallism. The present silver purchase policy of the American government is not seriously a device of monetary policy. It is merely a device for raising the price of silver for the benefit of the owners of silver mines, their employees, and the states within whose boundaries the mines are located. It is a hardly disguised subsidy. Its monetary significance consists exclusively in the fact that it is financed by issuing additional dollar notes whose legal tender quality does not differ essentially from that of the Federal Reserve notes, although they bear the practically meaningless imprint, Silver Certificate.
Yet economic history also provides instances of well-designed and successful monetary policies on the part of governments whose only intention was to equip their countries with a smoothly working currency system. Laissez-faire liberalism did not abolish the traditional government prerogative of mintage, but in the hands of the liberal governments the character of this state monopoly was completely altered. The ideas which considered it an instrument of interventionist policies were discarded. No longer was it used for fiscal purposes or for favoring some groups of the people at the expense of other groups. The government's monetary activities aimed at one objective only, to facilitate and to simplify the use of the medium of exchange which the conduct of the people had made money. A nation's currency system, it was agreed, should be sound. The principle of soundness meant that the standard coins, that is, those to which unlimited legal tender power was assigned by the laws, should be properly assayed and stamped bars of bullion, coined in such a way as to make the detection of clipping, abrasion, and counterfeiting easy. To the government's stamp, no function was attributed other than to certify the weight and the fineness of the metal contained. Pieces worn by usage, or in any other way reduced in weight beyond the very narrow limits of tolerated allowance, lost their legal tender quality. The authorities themselves withdrew such pieces from circulation and remitted them. For the receiver of an undefaced coin, there was no need to resort to the scales and to the melting pot in order to know its weight and content. On the other hand, individuals were entitled to bring bullion to the mint and to have it transformed into standard coins, either free of charge or against payment of a seniorage, generally not surpassing the actual expenses of the process. Thus the various national currencies became genuine gold currencies. Stability in the exchange ratio between the domestic legal tender and that of all other countries which had adopted the same principles of sound money was thus brought about. The international gold standard came into being without intergovernmental treaties and institutions. In many countries, the emergence of the gold standard was effected by the operation of Gresham's Law. The role that government policies played in the process in Great Britain consisted merely in ratifying the results brought about by the operation of Gresham's Law. It transformed a de facto state of affairs into a legal state. In other countries, the governments deliberately abandoned bimetallism just at the moment when the change in the market ratio between gold and silver would have brought about a substitution of a de facto silver currency for the then prevailing de facto gold currency. With all these nations, the formal adoption of the gold standard required no other contribution on the part of the administration and the legislature than the enactment of laws. It was different in those countries which wanted to substitute the gold standard for a de facto or de jure silver or paper currency. 
When the German Reich in the 70s of the 19th century wanted to adopt the gold standard, the nation's currency was silver. It could not realize its plan by simply imitating the procedure of those countries in which the enactment of the gold standard was merely a ratification of the actual state of affairs. It had to exchange the silver standard coins in the hands of the public against gold coins. This was a time-absorbing and complicated financial operation involving vast government purchases of gold and sales of silver. Conditions were similar in those countries which aimed at the substitution of gold for credit money or fiat money. It is important to realize these facts because they illustrate the difference between conditions as they prevailed in the liberal age and those prevailing today in the age of interventionism. 2. The Interventionist Aspect of Legal Tender Legislation The simplest and oldest variety of monetary interventionism is debasement of coins or diminution of their weight or size for the sake of debt abatement. The authority assigns to the cheaper currency full legal tender power. All deferred payments can be legally discharged by payment of the amount due in the meaner coins according to their face value. Debtors are favored at the expense of creditors. But at the same time, future credit transactions are made more onerous for debtors. A tendency for gross market rates of interest to rise ensues as the parties take into account the chances for a repetition of such measures of debt abatement. While debt abatement improves the conditions of those who were already indebted at the moment, it impairs the position of those eager or obliged to contract new debts. The anti-type of debt abatement, debt aggravation through monetary measures, has also been practiced, though rarely. However, it has never deliberately been planned as a device to favor the creditors at the expense of the debtors, Whenever it came to pass, it was the unintentional effect of monetary changes considered as peremptory from other points of view. In resorting to such monetary changes, governments put up with their effects upon deferred payments either because they considered the measures unavoidable or because they assumed that creditors and debtors, in determining the terms of the contract, had already foreseen these changes and duly taken them into account. The best examples are provided by British events after the Napoleonic Wars, and again after the First World War. In both instances, Great Britain, some time after the end of hostilities returned, by means of a deflationary policy to the pre-war gold parity of the pound sterling. The idea of engineering the substitution of the gold standard for the wartime credit money standard by acquiescing in the change in the market exchange ratio between the pound and gold, which had already taken place, and of adopting this ratio as the new legal parity, was rejected. 
This second alternative was scorned as a kind of national bankruptcy, as a partial repudiation of the public debt, and as a malicious infringement upon the rights of all those whose claims had originated in the period preceding the suspension of the unconditional convertibility of the banknotes of the Bank of England. People labored under the delusion that the evils caused by inflation could be cured by a subsequent deflation. Yet the return to the pre-war gold parity could not indemnify the creditors for the damage they had suffered as far as the debtors had repaid their old debts during the period of money depreciation. Moreover, it was a boon to all those who had lent during this period, and a blow to all those who had borrowed. But the statesmen who were responsible for the deflationary policy were not aware of the import of their action. They failed to see consequences which were, even in their eyes, undesirable, and if they had recognized them in time, they would not have known how to avoid them. Their conduct of affairs really favored the creditors at the expense of the debtors, especially the holders of the government bonds at the expense of the taxpayers. In the twenties of the nineteenth century it aggravated seriously the distress of British agriculture, and a hundred years later the plight of British export trade. Nonetheless, it would be a mistake to call these two British monetary reforms the consummation of an interventionism intentionally aiming at debt aggravation. Debt aggravation was merely an attending phenomenon of a policy aiming at other ends. Whenever debt abatement is resorted to, its authors protest that the measure will never be repeated. They emphasize that extraordinary conditions which will never again present themselves have created an emergency which makes indispensable recourse to noxious devices, absolutely reprehensible under any other circumstances. Once and never again, they declare. It is easy to conceive why the authors and supporters of debt abatement are compelled to make such promises. If total or partial nullification of the creditor's claims becomes a regular policy, lending of money will stop altogether. The stipulation of deferred payments depends on the expectation that no such nullification will be decreed. It is therefore not permissible to look upon debt abatement as a device of a system of economic policies which could be considered as an alternative to any other system of society's permanent economic organization. It is by no means a tool of constructive action. It is a bomb that destroys and can do nothing but destroy. If it is applied only once, a reconstruction of the shattered credit system is still possible. But if the blows are repeated, total destruction results. It is not correct to look upon inflation and deflation exclusively from the point of view of their effects upon deferred payments. It has been shown that cash-induced changes in purchasing power do not affect the prices of the various commodities and services at the same time and to the same extent, and what role this unevenness plays in the market. 
But if one regards inflation and deflation as means of rearranging the relations between creditors and debtors, one cannot fail to realize that the ends sought by the government resorting to them are attained only in a very imperfect degree, and that, besides, consequences appear which, from the government's point of view, are highly unsatisfactory. As is the case with every other variety of government interference with the price structure, the results obtained not only are contrary to the intentions of the government, but produce a state of affairs which, in the opinion of the government, is more undesirable than conditions on the unhampered market. As far as a government resorts to inflation in order to favor the debtors at the expense of the creditors, it succeeds only with regard to those deferred payments which were stipulated before. Inflation does not make it cheaper to contract new loans. It makes it, on the contrary, more expensive by the appearance of a positive price premium. If inflation is pushed to its ultimate consequences, it makes any stipulation of deferred payments in terms of the inflated currency cease altogether. 3. The Evolution of Modern Methods of Currency Manipulation A metallic currency is not subject to government manipulation. Of course, the government has the power to enact legal tender laws, but then the operation of Gresham's law brings about results which may frustrate the aims sought by the government. Seen from this point of view, a metallic standard appears as an obstacle to all attempts to interfere with the market phenomena by monetary policies. In examining the evolution which gave governments the power to manipulate their national currency systems, we must begin by mentioning one of the most serious shortcomings of the classical economists. Both Adam Smith and David Ricardo looked upon the costs involved in the preservation of a metallic currency as a waste. As they saw it, the substitution of paper money for metallic money would make it possible to employ capital and labor required for the production of the quantity of gold and silver needed for monetary purposes, for the production of goods which could directly satisfy human wants. Starting from this assumption, Ricardo elaborated his famous Proposals for an Economical and Secure Currency, first published in 1816. Ricardo's plan fell into oblivion. It was not until many decades after his death that several countries adopted its basic principles under the label Gold Exchange Standard in order to reduce the alleged waste involved in the operation of the gold standard nowadays decried as classical or orthodox. Under the classical gold standard, a part of the cash holdings of individuals consists in gold coins. Under the gold exchange standard, the cash holdings of individuals consist entirely in money substitutes. These money substitutes are redeemable at the legal par in gold or foreign exchange of countries under the gold standard or the gold exchange standard. 
but the arrangement of monetary and banking institutions aims at preventing the public from withdrawing gold from the central bank for domestic cash holdings. The first objective of redemption is to secure the stability of foreign exchange rates. In dealing with the problems of the gold exchange standard, all economists, including the author of this book, failed to realize the fact that it places in the hands of governments the power to manipulate their nation's currency easily. Economists blithely assumed that no government of a civilized nation would use the gold exchange standard intentionally as an instrument of inflationary policy. Of course, one must not exaggerate the role that the gold exchange standard played in the inflationary ventures of the last decades. The main factor was the pro-inflationary ideology. The gold exchange standard was merely a convenient vehicle for the realization of the inflationary plans. Its absence did not hinder the adoption of inflationary measures. The United States was, in 1933, by and large, still under the classical gold standard. This fact did not stop the New Deal's inflationism. The United States, at one stroke, by confiscating its citizens' gold holdings, abolished the classical gold standard and devalued the dollar against gold. The new variety of the gold exchange standard as it developed in the years between the First and Second World Wars may be called the flexible gold exchange standard, or, for the sake of simplicity, the flexible standard. Under this system, the central bank or the foreign exchange equalization account, or whatever the name of the equivalent governmental institution may be, freely exchanges the money substitutes which are the country's national legal tender, either against gold or against foreign exchange, and vice versa. The ratio at which these exchange deals are transacted is not invariably fixed, but subject to changes. The parity is flexible, as people say. This flexibility, however, is practically always a downward flexibility. The authorities used their power to lower the equivalence of the national currency in terms of gold and of those foreign currencies whose equivalence against gold did not drop. They never ventured to raise it. If the parity against another nation's currency was raised, the change was only the consummation of a drop that had occurred in that other currency's equivalence in terms of gold or of other nation's currencies which had remained unchanged. Its aim was to bring the appraisal of this definite foreign currency into agreement with the appraisal of gold and the currencies of other foreign nations. If the downward jump of the parity is very conspicuous, it is called a devaluation. If the alteration of the parity is not so great, editors of financial reports describe it as a weakening in the international appraisal of the currency concerned. In both cases, it is usual to refer to the event by declaring that the country concerned has raised the price of gold. The characterization of the flexible standard from the catalactic point of view must not be confused with its description from the legal point of view. 
The catalactic aspects of the issue are not affected by the constitutional problems involved. It is immaterial whether the power to alter the parity is vested in the legislative or in the administrative branch of the government. It is immaterial whether the authorization given to the administration is unlimited, or, as was the case in the United States under New Deal legislation, limited by a terminal point beyond which the officers are not free to devalue further. What counts alone for the economic treatment of the matter is that the principle of flexible parities has been substituted for the principle of the rigid parity. Whatever the constitutional state of affairs may be, no government could embark upon raising the price of gold if public opinion were opposed to such a manipulation. If, on the other hand, public opinion favors such a step, no legal technicalities could check it altogether or even delay it for a short time. What happened in Great Britain in 1931, in the United States in 1933, and in France and Switzerland in 1936, clearly shows that the apparatus of representative government is able to work with the utmost speed if public opinion endorses the so-called expert's opinion concerning the expediency and necessity of a currency's devaluation. One of the main objectives of currency devaluation, whether large-scale or small-scale, is, as will be shown in the next section, to rearrange foreign trade conditions. These effects upon foreign trade make it impossible for a small nation to take its own course in currency manipulation, irrespective of what those countries are doing with whom its trade relations are closest. Such nations are forced to follow in the wake of a foreign country's monetary policies. As far as monetary policy is concerned, they voluntarily become satellites of a foreign power. By keeping their own country's currency rigidly at par against the currency of a monetary suzerain country, they follow all the alterations which the suzerain brings about in its own currency's parity against gold and the other nation's currencies. They join a monetary block and integrate their country into a monetary area. The most talked-about block or area is the sterling block or area. The flexible standard must not be confused with conditions in those countries in which the government has merely proclaimed an official parity of its domestic currency against gold and foreign exchange without making this parity effective. The characteristic feature of the flexible standard is that any amount of domestic money substitutes can, in fact, be freely exchanged at the parity chosen against gold or foreign exchange, and vice versa. At this parity, the central bank, or whatever the name of the government agency entrusted with the task may be, freely buys and sells any amount of domestic currency and of foreign currency of at least one of those countries which themselves are either under the gold standard or under the flexible standard. The domestic banknotes are really redeemable. In the absence of this essential feature of the flexible standard, decrees proclaiming a definite parity have a quite different meaning 
and bring about quite different effects. 4. The Objectives of Currency Devaluation The flexible standard is an instrument for the engineering of inflation. The only reason for its acceptance was to make reiterated inflationary moves technically as simple as possible for the authorities. In the boom period that ended in 1929, labor unions had succeeded in almost all countries in enforcing wage rates higher than those which the market, if manipulated only by migration barriers, would have determined. These wage rates already produced in many countries institutional unemployment of a considerable amount, while credit expansion was still going on at an accelerated pace. When, finally, the inescapable depression came and commodity prices began to drop, the labor unions, firmly supported by the governments, even by those disparaged as anti-labor, clung stubbornly to their high-wages policy. They either flatly denied permission for any cut in nominal wage rates or conceded only insufficient cuts. The result was a tremendous increase in institutional unemployment. On the other hand, those workers who retained their jobs improved their standard of living as their hourly real wages went up. The burden of unemployment doles became unbearable. The millions of unemployed were a serious menace to domestic peace. The industrial countries were haunted by the specter of revolution, but union leaders were intractable, and no statesman had the courage to challenge them openly. In this plight, the frightened rulers bethought themselves of a makeshift long since recommended by inflationist doctrinaires. As unions objected to an adjustment of wages to the state of the money relation and commodity prices, they chose to adjust the money relation and commodity prices to the height of wage rates. As they saw it, it was not wage rates that were too high. Their own nation's monetary unit was overvalued in terms of gold and foreign exchange and had to be readjusted. Devaluation was the panacea. The objectives of devaluation were, 1. To preserve the height of nominal wage rates, or even to create the conditions required for their further increase, while real wage rates should rather sink. 2. To make commodity prices, especially the prices of farm products, rise in terms of domestic money, or at least to check their further drop. 3. To favor the debtors at the expense of the creditors. 4. To encourage exports and to reduce imports. 5. To attract more foreign tourists and to make it more expensive in terms of domestic money for the country's own citizens to visit foreign countries. However, neither the governments nor the literary champions of their policy were frank enough to admit openly that one of the main purposes of devaluation was a reduction in the height of real wage rates. They preferred, for the most part, to describe the objective of devaluation as the removal of an alleged fundamental disequilibrium between the domestic and the international level of prices. 
They spoke of the necessity of lowering domestic costs of production, but they were anxious not to mention that one of the two cost items they expected to lower by devaluation was real wage rates, the other being interest stipulated on long-term business debts and the principle of such debts. It is impossible to take seriously the arguments advanced in favor of devaluation. They were utterly confused and contradictory. For devaluation was not a policy that originated from a cool weighing of the pros and cons. It was a capitulation of governments to union leaders, who did not want to lose face by admitting that their wage policy had failed and had produced institutional unemployment on an unprecedented scale. It was a desperate makeshift of weak and inept statesmen who were motivated by their wish to prolong their tenure of office. In justifying their policy, these demagogues did not bother about contradictions. They promised the processing industries and the farmers that devaluation would make prices rise. But at the same time, they promised the consumers that rigid price control would prevent any increase in the cost of living. After all, the governments could still excuse their conduct by referring to the fact that under the given state of public opinion, entirely under the sway of the doctrinal fallacies of labor unionism, no other policy could be resorted to. No such excuse can be advanced for those authors who hailed the flexibility of foreign exchange rates as the perfect and most desirable monetary system. While governments were still anxious to emphasize that devaluation was an emergency measure not to be repeated again, these authors proclaimed the flexible standard as the most appropriate monetary system, and were eager to demonstrate the alleged evils inherent in stability of foreign exchange rates. In their blind zeal to please the governments and the powerful pressure groups of unionized labor and farming, they overstated tremendously the case of flexible parities. But the drawbacks of standard flexibility became manifest very soon. The enthusiasm for devaluation vanished quickly. In the years of the Second World War, hardly more than a decade after the day when Great Britain had set the pattern for the flexible standard, even Lord Keynes and his adepts discovered that stability of foreign exchange rates has its merits. One of the avowed objectives of the International Monetary Fund is to stabilize foreign exchange rates. If one looks at devaluation not with the eyes of an apologist of government and union policies, but with the eyes of an economist, one must first of all stress the point that all its alleged blessings are temporary only. Moreover, they depend on the condition that only one country devalues, while the other countries abstain from devaluing their own currencies. If the other countries devalue in the same proportion, no changes in foreign trade appear. If they devalue to a greater extent, all these transitory blessings, whatever they may be, favor them exclusively. A general acceptance of the principles of the flexible standard must therefore result in a mutual overbidding between the nations. 
At the end of this race is the complete destruction of all nations' monetary systems. The much-talked-about advantages which devaluation secures in foreign trade and tourism are entirely due to the fact that the adjustment of domestic prices and wage rates to the state of affairs created by devaluation requires some time. As long as this adjustment process is not yet completed, exporting is encouraged and importing is discouraged. However, this merely means that in this interval the citizens of the devaluing country are getting less for what they are selling abroad and paying more for what they are buying abroad. Concomitantly, they must restrict their consumption. This effect may appear as a boon in the opinion of those for whom the balance of trade is the yardstick of a nation's welfare, In plain language, it is to be described in this way. The British citizen must export more British goods in order to buy that quantity of tea which he received before the devaluation for a smaller quantity of exported British goods. The devaluation, say its champions, reduces the burden of debts. This is certainly true. It favors debtors at the expense of creditors. In the eyes of those who still have not learned that under modern conditions the creditors must not be identified with the rich, nor the debtors with the poor, this is beneficial. The actual effect is that the indebted owners of real estate and farmland and the shareholders of indebted corporations are helped to the disadvantage of the enormous majority whose savings are invested in bonds, debentures, saving bank deposits, and insurance policies. There are also foreign loans to be considered. When Great Britain, the United States, France, Switzerland, and some other European creditor countries devalued their currencies, they made a gift to their foreign debtors. One of the main arguments advanced in favor of the flexible standard is that it lowers the rate of interest on the domestic money market. Under the classical gold standard and the rigid gold exchange standard, it is said, a country must adjust the domestic rate of interest to conditions on the international money market. Under the flexible standard, it is free to follow in the determination of interest rates a policy exclusively guided by considerations of its own domestic welfare. The argument is obviously untenable with regard to those countries in which the total amount of debts to foreign countries exceeds the total amount of loans granted to foreign countries. When, in the course of the 19th century, some of these debtor nations adopted a sound money policy, their firms and citizens could contract foreign debts in terms of their national currency. This opportunity disappeared altogether with the change in these countries' monetary policies. No American banker would contract a loan in Italian lira or try to float an issue of lira bonds. As far as foreign credits are concerned, no change in a debtor country's domestic currency conditions can be of any avail. As far as domestic credits are concerned, devaluation abates only the already previously contracted debts, 
It enhances the gross market rate of interest of new debts as it makes a positive price premium appear. This is valid also with regard to interest rate conditions in the creditor nations. There is no need to add anything to the demonstration that interest is not a monetary phenomenon and cannot in the long run be affected by monetary measures. It is true that the devaluations which were resorted to by various governments between 1931 and 1938 made real wage rates drop in some countries, and thus reduced the amount of institutional unemployment. The historian in dealing with these devaluations may therefore say that they were a success as they prevented a revolutionary upheaval of the daily increasing masses of unemployed, and as, under the prevailing ideological conditions, no other means could be resorted to in this critical situation. But the historian will no less have to add that the remedy did not affect the root causes of institutional unemployment, the faulty tenets of labor unionism. Devaluation was a cunning device to elude the sway of the union doctrine. It worked because it did not impair the prestige of unionism. But precisely because it left the popularity of unionism untouched, it could work only for a short time. Union leaders learned to distinguish between nominal wage rates and real wage rates. Today their policy aims at raising real wage rates. They can no longer be cheated by a drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power. Devaluation has worn out its usefulness as a device for reducing institutional unemployment. Cognizance of these facts provides a key for a correct appraisal of the role which Lord Kane's doctrines played in the years between the First and Second World Wars. Keynes did not add any new idea to the body of inflationist fallacies, a thousand times refuted by economists. His teachings were even more contradictory and inconsistent than those of his predecessors, who, like Silvio Gassel, were dismissed as monetary cranks. He merely knew how to cloak the plea for inflation and credit expansion in the sophisticated terminology of mathematical economics. The interventionist writers were at a loss to advance plausible arguments in favor of the policy of reckless spending. They simply could not find a case against the economic theorem concerning institutional unemployment. In this juncture, they greeted the Keynesian revolution with the verses of Wordsworth. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. It was, however, a short-run heaven only, We may admit that for the British and American governments in the thirties, no way was left other than that of currency devaluation, inflation and credit expansion, unbalanced budgets and deficit spending. Governments cannot free themselves from the pressure of public opinion. They cannot rebel against the preponderance of generally accepted ideologies, however fallacious. But this does not excuse the officeholders who could resign rather than carry out policies disastrous for the country. 
Still less does it excuse authors who tried to provide a would-be scientific justification for the crudest of all popular fallacies, namely inflationism. 5. Credit Expansion It has been pointed out that it would be an error to look upon credit expansion exclusively as a mode of government interference with the market. The fiduciary media did not come into existence as instruments of government policies, deliberately aiming at high prices and high nominal wage rates, at lowering the market rate of interest, and at debt abatement. They evolved out of the regular business of banking, When the bankers, whose receipts for call money deposited were dealt with by the public as money substitutes, began to lend a part of the funds deposited with them, they had nothing else in view than their own business. They considered it harmless not to keep the whole equivalent of the receipts issued as a cash reserve in their vaults. They were confident that they would always be in a position to comply with their obligations and, without delay, redeem the notes issued, even if they were to lend a part of the deposits. Banknotes became fiduciary media within the operation of the unhampered market economy. The begetter of credit expansion was the banker, not the authority. But today, credit expansion is an exclusive prerogative of government. As far as private banks and bankers are instrumental in issuing fiduciary media, their role is merely ancillary and concerns only technicalities. The governments alone direct the course of affairs. They have attained full supremacy in all matters concerning the size of circulation credit. While the size of the credit expansion that private banks and bankers are able to engineer on an unhampered market is strictly limited, the governments aim at the greatest possible amount of credit expansion. Credit expansion is the government's foremost tool in their struggle against the market economy. In their hands, it is the magic wand designed to conjure away the scarcity of capital goods, to lower the rate of interest or to abolish it altogether, to finance lavish government spending, to expropriate the capitalists, to contrive everlasting booms, and to make everybody prosperous. The inescapable consequences of credit expansion are shown by the theory of the trade cycle, Even those economists who still refuse to acknowledge the correctness of the monetary or circulation credit theory of the cyclical fluctuations of business have never dared to question the conclusiveness and irrefutability of what this theory asserts with regard to the necessary effects of credit expansion. These economists, too, must admit and do admit that the upswing is invariably conditioned by credit expansion, that it could not come into being and continue without credit expansion, and that it turns into depression when the further progress of credit expansion stops. Their explanation of the trade cycle, in fact, boils down to the assertion that what first generates the upswing is not credit expansion, but other factors. 
The credit expansion, which, even in their opinion, is an indispensable requisite of the general boom, is, they say, not the outcome of a policy deliberately aiming at low interest rates and at encouraging additional investment for which the capital goods needed are lacking. It is something which, without active interference on the part of the authorities, in a miraculous way always appears whenever these other factors begin their operation. It is obvious that these economists contradict themselves in opposing plans to eliminate the fluctuations of business by abstention from credit expansion. The naive supporters of the inflationist view of history are consistent when they infer from their, of course, utterly fallacious and contradictory tenets that credit expansion is the economic panacea. But those who do not deny that credit expansion is an indispensable condition of the boom disagree with their own doctrine in fighting the proposals to curb credit expansion. Both the spokesmen of the governments and the powerful pressure groups and the champions of the dogmatic unorthodoxy that dominates the university departments of economics agree that one should try to avert the recurrence of depressions, and that the realization of this end requires the prevention of booms. They cannot advance tenable arguments against the proposals to abstain from policies encouraging credit expansion but they stubbornly refuse to listen to any such idea. They passionately disparage the plans to prevent credit expansion as devices which would perpetuate depressions. This attitude clearly demonstrates the correctness of the statement that the trade cycle is the product of policies intentionally aimed at lowering the rate of interest and engendering artificial booms. It is a fact that today measures aimed at lowering the rate of interest are generally considered highly desirable, and that credit expansion is viewed as the efficacious means for the attainment of this end. It is this prepossession that impels all governments to fight the gold standard. Expansionism is the great slogan of our day. All political parties and all pressure groups are firmly committed to an easy-money policy. If a bank does not expand circulation credit by issuing additional fiduciary media, either in the form of banknotes or in the form of deposit currency, it cannot generate a boom even if it lowers the amount of interest charged below the rate of the unhampered market. It merely makes a gift to the debtors. The inference to be drawn from the monetary cycle theory by those who want to prevent the recurrence of booms and of the subsequent depressions is not that the banks should not lower the rate of interest, but that they should abstain from credit expansion. The objective of credit expansion is to favor the interests of some groups of the population at the expense of others. This is, of course, the best that interventionism can attain when it does not hurt the interests of all groups. But, while making the whole community poorer, it may still enrich some strata. Which groups belong to the latter class depends on the special data of each case.
The idea which generated what is called qualitative credit control is to channel the additional credit in such a way as to concentrate the alleged blessings of credit expansion upon certain groups and to withhold them from other groups. The credits should not go to the stock exchange, it is argued, and should not make stock prices soar. They should rather benefit the legitimate productive activity of the processing industries, of mining, of legitimate commerce, and, first of all, of farming. Other advocates of qualitative credit control want to prevent the additional credits from being used for investment in fixed capital and thus immobilized. They are to be used instead for the production of liquid goods. According to these plans, the authorities give the banks concrete directions concerning the types of loans they should grant or are forbidden to grant. However, all such schemes are vain. Discrimination in lending is no substitute for checks placed on credit expansion, the only means that could really prevent a rise in stock exchange quotations and an expansion of investment in fixed capital. The mode in which the additional amount of credit finds its way into the loan market is only of secondary importance. What matters is that there is an inflow of newly created credit. If the banks grant more credits to the farmers, the farmers are in a position to repay loans received from other sources and to pay cash for their purchases. If they grant more credits to business as circulating capital, they free funds which were previously tied up for this use. In any case, they create an abundance of disposable money for which its owners try to find the most profitable investment. Very promptly, these funds find outlets in the stock exchange or in fixed investment. The notion that it is possible to pursue a credit expansion without making stock prices rise and fixed investment expand is absurd. The typical course of events under credit expansion was, until a few years ago, determined by two facts, that it was credit expansion under the gold standard and that it was not the outcome of concerted action on the part of the various national governments and the central banks whose conduct these governments directed. The first of these facts meant that governments were not prepared to abandon the convertibility of their country's banknotes according to the rigidly fixed parity. The second fact resulted in a lack of quantitative uniformity in the size of credit expansion. Some countries got ahead of other countries, and their banks were faced with the danger of a serious external drain upon their reserves in gold and foreign exchange. In order to preserve their own solvency, these banks were forced to take recourse to drastic credit restriction. Thus they created the panic and inaugurated the depression on the domestic market. The panic very soon spread to other countries. Businessmen in these other countries became frightened and increased their borrowing in order to strengthen their liquid funds for all possible events. It was precisely this increased demand for new credits which impelled the monetary authorities of their own countries, already alarmed by the crisis in the first country, also to resort to contraction.
Thus, within a few days or weeks, the depression became an international phenomenon. The policy of devaluation has to some extent altered this typical sequence of events. Menaced by an external drain, the monetary authorities do not resort to credit restriction and to raising the rate of interest charged by the central banking system. They devalue. Yet devaluation does not solve the problem. If the government does not care how far foreign exchange rates may rise, it can for some time continue to cling to credit expansion. But one day the crack-up boom will annihilate its monetary system. On the other hand, if the authority wants to avoid the necessity of devaluing again and again at an accelerated pace, it must arrange its domestic credit policy in such a way as not to outrun in credit expansion the other countries against which it wants to keep its domestic currency at par. Many economists take it for granted that the attempts of the authorities to expand credit will always bring about the same almost regular alternation between periods of booming trade and of subsequent depression. They assume that the effects of credit expansion will in the future not differ from those that have been observed since the end of the 18th century in Great Britain and since the middle of the 19th century in Western and Central Europe and in North America. But we may wonder whether conditions have not changed. The teachings of the monetary theory of the trade cycle are today so well known, even outside of the circle of economists, that the naive optimism which inspired the entrepreneurs in the boom periods of the past has given way to a certain skepticism. It may be that businessmen will in the future react to credit expansion in a manner other than they have in the past. It may be that they will avoid using for an expansion of their operations the easy money available because they will keep in mind the inevitable end of the boom. Some signs forebode such a change, but it is too early to make a positive statement. The Chimera of Contracyclical Policies An essential element of the unorthodox doctrines advanced both by all socialists and by all interventionists is that the recurrence of depressions is a phenomenon inherent in the very operation of the market economy. But while the socialists contend that only the substitution of socialism for capitalism can eradicate the evil, the interventionists ascribe to the government the power to correct the operation of the market economy in such a way as to bring about what they call economic stability. These interventionists would be right if their anti-depression plans were to aim at a radical abandonment of credit expansion policies. However, they reject this idea in advance. What they want is to expand credit more and more, and to prevent depressions by the adoption of special contracyclical measures. In the context of these plans, the government appears as a deity that stands and works outside the orbit of human affairs, that is independent of the actions of its subjects, and has the power to interfere with these actions from without. 
It has at its disposal means and funds that are not provided by the people, and can be freely used for whatever purposes the rulers are prepared to employ them for. What is needed to make the most beneficent use of this power is merely to follow the advice given by the experts. The most advertised among these suggested remedies is contracyclical timing of public works and expenditure on public enterprises. The idea is not so new as its champions would have us believe. When depression came in the past, public opinion always asked the government to embark upon public works in order to create jobs and to stop the drop in prices. But the problem is how to finance these public works. If the government taxes the citizens or borrows from them, it does not add anything to what the Keynesians call the aggregate amount of spending. It restricts the private citizen's power to consume or to invest to the same extent that it increases its own. If, however, the government resorts to the cherished inflationary methods of financing, it makes things worse, not better. It may thus delay for a short time the outbreak of the slump, but when the unavoidable payoff does come, the crisis is the heavier the longer the government has postponed it. The interventionist experts are at a loss to grasp the real problems involved. As they see it, the main thing is to plan public capital expenditure well in advance and to accumulate a shelf of fully worked out capital projects which can be put into operation at short notice. This, they say, is the right policy, and one which we recommend all countries should adopt. However, the problem is not to elaborate projects, but to provide the material means for their execution. The interventionists believe that this could be easily achieved by holding back government expenditure in the boom and increasing it when the Depression comes. Now, restriction of government expenditure may certainly be a good thing but it does not provide the funds a government needs for a later expansion of its expenditure. An individual may conduct his affairs in this way. He may accumulate savings when his income is high and spend them later when his income drops. But it is different with a nation or all nations together. The treasury may hoard a considerable part of the lavish revenue from taxes which flows into the public exchequer as a result of the boom. As far and as long as it withholds these funds from circulation, its policy is really deflationary and contracyclical, and may, to this extent, weaken the boom created by credit expansion. But when these funds are spent again, they alter the money relation and create a cash-induced tendency toward a drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power. By no means can these funds provide the capital goods required for the execution of the shelved public works. The fundamental error of the interventionists consists in the fact that they ignore the shortage of capital goods. In their eyes, the depression is merely caused by a mysterious lack of the people's propensity both to consume and to invest. 
while the only real problem is to produce more and to consume less in order to increase the stock of capital goods available, the interventionists want to increase both consumption and investment. They want the government to embark upon projects which are unprofitable precisely because the factors of production needed for their execution must be withdrawn from other lines of employment in which they would fulfill once the satisfaction of which the consumers consider more urgent. They do not realize that such public works must considerably intensify the real evil, the shortage of capital goods. One could, of course, think of another mode for the employment of the savings the government makes in the boom period. The Treasury could invest its surplus in buying large stocks of all those materials which it will later, when the Depression comes, need for the execution of the public works planned, and of the consumer's goods which those occupied in these public works will ask for. But... If the authorities were to act in this way, they would considerably intensify the boom, accelerate the outbreak of the crisis, and make its consequences more serious. In dealing with the contracyclical policies, the interventionists always refer to the alleged success of these policies in Sweden. It is true that public capital expenditure in Sweden was actually doubled between 1932 and 1939, but this was not the cause but an effect of Sweden's prosperity in the 30s. This prosperity was entirely due to the rearmament of Germany. The Nazi policy increased the German demand for Swedish products on the one hand, and restricted, on the other hand, German competition on the world market for those products which Sweden could supply. Thus, Swedish exports increased from 1932 to 1938 in thousands of tons, iron ore from 2219 to 12,485, pig iron from 31,047 to 92,980, ferro-alloys from 15,453 to 28,605, other kinds of iron and steel from 134,237 to 256,146, machinery from 46,230 to 70,605, The number of unemployed applying for relief was 114,000 in 1932 and 165,000 in 1933. It dropped, as soon as German rearmament came into full swing, to 115,000 in 1934, to 62,000 in 1935, and was 16,000 in 1938. The author of this miracle was not Keynes, but Hitler. All this talk about contracyclical government activities aims at one goal only, namely to divert the public's attention from cognizance of the real cause of the cyclical fluctuations of business. All governments are firmly committed to the policy of low interest rates, credit expansion, and inflation. When the unavoidable aftermath of these short-term policies appears, they know only of one remedy, 
to go on in inflationary ventures. 6. Foreign Exchange Control and Bilateral Exchange Agreements If a government fixes the parity of its domestic credit or fiat money against gold or foreign exchange at a higher point than the market, that is, if it fixes maximum prices for gold and foreign exchange below the potential market price, the effects appear which Gresham's Law describes. A state of affairs results which, very inadequately, is called a scarcity of foreign exchange. It is the characteristic mark of an economic good that the supply available is not so plentiful as to make any intended utilization of it possible. An object that is not in short supply is not an economic good. No prices are asked for it or paid for it. As money must necessarily be an economic good, the notion of a money that would not be scarce is absurd. What those governments who complain about a scarcity of foreign exchange have in mind is, however, something different. It is the unavoidable outcome of their policy of price-fixing. It means that at the price arbitrarily fixed by the government, demand exceeds supply. If the government, having by means of inflation reduced the purchasing power of the domestic monetary unit against gold, foreign exchange, and commodities and services, abstains from any attempt at controlling foreign exchange rates, there cannot be any question of a scarcity in the sense in which the government uses this term. He who is ready to pay the market price would be in a position to buy as much foreign exchange as he wants. But the government is resolved not to tolerate any rise in foreign exchange rates in terms of the inflated domestic currency. Relying upon its magistrates and constables, it prohibits any dealings in foreign exchange on terms different from the ordained maximum price. As the government and its satellites see it, the rise in foreign exchange rates was caused by an unfavorable balance of payments and by the purchases of speculators. In order to remove the evil, the government resorts to measures restricting the demand for foreign exchange. Only those people should henceforth have the right to buy foreign exchange who need it for transactions of which the government approves. Commodities, the importation of which is superfluous in the opinion of the government, should no longer be imported. Payment of interest and principal on debts due to foreigners is prohibited. Citizens must no longer travel abroad. The government does not realize that such measures can never improve the balance of payments. If imports drop, exports drop concomitantly. The citizens who are prevented from buying foreign goods, from paying back foreign debts, and from traveling abroad, will not keep the amount of domestic money thus left to them in their cash holdings. They will increase their buying, either of consumers' or of producers' goods, and thus bring about a further tendency for domestic prices to rise. But the more prices rise, the more will exports be checked. Now the government goes a step further. It nationalizes foreign exchange transactions. 
Every citizen who acquires, through exporting, for example, an amount of foreign exchange, is bound to sell it at the official rate to the Office of Foreign Exchange Control. If this provision, which is tantamount to an export duty, were to be effectively enforced, export trade would shrink greatly or cease altogether. The government certainly does not like this result, but neither does it want to admit that its interference has utterly failed to achieve the end sought, and has produced a state of affairs which is, from the government's own point of view, much worse even than the previous state of affairs. So the government resorts to a makeshift. It subsidizes the export trade to such an extent that the losses which its policy inflicts upon the exporters are compensated. On the other hand, the Government Bureau of Foreign Exchange Control, stubbornly clinging to the fiction that foreign exchange rates have not really risen and that the official rate is an effective rate, sells foreign exchange to importers at this official rate. If this policy were to be really followed, it would be equivalent to paying bonuses to the merchants concerned. They would reap windfall profits in selling the imported commodity on the domestic market. Thus the authority resorts to further makeshifts. It either raises import duties or levies special taxes on the importers or burdens their purchases of foreign exchange in some other way. Then, of course, foreign exchange control works. But it works only because it virtually acknowledges the market rate of foreign exchange. The exporter gets for his proceeds in foreign exchange the official rate plus the subsidy, which together equal the market rate. The importer pays for foreign exchange the official rate plus a special premium, tax, or duty, which together equal the market rate. The only people who are too dull to grasp what is really going on and let themselves be fooled by the bureaucratic terminology are the authors of books and articles on new methods of monetary management and on new monetary experience. The monopolization of buying and selling of foreign exchange by the government vests the control of foreign trade in the authorities. It does not affect the determination of foreign exchange rates. It does not matter whether or not the government makes it illegal for the press to publish the real and effective rates of foreign exchange. As far as foreign trade is still carried on, only these real and effective rates are in force. In order to conceal better the true state of affairs, governments are intent upon eliminating all reference to the real foreign exchange rate. Foreign trade, they think, should no longer be transacted by the intermediary of money. It should be barter. They enter into barter and clearing agreements with foreign governments. Each of the two contracting countries should sell to the other country a quantity of goods and services and receive in exchange a quantity of other goods and services. In the text of these treaties, any reference to the real market rates of foreign exchange is carefully avoided. 
However, both parties calculate their sales and their purchases in terms of the world market prices expressed in gold. These clearing and barter agreements substitute bilateral trade between two countries for the triangular or multilateral trade of the liberal age. But they in no way affect the fact that a country's national currency has lost a part of its purchasing power against gold, foreign exchange, and commodities. As a policy of foreign trade nationalization, foreign exchange control is a step on the way toward a substitution of socialism for the market economy. From any other point of view, it is abortive. It can certainly neither in the short run nor in the long run affect the determination of the rate of foreign exchange. Remarks about the Nazi barter agreements The barter and clearing agreements which the Nazi government of the Reich concluded with various foreign countries have been misinterpreted by the vast literature on the subject. As these misinterpretations are the basis of many current errors concerning monetary problems, it seems expedient to devote a few remarks to them. The considerations which motivated foreign governments to enter into such agreements with the Reich were not uniform. Neither were the political and economic consequences of these agreements homogeneous. We may deal with the problems involved by discussing, first, the case of the agreement with Switzerland, and then those with the countries of the European Southeast. The Swiss banks had, before Hitler seized power, lent comparatively enormous sums to German business. Moreover, one of Switzerland's main industries, tourism, depended to a great extent on German patrons. The German foreign exchange control laws gave the German authorities the power to prohibit all payments to Swiss banks and to prevent Germans from visiting the country. The clearing agreement was the only means for the Swiss to salvage at least a part of their German assets and to induce the Reich to permit a limited number of Germans to spend a holiday in the Swiss hotels. The case of the Balkan agreements is even more interesting, as their meaning was still more distorted by misinterpretation. Let us look at an example. The Reich and one of the southeastern countries of Europe, we may call it Balkania, concluded an agreement concerning the mutual exchange of commodities, which could be bought or sold on the world market for $20 million. Balkania had to give a world market value of $10 million in food and raw materials. Germany had to give a world market value of $10 million in manufactured goods. The peculiar feature of the bargain was that these commodities bought and sold were, in the terms of the contract, not valued according to their world market price, but at a higher rate let us say, 10% above the prices of the world market. For the goods Germany had to buy, Balkania was charged 11 million instead of 10. But, on the other hand, Balkania was credited for the goods it sold with 11 million instead of 10. This overvaluation was totally, or at least to a great extent, concealed in the rate of exchange between the Reichsmark and the Balkan 
the monetary unit of Balkania's currency system, which the barter agreement fixed at a level different from the actual rate of exchange. Let us assume that the dollar was actually worth ten Balkans on the world market. By virtue of the barter agreement, Balkania sold to Germany food and raw materials for which English businessmen offered 100 million Balkans for 110 million, and bought manufactured goods which she could buy from English or American exporters for 100 million Balkans for 110 million. In order to understand the meaning of this strange procedure, we have to realize that the loss and the gain from these overvaluations compensated each other only for the whole nations, but not for the individual citizens. For socialist Germany, where under Hitler all business was nationalized, this made no difference at all. But in Balkania, domestic production and domestic trade were still based on private ownership. Only the foreign trade of Balkania was controlled by the government. There, it was of great consequence that those burdened by the overvaluation of the imported goods and those favored by the overvaluation of the exported goods were not the same people. The terms of the barter agreement resulted, therefore, in a shift of income from some groups of citizens, of course, the black sheep of the government, to other groups of citizens, of course, the government's pet children. The government of Balkania distributed the boon of the transaction in this way. 1. Higher prices paid to the producers of the exported food and raw materials, 5 million. 2. Gains, legal and illegal, of the government agency entrusted with the execution of the barter agreement and of the friends of the government managing it. 1 million. 3. Gains retained by the treasury. 4 million. The losses of the transaction, on the other hand, were distributed in this way. 1. Higher prices of imported commodities paid by those who were favored by the higher prices of the exported goods, 1 million. 2. Higher prices of imported goods paid by other citizens, 5 million. 3. Higher prices of imported goods paid by the government, for example, for arms, railroad equipment, etc., 4 million. It is obvious that the friends of the government and the peasants producing food and raw materials realized gains of five million, whereas the non-agricultural sections of the population were burdened with five million additional expenditure. Such an effect was in line with Balkania's whole economic policy. Like many other contemporary governments, the rulers of Balkania made every effort to favor the agricultural section of the population at the expense of the non-agricultural section. The political consequences of these agreements were twofold. Balkania's government became dependent on the Reich, but its power at home increased. The government now disposed of a fund which could be used for the benefit of its friends, who were on the payroll of the company or government agency entrusted with the execution of the barter agreement. 
Moreover, the government had the power to discriminate against those groups of the peasantry who did not support the government, or who were members of a linguistic or religious minority. The products which had to be exported to Germany were purchased only from the sympathetic producers. The non-sympathizers were barred from the enjoyment of the benefits of the treaty. They had to sell their entire crop at the lower prices corresponding to the world market prices. In Yugoslavia, for instance, the Catholic Croat peasants complained that the government purchased only from Serbs. It is impossible to discover whether this complaint was really well-founded. In any case, the Croats did not blame the Nazis, they blamed the Yugoslavian government. The barter agreements gave Germany a kind of monopoly of the trade with the countries of southeastern Europe, which could not fail to link these countries politically with the Reich. From the Nazi point of view, this practice meant a skillful use of the domestic economic antagonisms within these countries for the achievement of their own political ends. To the governments of the Balkan states, these barter agreements offered an opportunity of initiating a policy favoring the farming class at the expense of the non-agricultural classes. What the industrial countries of Western and Central Europe achieved by tariffs and other measures discriminating against the products of foreign agriculture, and what the United States achieved by some of the agricultural measures of the New Deal, was in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia achieved by the barter treaties with Germany. Faced with the problem of this German economic offensive in the Balkans, Great Britain was helpless. It had to withdraw from markets where it could buy only at prices higher than those in other countries. Consequently, the governments of the Balkan countries concerned declared that there were no pounds available for the payment of imports from Great Britain, and refused to grant import licenses. Commerce between Great Britain and these countries was severely restricted. The same was no less true with regard to all other countries of Western Europe and of America. Such was the true nature of these much-talked-about clearing agreements, which were hailed by many authors as the dawn of a new age of monetary management. Chapter 32 Confiscation and Redistribution 1. The Philosophy of Confiscation Interventionism is guided by the idea that interfering with property rights does not affect the size of production. The most naive manifestation of this fallacy is presented by confiscatory interventionism. The yield of production activities is considered a given magnitude, independent of the merely accidental arrangements of society's social order. The task of the government is seen as the fair distribution of this national income among the various members of society. The interventionists and the socialists contend that all commodities are turned out by a social process of production. When this process comes to an end and its fruits ripen, a second social process, that of distribution of the yield, follows, and allots a share to each. The characteristic feature of the capitalist order is that the shares allotted are unequal, 
Some people, the entrepreneurs, the capitalists, and the landowners, appropriate to themselves more than they should. Accordingly, the portions of other people are curtailed. Government should, by rights, expropriate the surplus of the privileged, and distribute it among the underprivileged. Now, in the market economy, this alleged dualism of two independent processes, that of production and that of distribution, does not exist. There is only one process going on. Goods are not first produced and then distributed. There is no such thing as an appropriation of portions out of a stock of ownerless goods. The products come into existence as somebody's property. If one wants to distribute them, one must first confiscate them. It is certainly very easy for the governmental apparatus of compulsion and coercion to embark upon confiscation and expropriation, but this does not prove that a durable system of economic affairs can be built upon such confiscation and expropriation. When the Vikings turned their backs upon a community of autarkic peasants whom they had plundered, the surviving victims began to work, to till the soil, and to build again. When the pirates returned after some years, they again found things to seize. But capitalism cannot stand such reiterated predatory raids. Its capital accumulation and investments are founded upon the expectation that no such expropriation will occur. If this expectation is absent, people will prefer to consume their capital instead of safeguarding it for the expropriators. This is the inherent error of all plans that aim at combining private ownership and reiterated expropriation. 2. Land Reform The social reformers of older days aimed at the establishment of a community of autarkic farmers only. The shares of land allotted to each member were to be equal. In the imagination of these utopians there is no room for division of labor and specialization in processing trades. It is a serious mistake to call such a social order agrarian socialism, It is merely a juxtaposition of economically self-sufficient households. In the market economy, the soil is a means of production, like any other material factor of production. Plans aiming at a more or less equal distribution of the soil among the farming population are, under the conditions of the market economy, merely plans for granting privileges to a group of less efficient producers at the expense of the immense majority of consumers. The operation of the market tends to eliminate all those farmers whose cost of production is higher than the marginal costs needed for the production of that amount of farm products the consumers are ready to buy. It determines the size of the farms as well as the methods of production applied. If the government interferes in order to make a different arrangement of the conditions of farming prevail, it raises the average price of farm products. If, under competitive conditions, M farmers, each of them operating a 1,000-acre farm, produce all those farm products the consumers are ready to acquire, 
and the government interferes in order to substitute 5M farmers, each of them operating a 200-acre farm, for M, the previous number of farmers, the consumers foot the bill. It is vain to justify such land reforms by referring to natural law and other metaphysical ideas. The simple truth is that they enhance the price of agricultural products, and that they also impair non-agricultural production. As more manpower is needed to turn out a unit of farm produce, more people are employed in farming, and less are left for the processing industries. The total amount of commodities available for consumption drops, and a certain group of people is favored at the expense of the majority. 3. Confiscatory Taxation Today, the main instrument of confiscatory interventionism is taxation. It does not matter whether the objective of estate and income taxation is the allegedly social motive of equalizing wealth and income, or whether the primary motive is that of revenue. What alone counts is the resulting effect. The average man looks at the problems involved with unveiled envy. Why should anybody be richer than he himself is? The lofty moralist conceals his resentment in philosophical disquisitions. He argues that a man who owns ten millions cannot be made happier by an increment of ninety millions more. Inversely, a man who owns a hundred millions does not feel any impairment of happiness if his wealth is reduced to a bare ten millions only. The same reasoning holds good for excessive incomes. To judge in this way means to judge from an individualistic point of view. The yardstick applied is the supposed sentiments of individuals. Yet the problems involved are social problems. They must be appraised with regard to their social consequences. What matters is neither the happiness of any Croesus nor his personal merits or demerits. It is society and the productivity of human effort. A law that prohibits any individual from accumulating more than ten millions, or from making more than one million a year, restricts the activities of precisely those entrepreneurs who are most successful in filling the wants of consumers. If such a law had been enacted in the United States fifty years ago, many who are multimillionaires today would live in more modest circumstances. But all those new branches of industry which supply the masses with articles unheard of before would operate, if at all, on a much smaller scale, and their products would be beyond the reach of the common man. It is manifestly contrary to the interest of the consumers to prevent the most efficient entrepreneurs from expanding the sphere of their activities up to the limit to which the public approves of their conduct of business by buying their products. Here again, the issue is, who should be supreme, the consumers or the government? In the unhampered market, the behavior of consumers, their buying or abstention from buying, ultimately determines each individual's income and wealth. 
Should one vest in the government the power to overrule the consumer's choices? The incorrigible statolatrist objects. In his opinion, what motivates the activities of the great entrepreneur is not the lust for wealth, but the lust for power. Such a royal merchant would not restrict his activities if he had to deliver all the surplus earned to the tax collector. His lust for power cannot be weakened by any considerations of mere money-making. Let us, for the sake of argument, accept this psychology. But on what else is the power of a businessman founded than on his wealth? How would Rockefeller and Ford have been in a position to acquire power if they had been prevented from acquiring wealth? After all, those statolatrists are on comparatively better grounds who want to prohibit the accumulation of wealth precisely because it gives a man economic power. Taxes are necessary, but the system of discriminatory taxation universally accepted under the misleading name of progressive taxation of income and inheritance is not a mode of taxation. It is rather a mode of disguised expropriation of the successful capitalists and entrepreneurs. Whatever the government's satellites may advance in its favor, it is incompatible with the preservation of the market economy. It can, at best, be considered a means of bringing about socialism. Looking backward on the evolution of income tax rates from the beginning of the federal income tax in 1913 until the present day, one can hardly believe that the tax will not soon absorb 100% of all surplus above the customary level of a labor union leader's salary. Economics is not concerned with the spurious metaphysical doctrines advanced in favor of tax progression, but with its repercussions on the operation of the market economy. The interventionist authors and politicians look at the problems involved from the angle of their arbitrary notions of what is socially desirable. As they see it, the purpose of taxation is never to raise money, since the government can raise all the money it needs by printing it. The true purpose of taxation is to leave less in the hands of the taxpayer. Economists approach the issue from a different angle. They ask first, what are the effects of confiscatory taxation on capital accumulation? The greater part of that portion of the higher incomes which is taxed away would have been used for the accumulation of additional capital. If the Treasury employs the proceeds for current expenditure, the result is a drop in the amount of capital accumulation. The same is valid, even to a greater extent, for death taxes. They force the heirs to sell a considerable part of the testator's estate. This capital is, of course, not destroyed. It merely changes ownership. But the savings of the purchasers, which are spent for the acquisition of the capital sold by the heirs, would have constituted a net increment in capital available. Thus, the accumulation of new capital is slowed down. The realization of technological improvement is impaired. The quota of capital invested per worker employed is reduced. 
A check is placed upon the rise in the productivity of labor and upon the concomitant rise in real wage rates. It is obvious that the popular belief that this mode of confiscatory taxation harms only the immediate victims, the rich, is false. If capitalists are faced with the likelihood that the income tax or the estate tax will rise to 100%, they will prefer to consume their capital funds rather than to preserve them for the tax collector. Confiscatory taxation results in checking economic progress and improvement, not only by its effect upon capital accumulation, It brings about a general trend toward stagnation and the preservation of business practices which could not last under the competitive conditions of the unhampered market economy. It is an inherent feature of capitalism that it is no respecter of vested interests and forces every capitalist and entrepreneur to adjust his conduct of business anew each day to the changing structure of the market. Capitalists and entrepreneurs are never free to relax. As long as they remain in business, they are never granted the privilege of quietly enjoying the fruits of their ancestors and their own achievements, and of lapsing into a routine. If they forget that their task is to serve the consumers to the best of their abilities, they will very soon forfeit their eminent position, and will be thrown back into the ranks of the common man. Their leadership and their funds are continually challenged by newcomers. Every ingenious man is free to start new business projects. He may be poor, his funds may be modest, and most of them may be borrowed. But if he fills the wants of consumers in the best and cheapest way, he will succeed by means of excessive profits. He plows back the greater part of his profits into his business, thus making it grow rapidly. It is the activity of such enterprising parvenus that provides the market economy with its dynamism. These nouveaux riches are the harbingers of economic improvement. Their threatening competition forces the old firms and big corporations either to adjust their conduct to the best possible service of the public, or to go out of business. But today, taxes often absorb the greater part of the newcomer's excessive profits. He cannot accumulate capital. He cannot expand his own business. He will never become big business and a match for the vested interests. The old firms do not need to fear his competition. They are sheltered by the tax collector. They may with impunity indulge in routine. They may defy the wishes of the public and become conservative. It is true, the income tax prevents them, too, from accumulating new capital, But what is more important for them is that it prevents the dangerous newcomer from accumulating any capital. They are virtually privileged by the tax system. In this sense, progressive taxation checks economic progress and makes for rigidity. While under unhampered capitalism the ownership of capital is a liability, forcing the owner to serve the consumers— Modern methods of taxation transform it into a privilege. 
The interventionists complain that big business is getting rigid and bureaucratic, and that it is no longer possible for competent newcomers to challenge the vested interests of the old rich families. However, as far as their complaints are justified, they complain about things which are merely the result of their own policies. Profits are the driving force of the market economy. The greater the profits, the better the needs of the consumers are supplied. For profits can only be reaped by removing discrepancies between the demands of the consumers and the previous state of production activities. He who serves the public best makes the highest profits. In fighting profits, governments deliberately sabotage the operation of the market economy. Confiscatory Taxation and Risk-Taking A popular fallacy considers entrepreneurial profit a reward for risk-taking. It looks upon the entrepreneur as a gambler who invests in a lottery after having weighed the favorable chances of winning a prize against the unfavorable chances of losing his stake. This opinion manifests itself most clearly in the description of stock exchange transactions as a sort of gambling. From the point of view of this widespread fable, the evil caused by confiscatory taxation is that it disarranges the ratio between the favorable and the unfavorable chances in the lottery. The prizes are cut down, while the unfavorable hazards remain unchanged. Thus, capitalists and entrepreneurs are discouraged from embarking upon risky ventures. Every word in this reasoning is false. The owner of capital does not choose between more risky, less risky, and safe investments. He is forced, by the very operation of the market economy, to invest his funds in such a way as to supply the most urgent needs of the consumers to the best possible extent. If the methods of taxation resorted to by the government bring about capital consumption or restrict the accumulation of new capital, the capital required for marginal employments is lacking, and an expansion of investment which would have been effected in the absence of these taxes is prevented. The wants of the consumers are satisfied to a lesser extent only. But this outcome is not caused by a reluctance of capitalists to take risks. It is caused by a drop in capital supply. There is no such thing as a safe investment. If capitalists were to behave in the way the risk fable describes and were to strive after what they consider to be the safest investment, their conduct would render this line of investment unsafe and they would certainly lose their input. For the capitalist, there is no means of evading the law of the market that makes it imperative for the investor to comply with the wishes of the consumers and to produce all that can be produced under the given state of capital supply, technological knowledge, and the valuations of the consumers. A capitalist never chooses that investment in which, according to his understanding of the future, the danger of losing his input is smallest. He chooses that investment in which he expects to make the highest possible profit.
Those capitalists who are aware of their own lack of ability to judge correctly for themselves the trend of the market do not invest in equity capital, but lend their funds to the owners of such venture capital. They thus enter into a sort of partnership with those on whose better ability to appraise the conditions of the market they rely. It is customary to call venture capital risk capital. However, as has been pointed out, the success or failure of the investment in preferred stock, bonds, debentures, mortgages, and other loans depends ultimately also on the same factors that determine success or failure of the venture capital invested. There is no such thing as independence of the vicissitudes of the market. If taxation were to strengthen the supply of loan capital at the expense of the supply of venture capital, it would make the gross market rate of interest drop, and at the same time, by increasing the share of borrowed capital as against the share of equity capital in the capital structure of the firms and corporations, render the investment in loans more uncertain. The process would therefore be self-liquidating. The fact that a capitalist as a rule does not concentrate his investments, both in common stock and in loans, in one enterprise or one branch of business, but prefers to spread out his funds among various classes of investment, does not suggest that he wants to reduce his gambling risk. He wants to improve his chances of earning profits. Nobody embarks upon any investment if he does not expect to make a good investment. Nobody deliberately chooses a malinvestment. It is only the emergence of conditions not properly anticipated by the investor that turns an investment into a malinvestment. As has been pointed out, there cannot be such a thing as non-invested capital. The capitalist is not free to choose between investment and non-investment. Neither is he free to deviate in the choice of his investments from the lines determined by the most urgent among the yet unsatisfied wants of the consumers. He must try to anticipate these future wants correctly. Taxes may reduce the amount of additional capital available or even bring about consumption of capital previously accumulated, but they do not affect the employment of capital available, whatever its quantity may be. With an excessive height of the income and estate tax rates for the very rich, a capitalist may consider it the most advisable thing to keep all his funds in cash, or in bank balances not bearing any interest. He consumes part of his capital, pays no income tax, and reduces the inheritance tax which his heirs will have to pay. But even if people really behave this way, their conduct does not affect the employment of the capital available. It affects prices. But no capital good remains uninvested on account of it and the operation of the market pushes investment into those lines in which it is expected to satisfy the most urgent, not yet satisfied demand of the buying public. Chapter 33 
Syndicalism and Corporativism 1. The Syndicalist Idea The term syndicalism is used to signify two entirely different things. Syndicalism, as used by the partisans of Georges Sorel, means special revolutionary tactics to be resorted to for the realization of socialism. Labor unions, it implies, should not waste their strength in the task of improving the conditions of wage earners within the frame of capitalism. They should adopt action direct, unflinching violence to destroy all the institutions of capitalism. They should never cease to fight, in the genuine sense of the term, for their ultimate goal, socialism. The proletarians must not let themselves be fooled by the catchwords of the bourgeoisie, such as liberty, democracy, representative government. They must seek their salvation in the class struggle, in bloody revolutionary upheavals, and in the pitiless annihilation of the bourgeois. This doctrine played and still plays an enormous role in modern politics. It has provided essential ideas to Russian Bolshevism, Italian Fascism, and German Nazism. But it is a purely political issue, and may be disregarded in a catalactic analysis. The second meaning of the term syndicalism refers to a program of society's economic organization. While socialism aims at the substitution of government ownership of the means of production for private ownership, Syndicalism wants to give the ownership of the plants to the workers employed in them. Such slogans as the railroads to the railroad men or the mines to the miners best indicate the ultimate goals of syndicalism. The ideas of socialism and those of syndicalism in the sense of action direct were developed by intellectuals whom consistent adepts of all Marxian sects cannot help describing as bourgeois. But the idea of syndicalism as a system of social organization is a genuine product of the proletarian mind. It is precisely what the naive employee considers a fair and expedient means for improving his own material well-being. Eliminate the idle parasites, the entrepreneurs and capitalists, and give their unearned incomes to the workers. Nothing could be simpler. If one were to take these plans seriously, one would not have to deal with them in a discussion of the problems of interventionism. One would have to realize that syndicalism is neither socialism, nor capitalism, nor interventionism but a system of its own, different from these three schemes. However, one cannot take the syndicalist program seriously, and nobody ever has. Nobody has been so confused and injudicious as to advocate syndicalism openly as a social system. Syndicalism has played a role in the discussion of economic issues only as far as certain programs unwittingly contained syndicalist features. There are elements of syndicalism in certain objectives of government and labor union interference with market phenomena. 
There are, moreover, guild socialism and corporativism, which pretended to avoid the government omnipotence inherent in all socialist and interventionist ventures by adulterating them with a syndicalist admixture. 2. The Fallacies of Syndicalism The root of the syndicalist idea is to be seen in the belief that entrepreneurs and capitalists are irresponsible autocrats who are free to conduct their affairs arbitrarily. Such a dictatorship must not be tolerated. The liberal movement, which has substituted representative government for the despotism of hereditary kings and aristocrats, must crown its achievements by substituting industrial democracy for the tyranny of hereditary capitalists and entrepreneurs. The economic revolution must bring to a climax the liberation of the people which the political revolution has inaugurated. The fundamental error of this argument is obvious. The entrepreneurs and capitalists are not irresponsible autocrats. They are unconditionally subject to the sovereignty of the consumers. The market is a consumer's democracy. The syndicalists want to transform it into a producer's democracy. This idea is fallacious, for the sole end and purpose of production is consumption. What the syndicalist considers the most serious defect of the capitalist system and disparages as the brutality and callousness of autocratic profit-seekers is precisely the outcome of the supremacy of the consumers. Under the competitive conditions of the unhampered market economy, the entrepreneurs are forced to improve technological methods of production without regard to the vested interests of the workers. The employer is forced never to pay workers more than corresponds to the consumer's appraisal of their achievements. If an employee asks for a raise because his wife has borne him a new baby, and the employer refuses on the ground that the infant does not contribute to the factory's effort, the employer acts as the mandatory of the consumer's. These consumers are not prepared to pay more for any commodity merely because the worker has a large family. The naivete of the syndicalists manifests itself in the fact that they would never concede to those producing the articles which they themselves are using the same privileges which they claim for themselves. The syndicalist principle requires that the shares of every corporation should be taken away from absentee ownership and be equally distributed among the employees. Payment of interest and principle of debts is to be discontinued. Management will then be placed in the hands of a board elected by the workers, who are now also the shareholders. This mode of confiscation and redistribution will not bring about equality within the nation or the world. It would give more to the employees of those enterprises in which the quota of capital invested per worker is greater, and less to those in which it is smaller. It is a characteristic fact that the syndicalists, in dealing with these issues, always refer to management and never mention entrepreneurial activities. 
As the average subordinate employee sees things, all that is to be done in the conduct of business is to accomplish those ancillary tasks which are entrusted to the managerial hierarchy within the frame of the entrepreneurial plans. In his eyes, the individual plant or workshop as it exists and operates today is a permanent establishment. It will never change. It will always turn out the same products. He ignores completely the fact that conditions are in a ceaseless flux, and that the industrial structure must be daily adjusted to the solution of new problems. His worldview is stationary. It does not allow for new branches of business, new products, and new and better methods for manufacturing the old products. Thus the syndicalist ignores the essential problems of entrepreneurship, providing the capital for new industries and the expansion of already existing industries, restricting branches for the products demand for which drops, technological improvement. It is not unfair to call syndicalism the economic philosophy of short-sighted people, of those adamant conservatives who look askance upon any innovation and are so blinded by envy that they call down curses upon those who provide them with more, better, and cheaper products. They are like patients who grudge the doctor his success in curing them of a malady. 3. Syndicalist Elements in Popular Policies the popularity of syndicalism manifests itself in various postulates of contemporary economic policies. The essence of these policies is always to grant privileges to a minority group at the expense of the immense majority. They invariably result in impairing the wealth and income of the majority. Many labor unions are intent upon restricting the number of workers employed in their field. While the public wants more and cheaper books, periodicals, and newspapers, and would get them under the conditions of an unhampered labor market, the typographical unions prevent many newcomers from working in printing offices. The effect is, of course, an increase in the wages earned by the union members. But the corollary is a drop of wage rates for those not admitted and an enhancement in the price of printed matter. The same effect is brought about by union opposition to the utilization of technological improvements and by all sorts of feather-bedding practices. Radical syndicalism aims at entirely eliminating payment of dividends to shareholders and of interest to creditors. The interventionists, in their enthusiasm for middle-of-the-road solutions, want to appease the syndicalists by giving the employees a part of the profits. Profit-sharing is a very popular slogan. There is no need to enter anew into an examination of the fallacies implied in the underlying philosophy. It suffices to show the absurd consequences to which such a system must lead. It may sometimes be good policy for a small shop or for an enterprise employing highly skilled workers to grant an extra bonus to employees if business is prosperous, 
but it is a non sequitur to assume that what under special conditions may be wise for an individual firm could work satisfactorily as a general system. There is no reason why one welder should make more money because his employer earns high profits, and another welder less because his employer earns lower profits or no profits at all. The workers themselves would rebel against such a method of remuneration. It could not be preserved even for a short time. A caricature of the profit-sharing scheme is the ability-to-pay principle, as recently introduced into the program of American labor unionism. While the profit-sharing scheme aims at an allocation to the employees of a part of profits already earned, the ability-to-pay scheme aims at a distribution of profits which some external observers believe the employer may earn in the future. The issue has been obfuscated by the fact that the Truman administration, after having accepted the new union doctrine, announced that it was appointing a fact-finding board, which would have the authority to examine the books of the employers in order to determine their ability to pay an increase in wages. However, the books can provide information only about past costs and proceeds, and past profits and losses. Estimates of future volume of production, future sales, future costs, or future profits or losses are not facts, but speculative anticipations. There are no facts about future profits. There cannot be any question of realizing the syndicalist ideal, according to which the proceeds of an enterprise should completely go to the employees, and nothing should be left for interest on the capital invested and profits. If one wants to abolish what is called unearned income, one must adopt socialism. 4. Guild Socialism and Corporativism the ideas of guild socialism and corporativism originated from two different lines of thought. The eulogists of medieval institutions long praised the eminence of the guilds. What was needed to wash away the alleged evils of the market economy was simply to return to the well-tried methods of the past. However, all these diatribes remained sterile. The critics never attempted to particularize their suggestions or to elaborate definite plans for an economic reconstruction of the social order. The most they did was to point out the alleged superiority of the old quasi-representative assemblies of the type of the French Etat Généreux and the German Ständische Landtage as against the modern parliamentary bodies. But even with regard to this constitutional issue, their ideas were rather vague. The second source of guild socialism is to be found in specific political conditions of Great Britain. When the conflict with Germany became aggravated, and finally in 1914 led to war, the younger British socialists began to feel uneasy about their program. The state idolatry of the Fabians and the glorification of German and Prussian institutions was paradoxical indeed at a time when their own country was involved in a pitiless struggle against Germany. 
What was the use of fighting the Germans when the most progressive intellectuals of the country longed for the adoption of German social policies? Was it possible to praise British liberty as against Prussian bondage, and at the same time to recommend the methods of Bismarck and his successors? British socialists yearned for a specifically British brand of socialism, as different as possible from the Teutonic brand. The problem was to construct a socialist scheme without totalitarian state supremacy and omnipotence, an individualistic variety of collectivism. The solution of this problem is no less impossible than that of the construction of a triangular square. Yet the young men of Oxford confidently tried to solve it. They borrowed for their program the name Guild Socialism from the little-known group of the eulogists of the Middle Ages. They characterized their scheme as industrial self-government, an economic corollary of the most renowned principle of English political rule, local government. In their plans, they assigned the leading role to the most powerful British pressure group, the trade unions. Thus, they did everything to make their device palatable to their countrymen. However, neither these captivating adornments nor the obtrusive and noisy propaganda could mislead intelligent people. The plan was contradictory and blatantly impracticable. After only a few years, it fell into complete oblivion in the country of its origin. But then came a resurrection. The Italian fascists badly needed an economic program of their own. After having seceded from the international parties of Marxian socialism, they could no longer pose as socialists. Neither were they, the proud scions of the invincible Roman legionaries, prepared to make concessions to Western capitalism or to Prussian interventionism, the counterfeit ideologies of the barbarians who had destroyed their glorious empire. They were in search of a social philosophy purely and exclusively Italian. Whether or not they knew that their gospel was merely a replica of British guild socialism is immaterial. At any rate, the Stato Cooperativo was nothing but a rebaptized edition of guild socialism. The differences concerned only unimportant details. Corporativism was flamboyantly advertised by the bombastic propaganda of the fascists, and the success of their campaign was overwhelming. Many foreign authors exuberantly praised the miraculous achievements of the new system. The governments of Austria and Portugal emphasized that they were firmly committed to the noble ideas of corporativism. The Pope's encyclical, Quadragesimo Anno, 1931, contained passages which could, but need not, be interpreted as an endorsement of corporativism. At any rate, Catholic authors supported this interpretation in books which were published with the imprimatur of the Church authorities. Yet neither the Italian fascists nor the Austrian and Portuguese governments ever made any serious attempt to realize the corporativist utopia. The Italians attached to various institutions the label corporativist, and transformed the university chairs of political economy into chairs of economia politica e corporativa.
but never was there any question of the much-talked-about essential feature of corporativism, self-government of the various branches of trade and industry. The fascist government clung first to the same principles of economic policies which all not-outright socialist governments have adopted in our day, interventionism. Then, later, it turned step by step toward the German system of socialism, that is, all-round state control of economic activities. The fundamental idea both of guild socialism and of corporativism is that every branch of business forms a monopolistic body, the guild, or corporazioni. This entity enjoys full autonomy. It is free to settle all its internal affairs without interference of external factors and of people who are not themselves members of the guild. The mutual relations between the various guilds are settled by direct bargaining from guild to guild or by the decisions of a general assembly of the delegates of all guilds. In the regular course of affairs, the government does not interfere at all. Only in exceptional cases, when an agreement between the various guilds cannot be attained, is the state called in. In drafting this scheme, the guild socialists had in mind the conditions of British local government and the relation between the various local authorities and the central government of the United Kingdom. They aimed at self-government of each branch of industry. They wanted, as the Webbs put it, the right of self-determination for each vocation. In the same way in which each municipality takes care of its local community affairs, and the national government handles only those affairs which concern the interests of the whole nation, the guild alone should have jurisdiction over its internal affairs, and the government should restrict its interference to those things which the guilds themselves cannot settle. However, within a system of social cooperation under the division of labor, there are no such things as matters of concern only to those engaged in a special plant, enterprise, or branch of industry, and of no concern to outsiders. There are no internal affairs of any guild or corporazioni, the arrangement of which does not affect the whole nation. A branch of business does not serve only those who are occupied in it. It serves everybody. If within any branch of business there is inefficiency, a squandering of scarce factors of production, or a reluctance to adopt the most appropriate methods of production, everybody's material interests are hurt. One cannot leave decisions concerning the choice of technological methods, the quantity and quality of products, the hours of work, and a thousand other things, to the members of the guild, because they concern outsiders no less than members. In the market economy, the entrepreneur, in making such decisions, is unconditionally subject to the law of the market. He is responsible to the consumers. If he were to defy the orders of the consumers, he would suffer losses and would very soon forfeit his entrepreneurial position. But the monopolistic guild does not need to fear competition. It enjoys the inalienable right of exclusively covering its field of production. 
It is, if left alone and autonomous, not the servant of the consumers, but their master. It is free to resort to practices which favor its members at the expense of the rest of the people. It is of no importance whether within the guild the workers alone rule, or whether and to what extent the capitalists and the former entrepreneurs cooperate in the management of affairs. It is likewise without importance whether or not some seats in the guild's governing board are assigned to representatives of the consumers. What counts is that the guild, if autonomous, is not subject to pressure that would force it to adjust its operations to the best possible satisfaction of the consumers. It is free to give the interests of its members precedence over the interests of consumers. There is in the scheme of guild socialism and corporativism nothing that would take into account the fact that the only purpose of production is consumption. Things are turned upside down. Production becomes an end in itself. When the American New Deal embarked upon the National Recovery Administration scheme, the government and its brain trust were fully aware of the fact that what they planned was merely the establishment of an administrative apparatus for full government control of business. The short-sightedness of the guild socialists and corporativists is to be seen in the fact that they believed that the autonomous guild, or corporazioni, could be considered a device for a working system of social cooperation. It is very easy indeed for each guild to arrange its allegedly internal affairs in such a way as to satisfy its members fully. Short hours of work, high wage rates, no further improvements in technological methods or in the quality of the products which could inconvenience the members, very well. But what will the result be if all guilds resort to the same policies? Under the guild system there is no longer any question of a market. There are no longer any prices in the catalactic sense of the term. There are neither competitive prices nor monopoly prices. Those guilds which monopolize the supply of vital necessities attain a dictatorial position. The producers of indispensable foodstuffs and fuel and the suppliers of electric current and of transportation can with impunity squeeze the whole people. Does anybody expect that the majority will tolerate such a state of affairs? There is no doubt that any attempt to realize the corporativist utopia would in a very short time lead to violent conflicts if the government did not interfere when the vital industries abused their privileged position. What the doctrinaires envisage only as an exceptional measure, the interference of the government, will become the rule. Guild socialism and corporativism will turn into full government control of all production activities. They will develop into that system of Prussian Zwangswirtschaft, which they were designed to avoid. There is no need to deal with the other fundamental shortcomings of the guild scheme. It is as deficient as any other syndicalist project. It does not take into account the necessity of shifting capital and labor from one branch to another and of establishing new branches of production. 
it entirely neglects the problem of saving and capital accumulation. In short, it is nonsense. Chapter 34 The Economics of War 1. Total War The market economy involves peaceful cooperation. It bursts asunder when the citizens turn into warriors and, instead of exchanging commodities and services, fight one another. The wars fought by primitive tribes did not affect cooperation under the division of labor. Such cooperation, by and large, did not exist between the warring parties before the outbreak of hostilities. These wars were unlimited, or total, wars. They aimed at total victory and total defeat. The defeated were either exterminated or expelled from their dwelling places, or enslaved. The idea that a treaty could settle the conflict and make it possible for both parties to live in peaceful neighborly conditions was not present in the minds of the fighters. The spirit of conquest does not acknowledge restraints other than those imposed by a power which resists successfully. The principle of empire-building is to expand the sphere of supremacy as far as possible. The great Asiatic conquerors and the Roman imperators were stopped only when they could not march farther. Then they postponed aggression for later days. They did not abandon their ambitious plans and did not consider independent foreign states as anything else than targets for later onslaughts. This philosophy of boundless conquest also animated the rulers of medieval Europe. They, too, aimed first of all at the utmost expansion of the size of their realms. But the institutions of feudalism provided them with only scanty means for warfare. Vassals were not obliged to fight for their lord more than a limited time. The selfishness of the vassals who insisted on their rights checked the king's aggressiveness. Thus the peaceful coexistence of a number of sovereign states originated. In the 16th century, a Frenchman, Baudin, developed the theory of national sovereignty. In the 17th century, a Dutchman, Grotius, added to it a theory of international relations in war and peace. With the disintegration of feudalism, sovereigns could no longer rely upon summoned vassals. They nationalized the country's armed forces. Henceforth, the warriors were the king's mercenaries. The organization, equipment, and support of such troops were rather costly and a heavy burden on the ruler's revenues. The ambitions of the princes were unbounded, but financial considerations forced them to moderate their designs. They no longer planned to conquer a whole country. All they aimed at was the conquest of a few cities or of a province. To attain more would also have been unwise politically, for the European powers were anxious not to let any one of them become too powerful and a menace to their own safety. A too impetuous conqueror must always fear a coalition of all those whom his bigness has frightened. The combined effect of military, financial, and political circumstances produced the limited warfare which prevailed in Europe in the three hundred years preceding the French Revolution. 
Wars were fought by comparatively small armies of professional soldiers. War was not an affair of the peoples. It concerned the rulers only. The citizens detested war, which brought mischief to them and burdened them with taxes and contributions. But they considered themselves victims of events in which they did not participate actively. Even the belligerent armies respected the neutrality of the civilians. As they saw it, they were fighting the supreme warlord of the hostile forces, but not the non-combatant subjects of the enemy. In the wars fought on the European continent, the property of civilians was considered inviolable. In 1856, the Congress of Paris made an attempt to extend this principle to naval warfare. More and more, eminent minds began to discuss the possibility of abolishing war altogether. Looking at conditions as they had developed under the system of limited warfare, philosophers found wars useless. Men are killed or maimed. Wealth is destroyed. Countries are devastated for the sole benefit of kings and ruling oligarchies. The peoples themselves do not derive any gain from victory. The individual citizens are not enriched if their rulers expand the size of their realm by annexing a province. For the people, wars do not pay. The only cause of armed conflict is the greed of autocrats. The substitution of representative government for royal despotism will abolish war altogether. Democracies are peaceful. It is no concern of theirs whether their nation's sovereignty stretches over a larger or smaller territory. They will treat territorial problems without bias and passion. They will settle them peacefully. What is needed to make peace durable is to dethrone the despots. This, of course, cannot be achieved peacefully. It is necessary to crush the mercenaries of the kings. But this revolutionary war of the peoples against the tyrants will be the last war, the war to abolish war forever. This idea was already dimly present in the minds of the French revolutionary leaders when, after having repelled the invading armies of Prussia and Austria, they embarked upon a campaign of aggression. Of course, under the leadership of Napoleon, they themselves very soon adopted the most ruthless methods of boundless expansion and annexation, until a coalition of all European powers frustrated their ambitions. But the idea of a durable peace was soon resurrected. It was one of the main points in the body of nineteenth-century liberalism, as consistently elaborated in the much-abused principles of the Manchester School. These British liberals and their continental friends were keen enough to realize that what can safeguard durable peace is not simply government by the people, but government by the people under unlimited laissez-faire. In their eyes, free trade, both in domestic affairs and in international relations, was the necessary prerequisite of the preservation of peace. In such a world, without trade and migration barriers, no incentives for war and conquest are left. Fully convinced of the irrefutable persuasiveness of the liberal ideas, they dropped the notion of the last war to abolish all wars. 
all peoples will, of their own accord, recognize the blessings of free trade and peace, and will curb their domestic despots without any aid from abroad. Most historians entirely fail to recognize the factors which replaced the limited war of the Ancien Régime by the unlimited war of our age. As they see it, the change came with the shift from the dynastic to the national form of state, and was a consequence of the French Revolution. They look only upon attending phenomena and confuse causes and effects. They speak of the composition of the armies, of strategical and tactical principles, of weapons and transportation facilities, and of many other matters of military art and administrative technicalities. However, all these things do not explain why modern nations prefer aggression to peace. There is perfect agreement with regard to the fact that total war is an offshoot of aggressive nationalism. But this is merely circular reasoning. We call aggressive nationalism that ideology which makes for modern total war. Aggressive nationalism is the necessary derivative of the policies of interventionism and national planning. While laissez-faire eliminates the causes of international conflict, government interference with business and socialism create conflicts for which no peaceful solution can be found. While under free trade and freedom of migration, no individual is concerned about the territorial size of his country, under the protective measures of economic nationalism, nearly every citizen has a substantial interest in these territorial issues. The enlargement of the territory subject to the sovereignty of his own government means material improvement for him, or, at least, relief from restrictions which a foreign government has imposed upon his well-being. What has transformed the limited war between royal armies into total war, the clash between peoples, is not technicalities of military art, but the substitution of the welfare state for the laissez-faire state. If Napoleon I had reached his goal, the French Empire would have stretched far beyond the limits of 1815. Spain and Naples would have been ruled by kings of the house of Bonaparte Murat instead of kings of another French family, the Bourbons. The palace of Castle would have been occupied by a French playboy instead of one of the egregious electors of the Hesse family. All these things would not have made the citizens of France more prosperous. Neither did the citizens of Prussia win anything from the fact that their king, in 1866, evicted his cousins of Hanover, Hesse Castle, and Nassau from their luxurious residences. But if Hitler had realized his plans, the Germans expected to enjoy a higher standard of living. They were confident that the annihilation of the French, the Poles, and the Czechs would make every member of their own race richer. The struggle for more Lebensraum was their own war. Under laissez-faire, peaceful coexistence of a multitude of sovereign nations is possible. Under government control of business, it is impossible. The tragic error of President Wilson was that he ignored this essential point. 
modern total war has nothing in common with the limited war of the old dynasties. It is a war against trade and migration barriers, a war of the comparatively overpopulated countries against the comparatively underpopulated. It is a war to abolish those institutions which prevent the emergence of a tendency toward an equalization of wage rates all over the world. It is a war of the farmers tilling poor soil against those governments which bar them from access to much more fertile soil lying fallow. It is, in short, a war of wage earners and farmers who describe themselves as underprivileged have-nots against the wage earners and farmers of other nations whom they consider privileged haves. The acknowledgment of this fact does not suggest that victorious wars would really do away with those evils about which the aggressors complain. Neither does it mean that there can be any question of appeasing the aggressors by removing migration barriers. As conditions are today, the Americas and Australia, in admitting German, Italian, and Japanese immigrants, would merely open their doors to the vanguards of hostile armies. It is futile to place confidence in treaties, conferences, and such bureaucratic outfits as the League of Nations and the United Nations. Plenipotentiaries, office clerks, and experts make a poor show in fighting ideologies. The spirit of conquest cannot be smothered by red tape. What is needed is a radical change in ideologies and economic policies. 2. War and the Market Economy The market economy, say the socialists and the interventionists, is at best a system that may be tolerated in peacetime. But when war comes, such indulgence is impermissible. It would jeopardize the vital interests of the nation for the sole benefit of the selfish concerns of capitalists and entrepreneurs. War, and in any case modern total war, peremptorily requires government control of business. Hardly anybody has been bold enough to challenge this dogma. It served in both world wars as a convenient pretext for innumerable measures of government interference with business, which in many countries, step by step, led to full war socialism. When the hostilities ceased, a new slogan was launched. The period of transition from war to peace and of reconversion, people contended, requires even more government control than the period of war. Besides, why should one ever return to a social system which can work, if at all, only in the interval between two wars? The most appropriate thing would be to cling permanently to government control in order to be duly prepared for any possible emergency. An examination of the problems which the United States had to face in the Second World War will clearly show how fallacious this reasoning is. What America needed in order to win the war was a radical conversion of all its production activities. All not absolutely indispensable civilian consumption was to be eliminated. The plants and farms were henceforth to turn out only a minimum of goods for non-military use. 
For the rest, they were to devote themselves completely to the task of supplying the armed forces. The realization of this program did not require the establishment of controls and priorities. If the government had raised all the funds needed for the conduct of war by taxing the citizens and by borrowing from them, everybody would have been forced to cut down his consumption drastically. The entrepreneurs and farmers would have turned toward production for the government because the sale of goods to private citizens would have dropped. The government, now by virtue of the inflow of taxes and borrowed money, the biggest buyer on the market, would have been in a position to obtain all it wanted. Even the fact that the government chose to finance a considerable part of the war expenditure by increasing the quantity of money in circulation and by borrowing from the commercial banks would not have altered this state of affairs. The inflation must, of course, bring about a marked tendency toward a rise in the prices of all goods and services. The government would have had to pay higher nominal prices, but it would still have been the most solvent buyer on the market. It would have been possible for it to outbid the citizens who, on the one hand, had not the right of manufacturing the money they needed, and, on the other hand, would have been squeezed by enormous taxes. But the government deliberately adopted a policy which was bound to make it impossible for it to rely upon the operation of the unhampered market. It resorted to price control and made it illegal to raise commodity prices. Furthermore, it was very slow in taxing the income swollen by the inflation. It surrendered to the claim of the unions that the workers' real take-home wages should be kept at a height which would enable them to preserve in the war their pre-war standard of living. In fact, the most numerous class of the nation, the class which in peacetime consumed the greatest part of the total amount of goods consumed, had so much more money in their pockets that their power to buy and to consume was greater than in peacetime. The wage earners, and to some extent also the farmers and the owners of plants producing for the government, would have frustrated the government's endeavors to direct industries toward the production of war materials. They would have induced business to produce more, not less, of those goods which in wartime are considered superfluous luxuries. It was this circumstance that forced the administration to resort to the systems of priorities and of rationing. The shortcomings of the methods adopted for financing war expenditure made government control of business necessary. If no inflation had been made, and if taxation had cut down the income after taxes of all citizens, not only of those enjoying higher incomes, to a fraction of their peacetime revenues, these controls would have been supererogatory. The endorsement of the doctrine that the wage earner's real income must in wartime be even higher than in peacetime made them unavoidable. Not government decrees and the paperwork of hosts of people on the government's payroll, but the efforts of private enterprise produced those goods which enabled the American armed forces to win the war, 
and to provide all the material equipment its allies needed for their cooperation. The economist does not infer anything from these historical facts, but it is expedient to mention them, as the interventionists would have us believe that a decree prohibiting the employment of steel for the construction of apartment houses automatically produces airplanes and battleships. The adjustment of production activities to a change in the demand of consumers is the source of profits. The greater the discrepancy between the previous state of production activities and that agreeing with the new structure of demand, the greater adjustments are required, and the greater profits are earned by those who succeed best in accomplishing these adjustments. The sudden transition from peace to war revolutionizes the structure of the market, makes radical readjustments indispensable, and thus becomes, for many, a source of high profits. The planners and interventionists regard such profits as a scandal. As they see it, the first duty of government in time of war is to prevent the emergence of new millionaires. It is, they say, unfair to let some people become richer while other people are killed or maimed. Nothing is fair in war. It is not just that God is for the big battalions and that those who are better equipped defeat poorly equipped adversaries. It is not just that those in the front line shed their life blood in obscurity while the commanders, comfortably located in headquarters hundreds of miles behind the trenches, gain glory and fame. It is not just that John is killed and Mark crippled for the rest of his life, while Paul returns home safe and sound and enjoys all the privileges accorded to veterans. It may be admitted that it is not fair that war enhances the profits of those entrepreneurs who contribute best to the equipment of the fighting forces, but it would be foolish to deny that the profit system produces the best weapons. It was not socialist Russia that aided capitalist America with lend-lease. The Russians were lamentably defeated before American-made bombs fell on Germany and before they got the arms manufactured by American big business. The most important thing in war is not to avoid the emergence of high profits, but to give the best equipment to one's own country's soldiers and sailors. The worst enemies of a nation are those malicious demagogues who would give their envy precedence over the vital interests of their nation's cause. Of course, in the long run, war and the preservation of the market economy are incompatible. Capitalism is essentially a scheme for peaceful nations. But this does not mean that a nation which is forced to repel foreign aggressors must substitute government control for private enterprise. If it were to do this, it would deprive itself of the most efficient means of defense. There is no record of a socialist nation which defeated a capitalist nation. In spite of their much-glorified war socialism, the Germans were defeated in both world wars. What the incompatibility of war and capitalism really means is that war and high civilization are incompatible. 
If the efficiency of capitalism is directed by governments toward the output of instruments of destruction, the ingenuity of private business turns out weapons which are powerful enough to destroy everything. What makes war and capitalism incompatible with one another is precisely the unparalleled efficiency of the capitalist mode of production. The market economy, subject to the sovereignty of the individual consumers, turns out products which make the individual's life more agreeable. It caters to the individual's demand for more comfort. It is this that made capitalism despicable in the eyes of the apostles of violence. They worshipped the hero, the destroyer and killer, and despised the bourgeois and his peddler mentality. Now mankind is reaping the fruits which ripened from the seeds sown by these men. 3. War and Autarky If an economically self-sufficient man starts a feud against another autarkic man, no specific problems of war economy arise. But if the tailor goes to war against the baker, he must henceforth produce his bread for himself. If he neglects to do this, he will be in distress sooner than his adversary, the baker, for the baker can wait longer for a new suit than the tailor can for fresh bread. The economic problem of making war is therefore different for the baker and for the tailor. The international division of labor was developed under the assumption that there would no longer be wars. In the philosophy of the Manchester School, free trade and peace were seen as mutually conditioning one another. The businessman who made trade international did not consider the possibility of new wars. Nor did general staffs and students of the art of warfare pay any attention to the change in conditions which international division of labor brought about. The method of military science consists in examining the experience of wars fought in the past and in abstracting general rules from it. Even the most scrupulous occupation with the campaigns of Turenne and Napoleon I could not suggest the existence of a problem which was not present in ages in which there was practically no international division of labor. The European military experts slighted the study of the American Civil War. In their eyes, this war was not instructive. It was fought by armies of irregulars led by non-professional commanders. Civilians like Lincoln interfered with the conduct of the operations. Little, they believed, could be learned from this experience. But it was in the Civil War that, for the first time, problems of the inter-regional division of labor played the decisive role. The South was predominantly agricultural, its processing industries were negligible. The Confederates depended on the supply of manufactures from Europe. As the naval forces of the Union were strong enough to blockade their coast, they soon began to lack needed equipment. The Germans in both world wars had to face the same situation. They depended on the supply of foodstuffs and raw materials from overseas but they could not run the British blockade. 
In both wars the outcome was decided by the battles of the Atlantic. The Germans lost because they failed in their efforts to cut off the British Isles from access to the world market, and could not themselves safeguard their own maritime supply lines. The strategical problem was determined by the conditions of the International Division of Labor. The German warmongers were intent upon adopting policies which, as they hoped, could make it possible for Germany to wage a war in spite of the handicap of the foreign trade situation. Their panacea was ersatz, the substitute. A substitute is a good which is either less suitable or more expensive or both less suitable and more expensive than the proper good which it is designed to replace. Whenever technology succeeds in manufacturing or discovering something which is either more suitable or cheaper than the thing previously used, this new thing represents a technological innovation. It is improvement, and not ersatz. The essential feature of ersatz, as this term is employed in the economico-military doctrine, is inferior quality, or higher costs, or both together. In this sense, wheat produced under the protection of an import duty within the Reich's territory is ersatz too. It is produced at higher costs than foreign wheat. The notion of ersatz is a catalactic notion, and must not be defined with regard to technological and physical properties of the articles. The Wehrwirtschaftslehre, the German doctrine of the economics of war, contends that neither cost of production nor quality are important in matters of warfare. Profit-seeking business is concerned with costs of production and with the quality of the products. But the heroic spirit of a superior race does not care about such specters of the acquisitive mind. What counts alone is war preparedness. A warlike nation must aim at autarky in order to be independent of foreign trade. It must foster the production of substitutes irrespective of mammonist considerations. It cannot do without full government control of production because the selfishness of the individual citizens would thwart the plans of the leader. Even in peacetime, the commander-in-chief must be entrusted with economic dictatorship. Both theorems of the ersatz doctrine are fallacious. First, it is not true that the quality and suitability of the substitute are of no importance. If soldiers are sent into battle badly nourished and equipped with weapons made of inferior material, the chances for victory are impaired. Their action will be less successful, and they will suffer heavier casualties. The awareness of their technical inferiority will weigh on their minds. Ersatz jeopardizes both the material strength and the morale of an army. No less incorrect is the theorem that the higher costs of production of the substitutes do not count. Higher costs of production mean that more labor and more material factors of production must be expended in order to achieve the same effect which the adversary, producing the proper product, attains with a lower expenditure. 
It is tantamount to squandering scarce factors of production, material, and manpower. Such waste under conditions of peace results in lowering the standard of living, and under conditions of war in cutting down the supply of goods needed for the conduct of operations. In the present state of technological knowledge, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that everything can be produced out of anything. But what matters is to pick out from the great multitude of possible methods those with which output is highest per unit of input. Any deviation from this principle penalizes itself. The consequences in war are as bad as they are in peace. In a country like the United States, which depends only to a comparatively negligible extent on the importation of raw materials from abroad, it is possible to improve the state of war preparedness by resorting to the production of substitutes, such as synthetic rubber. The disadvantageous effects would be small when weighed against the beneficial effects. But a country like Germany was badly mistaken in the assumption that it could conquer with synthetic gasoline, synthetic rubber, ersatz textiles, and ersatz fats. In both world wars, Germany was in the position of the tailor fighting against the man who supplies him with bread. With all their brutality, the Nazis could not alter this fact. 4. The Futility of War What distinguishes man from animals is the insight into the advantages that can be derived from cooperation under the division of labor. Man curbs his innate instinct of aggression in order to cooperate with other human beings. The more he wants to improve his material well-being, the more he must expand the system of the division of labor. Concomitantly, he must more and more restrict the sphere in which he resorts to military action. The emergence of the international division of labor requires the total abolition of war. Such is the essence of the laissez-faire philosophy of Manchester. This philosophy is, of course, incompatible with statolatry. In its context, the state, the social apparatus of violent oppression, is entrusted with the protection of the smooth operation of the market economy against the onslaughts of antisocial individuals and gangs. Its function is indispensable and beneficial but it is an ancillary function only. There is no reason to idolize the police power and ascribe to it omnipotence and omniscience. There are things which it can certainly not accomplish. It cannot conjure away the scarcity of the factors of production. It cannot make people more prosperous. It cannot raise the productivity of labor. All it can achieve is to prevent gangsters from frustrating the efforts of those people who are intent upon promoting material well-being. The liberal philosophy of Bentham and Bastiat had not yet completed its work of removing trade barriers and government meddling with business when the counterfeit theology of the divine state began to take effect. 
endeavors to improve the conditions of wage earners and small farmers by government decree made it necessary to loosen more and more the ties which connected each country's domestic economy with those of other countries. Economic nationalism, the necessary complement of domestic interventionism, hurts the interests of foreign peoples, and thus creates international conflict. It suggests the idea of amending this unsatisfactory state of affairs by war. Why should a powerful nation tolerate the challenge of a less powerful nation? Is it not insolence on the part of small Laputania to injure the citizens of big Ruritania by customs, migration barriers, foreign exchange control, quantitative trade restrictions, and expropriation of Ruritanian investments in Laputania? Would it not be easy for the army of Ruritania to crush Laputania's contemptible forces? Such was the ideology of the German, Italian, and Japanese warmongers. It must be admitted that they were consistent from the point of view of the new, unorthodox teachings. Interventionism generates economic nationalism, and economic nationalism generates bellicosity. If men and commodities are prevented from crossing the border lines, why should not the armies try to pave the way for them? From the day when Italy in 1911 fell upon Turkey, fighting was continual. There was almost always shooting somewhere in the world. The peace treaties concluded were virtually merely armistice agreements. Moreover, they had to do only with the armies of the great powers. Some of the smaller nations were always at war. In addition, there were no less pernicious civil wars and revolutions. How far we are today from the rules of international law developed in the age of limited warfare. Modern war is merciless. It does not spare pregnant women or infants. It is indiscriminate killing and destroying. It does not respect the rights of neutrals. Millions are killed, enslaved, or expelled from the dwelling places in which their ancestors lived for centuries. Nobody can foretell what will happen in the next chapter of this endless struggle. This has nothing to do with the atomic bomb. The root of the evil is not the construction of new, more dreadful weapons. It is the spirit of conquest. It is probable that scientists will discover some methods of defense against the atomic bomb. But this will not alter things. It will merely prolong for a short time the process of the complete destruction of civilization. Modern civilization is a product of the philosophy of laissez-faire. It cannot be preserved under the ideology of government omnipotence. Statolatry owes much to the doctrines of Hegel. However, one may pass over many of Hegel's inexcusable faults, for Hegel also coined the phrase, the futility of victory. To defeat the aggressors is not enough to make peace durable. The main thing is to discard the ideology that generates war.